Senator Ted Cruz is back in Texas, admitting his whirlwind trip to Cancun was a mistake. When the night storm comes rolling in, and folks might soon be shivering, you could be in the office governing, helping out your constituents. Or you could go down to Mexico Wait a minute Sip a drink on the sunny shore um, You seem good at your job on Twitter, so You can go down to Mexico We're gathered here for an impeachment The president's lacking innocence So we owe it to all the citizens To move forward with all the witnesses Next week is recess Or we could go down to Mexico It's Valentine's weekend, don't you know I look good at my job on Twitter, so perhaps I'll head down to Mexico. As the pandemic starts to rage and we make a vaccine, hooray. Let's take our data to the FDA. We'll take a look in a few weeks, okay? For real? Here's a question for determining if the people you elect to lead are maybe not that great at governing. Do people prefer this to your currency? Increasingly. Then maybe go down to Mexico. Sip a drink on the sunny shore. When a nickel is worth less than doge. Perhaps it's time to go to Mexico. La 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 la. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff. Wittellis is being broadcast live on February 27th, 2021. The time right now, 9.39 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That was Go to Mexico, a song by Remy from Reason TV. Always makes a lot of uh, very funny song parodies about politics. This one was, uh, it started out sounding like it was just about Ted Cruz, but it was about a number of different things happening in the government over the last month. Anyway, we have a free roll tonight, which amazingly has not started yet. The last several shows we have done our free roll which had already begun by the time I started the show, which is a bit embarrassing because it's supposed to be something that goes during the show that you have time to get into before it starts. But I always say, well, you have 25 minutes of late registration. Well, you still have that, but it has not started yet. It's starting in five minutes, and then you have 25 minutes, meaning you have half an hour. You have till 10, 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to get into that free roll on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It is $52 this week, and the prize pool is as follows. $26 for first, 16 for second, and 10 for third. This was donated by three different people. We got $20 from Winona86. We got $16 from Reno. He also donated uh, another week recently. And we got $16 from Mr. Wallace. So thank you to the three of you, which added up to $52 we're giving away this week in cash, cash money, on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, our free roll we have during just about every single radio show we do on this site. Of course, you have to listen live if you want to play the free roll. And the field is never very big because most of our listeners catch this in the archives. Most people don't listen live. So if you do listen live and play the free roll, you have a pretty good shot at winning the money. It's not a tremendous sum of money, but if you're here anyway listening, you might as well take a shot at it. So if you want the rules about qualifying for the free roll, go to pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll, 
pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. And understand that you need to have a form account in good standing in order to qualify, but you need a separate account there on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. And you can make that and then wait for it to get validated. You can PM Belly Buster on the forum, Belly Space Buster, to get validated. And if he is uh, not able to do that for you, then you can contact me and I can see what I can do for you. He is the one running the poker room, though, all the way there in England. And I appreciate that. He's been running it now for nine years since our site started almost exactly nine years ago. Poker Fraud Alert began on March 2nd, 2012. So we're just a few days away from the ninth anniversary of this site. And I'm happy to still have all of you along with me, or even those of you that came along later that weren't here right at the beginning. Wasn't sure how long it would last. In fact, when I started Poker Fraud Alert, I said, I don't know how this is going to be received. And if it's a fail site, if people don't have an interest in the site, then I am going to take it down after about a month or two. But fortunately, there was interest. And here we are nine years later, and we're going to keep going for the foreseeable future. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line, which is an old 70s rotary phone, which forwards to me wherever I go. It is located in Mount Charleston in a cabin there, and it is not a number you can text, but it's a number you can call during the show and it's a separate line into the show in case you can't get through on the main number. 702-430-1808 is that number, the Mount Charleston line. If you want to call and listen to the show through the call to listen line, you can do that by calling the the 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, or the alternate call to listen line, 641-741-1095. Those both work the same way. Does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require the internet or a computer. No, 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 no. You just call up, you listen, it works. Never freezes, never buffers, no matter how weak your connection is. It just plays. It's a great thing. The call to listen line, 605-313-0736 is the number to that. Not a call in line to the show, but a way to listen to the show. Other ways to listen to the show, you can listen in the archives by going to iTunes, to Google Podcasts, to Stitcher, to TuneIn. TuneIn also has a way to listen to the live show. You can listen through Bullhorn. You can listen through... Spotify, or iHeartMedia. We have those as well. A lot of different ways to listen to the show in the archives. Listening live, you can do it through the TuneIn app, or you can go to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com, or you can call the call to listen line. These all work to listen live. Also, Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. Once again, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast, and it will play the last archived episode and if you want to go to the previous one before that just say next i know that sounds backwards but i'm not the one who designed it say next and it will go to the one that was before that and if you want to go back forward you say previous don't yell at me about this yell at jeff bezos that was his fault but it does work we are on amazon alexa as well used to be able to listen live on amazon alexa but they took that away don't know why but it just happened one day 
We have a chat room. You can chat there during the show. If we're not on live, there's not going to be anyone chatting there, so don't bother. But if you're listening live, you can go in the chat room. You'll mainly be talking to the other people listening and in the chat room at the time, but I will glance at it every so often. Uh, Disposition asking in the chat, why no show last night? He's asking if I was watching CPAC. No, I don't really have an interest in CPAC, to be honest. Uh, there's a variety of reasons why we didn't do last night. Uh, I was having a sore throat, kind of, because of uh, dryness. The, the air was dry in this area, so uh, I didn't think it was a good time to talk for like six or seven hours straight. Also, my girlfriend was tired, and she was going to have a harder time watching Benjamin. And also, we hadn't been on since... Saturday, uh, our last show was Saturday last week, so it had only been six days. There wasn't enough stuff to cover. So now we have more to cover, and I'm happy with the decision to delay it one day. So that's what's going on there. Uh, Let's see if we have anything else before we get to the agenda. Trader Ruski, I think, is going to be around right now. Let's see if I can find him. Otherwise, I'll probably call in much later in the show. What's happening, Druff? Hello, Trader Ruski. How's it going? It's going okay. How about you? Doing well. Okay, good. So we have uh, a number of topics this week, many of which I found today. So I'm actually glad we didn't do it yesterday because a number of these things we would talk about wouldn't have happened yet or I would not have discovered them yet. Uh, How late do you think you'll be with us? I'm good. I took a nap. I just oh, I didn't okay. expect you to start this early, you know. So. Well, this isn't that early. It's like 9.48, but... Uh, uh, exactly. 10, <laughs> so. I guess by my standards, this is early. I actually was going to try to start it even earlier. I, I was thinking, because I got up a little bit earlier today than I'm used to, so I, I usually get up pretty late on the day of the show so I can stay up all night and have the energy to do it. And the times I don't do that, I, I fell asleep on the air back in January. I, I woke up very fast, but I actually fell asleep on the air and woke up. Um, it, it was really strange. We go to the, exactly the four-hour mark on the uh, January uh, 17th show and listen for the next, like, 30 seconds. You will hear me nod off for about, like, two seconds and then pop right back as if nothing happened. Really weird. So, anyway... Uh, Here's the agenda, and we will get going. Justin Bonomo and Oasis Ahmed are the latest victims in the Venmo hackings that are targeting big-name poker pros. This isn't getting enough attention. This is a really bad thing that is happening on Venmo, and the poker players who are being victimized are being treated really, really badly by Venmo itself after the fact. So I, I will read the tweets that Justin Bonomo put out this week about his experience. And then uh, Oasis Ahmed also chimed in. A lot of big-name poker players are being hit here, and I have my theories as to how it's happening. And it's something you're not going to be able to stop if they try to victimize you. So we'll talk about that again. We talked about that in November, and uh, we have an update for you there as a top story. Speaking of updates, I have an update about the Mike Possel defamation case. There has been a motion filed by Mike Possel himself. So I'll tell you about that, and I will tell you uh, what our reaction is going to be to this. A guy won $60,000 at MGM National Harbor, 
And he made the mistake of going around the casino and bragging about it. And when you have a lot of cash on you that you just won at the casino, and you brag, and certain not-very-nice-people see you brag, it does not end out very well for you, and it did not end out well for him. So I'll tell you what happened there. We will talk about NBA Top Shot tonight. It's an interesting topic. It's an interesting thing that's going on. It's one of the newest... uh money-making crazes of 2021. You know, we had a a number of things that have already happened this year that were unusual. We had uh, GameStop and AMC, those stocks that got pumped way up. We had Dogecoin. Of course, uh, Bitcoin, which has been around for a long time, shot up this year as well. And now we have NBA Top Shot. So I'll explain what that is. I'll tell you how you can get in on it and how... If you do it right, and if you get a little bit lucky, then you're pretty much guaranteed to make money with it. Not as much as if you had gotten into it a month ago, but there are still opportunities there, and I'll tell you what you need to do. Full Tilt is finally gone. And you may be saying, what? That's been gone for a very long time. No, not completely. It is now completely gone. I'll tell you what happened to Full Tilt and why... The final nail has been put in its coffin. Norman Chad, one of the longtime commentators for the World Series of Poker. If you remember back in August, we reported that he had COVID, and I played some of his videos that he posted on Twitter about it. Seemed like he got over it and everything was fine, but apparently not. He can't do the World Series of Poker commentating because of long-haul after-effects that have occurred as a result of his COVID back in August. So we'll talk about uh, that, and I'll tell you who's replacing him. It might surprise you if you haven't heard already. Ape Styles is a longtime online poker pro, very successful, and he was banned from GG Poker in late 2020, which I hadn't really heard about until now. But he's now pressuring to come back. So we'll talk about Ape Styles and his situation And it's not totally clear who's in the right, I'll be honest. I I would love to say this is Gigi's fault, but it may or may not be. So I will tell you what's going on with him, and you can make your own decision whether you think Gigi is in the right or Ape Styles is in the right. A a 1990s double bracelet winner at the World Series of Poker has been charged with sending white powder to New York gaming officials to scare them. The white powder does not appear that it was actually anything harmful, but it was meant to resemble something harmful. So I will tell you about the weird story about this double bracelet winner and his battle with gaming officials in New York, and that has led to his arrest. Not a really big name in poker, but nevertheless a double bracelet winner who does have $3 million in cashes over time. The Pinball Museum. Have you ever been to the Pinball Museum, Trader Risky? In Las Vegas, Where, is that the one in downtown? No, uh, this was uh, it's in, it was on Tropicana. Actually, it still is on Tropicana, but not for long. Uh, it's a little bit east of the Strip, and it has a lot of old pinball machines and old video games. And it's pretty low budget. It's it's a nonprofit. It is not meant to make money. You can tell it's like a guy running it because he really loves it. Uh, it has been in trouble over the past year because of COVID. Trouble meaning financial trouble, not legal trouble. And it looked like it was going to be gone. 
but it has been saved by over $200,000 in donations. So we're going to talk about the Pinball Museum. I'll tell you where the donations came from, and I will tell you about a place downtown that uh, Trey Daruski is probably thinking of called Insert Coins, which was kind of a ripoff of the Pinball Museum in a kind of a more commercialized way, and that failed, and I will tell you my opinions about that. I actually... Met Trader Ruski there. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, that's, that's a, when I think I first met you and Brandon. Yeah, Trader Ruski showed up to a party we had at Insert Coins, and uh, he brought some hats for a website that we used to run called Donk Down, which is no longer. The Vegas Golden Knights have something that's no longer. They have cut ties with a controversial tout service. A tout service is a sports betting. Uh, pick service where they tell you uh, what games to bet on and the Vegas Golden Knights the, the NHL team they have there in Vegas actually made a partnership with them not understanding what they were doing so I'll tell you about that interesting story Alan Kessler who has been listening to the show as of late he asked me to do a segment on a picture that he acquired of the Prime Social Club which is a poker room in Houston Texas and it looks pretty COVID unsafe there. So we're going to talk about that picture. And he wanted me to comment on it and tell everyone what I think of that picture. And so we will discuss the Prime Social Club and its uh, lack of social distancing. Should be the Prime uh, COVID Club, actually. but uh, Or the Prime Lack of Social Distancing Club. But anyway, we're, we're going to talk about that. And I will give you my opinion on the matter. Then we have some coronavirus news topics, as always. And then finally, we're going to have the Jew tip of the week. We don't have that every week, but we do have it this week. And that is about reducing or eliminating medical bills. I don't mean before you get them. I mean, when you have gotten a medical bill in the mail, do not just pay it. Do not just pay it. There are many ways to reduce the amount you owe or to eliminate the amount you owe and actually make it to where you owe nothing. So I'm going to give you some tips. I will tell you about an experience that I am going through right now involving the billing for my colonoscopy, and I'll explain why I'm fighting that out. And I guarantee at some point, if you're in the U.S., and you have, especially if you have a PPO, you're going to go through this too, and already have, most likely, at several points in your life. But there are ways that you can utilize to uh, save money. And I will explain that as our final topic, which hopefully I'll have the energy to do. Because as I mentioned, I got up early today and hopefully we'll have the energy to get all the way through the show. Free roll started 12 minutes ago. You still have uh, 13 minutes left to get in and we will get going here. So let's talk right away about the Venmo hack because, uh, This is getting some discussion on Twitter, but not nearly enough. This is something very disturbing. We talked about it already in November, and apparently it's not stopping. Apparently they are still targeting big-name poker pros. And you may say, okay, well, that kind of sucks, but I'm not a big-name poker pro, so who cares? Like I, I don't think anybody listening to this show is likely to be targeted. Uh, that's just my guess. I mean, when I say big-name poker pros, I mean ones who are really, really well-known. And I will give you a list of these people. So the first two that we heard about in November were Daniel Negreanu and Eric Seidel. 
Then we also heard Vanessa Selbst. Uh, she came forward and said she was hit too. Then they also got uh, Mike Matisau. And now we're hearing about Justin Bonomo and Oweis Ahmed. Now, maybe Oweis Ahmed isn't quite as well-known as the others. But as you see, they're, they're hitting names in poker who are known to be successful pros and ones that they're assuming will probably have money sitting in their Venmo account. Now, it's possible they're hitting others and just finding the account has nothing in it and moving on and the people never know. But what is disturbing here is that it looks like they're getting into these accounts without phishing or tricking these people into uh, letting their passwords be discovered. So when you hear about account hackings, you probably picture that there's someone running some sort of password generator and that after thousands or millions of tries, that eventually they get into the account. But that's not what's happening here. Or you may picture they're sending some sort of phishing email to these players and they're clicking on it and entering their account info and then the hackers are getting in. That is also not what is happening here. If that's what was happening, it would be less scary. It it would be bothersome. It would be disturbing. But you could say, okay, as long as I'm very careful, this is not going to happen to me. But that's not what's going on here. The people who are being targeted here are helpless to stop it. In fact, some of them saw the telltale signs, which I'll get to shortly, and attempted to stop it and failed because there really is no way to stop it if those who are doing it have a way to just get into your account at will and you cannot prevent it. The Any kind of system's security is only as strong as its back end. And what I mean by that is if there are other ways to get into people's accounts besides just the normal logging in with an email and password, then no matter what you do, such as two-factor authentication or a strong password or anything else, it's not going to help. It's kind of like uh, setting up a really, really good security system in your house and and fortifying your doors and, and everything you could possibly imagine to make your home secure, but then to leave a door open in your uh, the back of your house that anyone can open at any time is always unlocked and uh, and doesn't set off any alarms. That, that's pretty much what's happening on Venmo. Exactly how this is happening, I'm not sure, but we'll talk about some theories as to what is going on. But this is going on. Now, we talked about this back in November. I'm not going to go talk about all of that again, but I'm going to quickly review it because it's relevant to what is happening currently. On November 24th, Daniel Negranu tweeted, the dude who robbed my Venmo account has some balls, cleaned it out, then still tried to pay $43 for an Uber ride on my dime. You just stole 15 k dude, and you still need to get me for 43 more? Ain't you a piece of work? So this person really was pretty ballsy, because they actually took uh, an Uber using Daniel's uh, Venmo account after taking 15 k out of the account. So... What this tells us right here is this is probably someone in Vegas. Either there's someone visiting Vegas or someone who lives in Vegas. I'm guessing someone who lives in Vegas. That's already a clue. Eric Seidel tweeted on November 24th as well. In fact, he tweeted uh, nine hours earlier than Negranu did. Looks like my Venmo has been hacked and email connected to the account changed. I've tried calling, emailing, and contacting Venmo support with no response for the last hour. So those are the first two who were hit. 
Vanessa Selbst, on November 25th, the next day, said, I just got a really weird Venmo request from Dan Coleman for $6 for, quote, HH. Anyone have an experience like this? Is it related to the hacking that's going around? Daniel Negrani, you experienced anything similar? And then Daniel said, no, but I always get some random requests from names I wouldn't know. Vanessa had not been hacked yet, but she got a really weird request from Dan Coleman. It probably wasn't the real Dan Coleman, or maybe it was. Maybe they hacked his account, too. But from someone who claimed to be Dan Coleman, got a Venmo request. You can do that on Venmo. You can send someone a request for money. Doesn't mean they have to pay it, but you, you can send it to someone if you know they're on Venmo. So she said she got a weird request from Dan Coleman, who's a high-stakes poker pro, requesting $6 from her for the reason HH. So uh, she thinks that's really weird, and she got very concerned that perhaps this was uh, one step that was needed to get into her account. Well, turned out she was correct to suspect that, because that's exactly what was happening. So then she ended up getting hacked as well. So she said, shortly after receiving the weird Venmo request, my account was hacked. I now have no access to it. Please don't respond to any messages from there. Venmo support, please contact me. No idea how to get access back. Also, your security is a joke. I agree. It's one of the few times I agree with Vanessa, but I agree. Don't, don't they own, doesn't PayPal own them now? Yes, PayPal owns them now. It's not the same call center? I don't know. I haven't tried to call them, but I'm guessing not. I'm guessing it's the same ownership, a different call center, but uh, I I have never attempted to contact Venmo. Uh, then Vanessa said, this is again on November 25th, the fact that I saw my Venmo hack coming and still couldn't prevent it. She wrote, no, no 2FA, meaning uh, two-factor authentication. Seriously? is a security catastrophe. I have to recommend people stop using this service if they don't take security more seriously. And then, about half an hour after that, she wrote, Now my wife, who I transferred my money to, got her account hacked. So much for emptying my funds. Venmo, please contact me. This is a complete joke. Now, she made a mistake. She should have withdrawn to her bank account. She shouldn't have uh, transferred to her wife. Because if, if there's some hacker that can just get into your account at will, which it looked like she was suspecting and was true, then you don't transfer it to somebody else who they can bust into that account and steal the money, which is exactly what happened. So she transferred all of her money on Venmo over to her wife, and the hacker's like, okay, well, I'll just take your wife's account then. And they did, and they stole the money. So that's what happened in November. We talked about it on this show. Then in December, on December 29th, Mike Manisau wrote, Hey, Venmo, I got hacked for thousands and can't get a straight answer from anyone. Is this how you treat all your customers? How is it possible I can't speak to a human being when there's thousands of dollars stolen? So th- this is what I kept hearing from everybody. Daniel couldn't contact anybody. Vanessa couldn't contact anybody. Eric Seidel couldn't contact anybody. They, they all were stuck. And they all had thousands of dollars stolen from them. In some cases, uh, more than 10000 Well, it's still going on. So here's a series of tweets from Justin Bonomo. February 19th, he tweeted this out. Poker players, I highly recommend that you cash out your Venmo accounts now and close them immediately. Many poker player accounts have been hacked and it's a nightmare to even get support to respond to you. My first account, my account was first hacked in November. So I'm imagining he got hit along with uh, these other pros in late November. He didn't say late November, but I'm guessing it was around the same time. In January, I finally regained access to it. It was immediately hacked again because Venmo did not answer my questions or discuss my security concerns. 
It's been three months, and I haven't had a single conversation with a human who has actually read the words I've written. I have sent dozens and dozens of emails. On this recent batch, it took eight emails before I got even a single reply. And, of course, the person on on my account now is just giving me form responses rather than reading my actual words. I don't know what to do at this point. By the way, what he's saying there is not the person on his account like the hacker. He means like the person who's looking at his account at Venmo support. On two separate occasions, months apart, my account was being hacked in front of my eyes. I immediately emailed them to let them know, asking them to freeze my account. I didn't get a response for over a week, despite sending many messages. I'm just so frustrated. Here's a small taste of what I've gone through during the second time someone took all the money from my account. And it shows him sending a message. It looks like on Twitter, actually. But it's, it's, uh, it was on Twitter, to Venmo support. Uh, someone hacked my account over a week ago, January 24th. I've sent four emails to Venmo and haven't got a single response yet. Please help me with this. Here's my info. And then he gives info. And then they ignored it. <laughs> Three days later, he wrote, uh, Bump, please respond. And they still didn't respond. So he was showing this conversation on February 19th. And he showed, he sent them a message on February 1st. They read it. And then, uh, no response. Three days later, he wrote, bump, please respond. Fifteen days later, still no response. And that's when he tweeted that out. As far as they know, they have not answered him. He wrote, Venmo is now boldly refusing to discuss anything with me and telling me that my only action is to speak with local law enforcement. Okay, so I guess they did answer him. It didn't give him a good answer. They won't even give me basic information, such as where all of my money was sent. Let me stop right here before we go a little further with the rest of the tweets. There's not much left, but uh, let me stop right here. That is incredibly frustrating. I absolutely hate when that happens. I hate when you get victimized in some way through a company, like your account is hacked or your credit card is used to purchase merchandise uh, at, at a store or an online store, and you call up the company and you say, hey, give me the information. What happened? And they won't tell you. They won't tell you. Like you ask, uh, this isn't what happened to Justin, but like, let's say uh, someone uses uh, your credit card to order merchandise in an online store. So you call up the online store, you prove who you are, they have no doubt it's you, and you say, okay, where did they send this merchandise and what did they buy? And they won't tell you. And you go, wait a minute, this is supposed to be me. This is done on my credit card in my name. Of course I should be able to find this out. I have a right to know this. I'm not asking about third parties' purchases. I'm asking about purchases that were made in my name on my credit card, and you're not telling me. I've had these arguments before when my credit card info has been stolen, and and then I will call up the merchants to try to get info to try to figure out who did it. And when I say who did it, I don't mean like someone did it who I know. Just I was trying to. I, I would try to investigate this myself to either screw with them on radio or give it to the police or both. But uh, I'll run into these roadblocks where they won't cooperate, these companies. It's, it's insane. So same thing happening to Justin here. They told him, eh, just go to local law enforcement. We don't want to tell you. We're not going to tell you where the money was sent. You know all that money that disappeared? We're not telling you where it went. It's your money, but you don't have a right to know where it went. They're worried about privacy all of a sudden when they're meanwhile selling it to all the advertisers right. and everything else. <laughs> now all of a sudden they've got fucking yeah, they they, they want to protect the privacy of the of the hacker that that someone hacked exactly. Justin's account and sent his money. They sent his money away, and he has no right to know where his money went. I mean, that's insane. It's unreal. So, uh, of course, he's pissed. And uh, then he went on to tweet, "Venmo, I'd like to give you a chance to right this wrong. 
multiple others have had their funds stolen by the same scammer, and you've helped them retrieve their money. Well, that's interesting. I see I, that I haven't heard about. Why won't you help me retrieve mine? Do I really need to bring the law into this? And then Oweis Ahmed responded, my Venmo just got hacked. This is February 26th. This is a week later. So this is just yesterday. My Venmo just got hacked. Did they freeze your account so at least the funds in it weren't taken? And then Bonomo said back, no. I asked them to freeze my account literally within a minute of the strange request for $5. Ah, see, there's that strange request again. That's been brought up by a number of the victims that they receive this weird request for a very small amount of money. And then right after their, that, their account gets jacked. So that, that's not a coincidence. That's, that's obviously like a first step to make it happen. He wrote, I sent seven emails over the next 10 days before they finally even responded. Of course, by then, all the money in my account was gone. Oweis Ahmed wrote back, I got a strange $5 request as well. I asked them to freeze my account. I got an email an hour later saying they did. Hopefully, I can recover something soon. Let's discuss this. First of all, there's nothing you can do to stop this. If the hacker wants to get into your account, they can. And that's scary, but it's true. We, we see that here. Second, Venmo support is shit. Absolute shit. In general, I hate support which you cannot call, which kind of looks like is the case here. Because notice none of these people are saying they called support. They emailed support and they get ignored, or they get form letters back, or both. And then... When they finally do get someone like actually answering what they wrote, they get a very unsatisfying response like, go to law enforcement. That's really, really bad. How could there not be a, a process in Venmo to report that your account was breached and your money was stolen? How can you not be able to report that and then get information on where the money was sent and get the money back in some way? Especially because... Venmo does have some responsibility to keep their system secure. Now, it's not their responsibility if you are careless with your password or if you make a password like the word password and then someone gets in and steals your money. That's not their responsibility. They can try to stop it, but if the thief has already gotten away, they are not expected to reimburse you. However, if it is a flaw in their system where a hacker is able to access your account at will and nothing you can do to can stop it, no matter how much you see it coming, and even if you fully understand the signs that it's about to occur and you try as hard as you can to stop it and you can't, that is their fault at Venmo because the customer has done all he can to prevent it. This wasn't through customer carelessness. So Justin Bonomo was not careless. Oweis Ahmed was not careless. Daniel Negreanu, Eric Seidel, Vanessa Selfs, Mike Matisau. I assume none of these people were careless. None of these people picked a stupid password. None of these people got fished. They were hacked by a backdoor way into these accounts. Now, I don't know why it requires one of these requests to be sent. And this is a clue to me that this is a hacker rather than an insider. Now, it could be an insider who's also a hacker, someone who found out about this because they work on the inside and have been taking advantage of this to hit poker pros. But if it was someone who just had access to an admin panel to where they could just get into any account at will, then they wouldn't need to send this request. This request is being sent, it looks like, to all the victims. And 
if I had to guess, there's some kind of flaw in Venmo system where if you send a request, it opens up some sort of vulnerability. And from that point forward, you can basically go into that account and be that person. It's, it's a way almost like to switch into their account. How it's done, I don't know. But that, that has to be uh, the way it happens. Obviously, those two are connected. So Venmo needs to close that hole. And obviously, they have not closed it because yesterday, OAS Ahmed was hacked in this exact same way. So this first happened, to our knowledge, in late November. Now we are in late February. Late February is three months after late November. And Venmo has done nothing. It should not take this lo- that long to close this loophole, whatever it is. Whatever this vulnerability is, it's probably not something they can discover in 10 minutes. But if their security team got on this and looked at the trail of what was happening and followed the IPs and everything else, and they could figure out what this person was doing, they could probably figure out how the person's pulling it off and stop it. And even if they cannot figure out exactly how this person's doing it, they could put security measures in place which would prevent this. But in three months, they have done absolutely nothing. And that doesn't surprise me because it's a huge company and it's very bureaucratic and there's a lot of incompetence there. And a lot of people get screwed. People get screwed by PayPal. People get screwed by Venmo. So there is a vulnerability that allows the hacker to get into accounts at will. So what can you do? I said this back in November. I'm going to say it again. De-link all of your bank accounts and credit cards from from Venmo. And when I say de-link, I mean delete them. Go into your Venmo, if you have a Venmo. Go in there and delete any credit card, delete any bank account. If you have done that, then it is unlikely that you can be victimized. Why? Because they will not have a way to charge you. Now, if you have any money in your Venmo account, cash that out now. When I say now, I mean drop everything, go onto Venmo, and hit the button to cash out. Of course, you can't delete your bank info to do that, but uh, um, cash out, and as soon as the cash out hits, then delete your bank info. Do not leave money in your Venmo balance because that is harder to get back. The reason it is harder to get back, and I said this in November, is that when your money sits in Venmo, then it really becomes a matter between you and Venmo about getting that money back. If the money is stolen from your bank account or your credit card through Venmo, then your bank will get involved and may reimburse you, even if Venmo won't. But if it's just a Venmo balance, then your bank will not get involved. So definitely do not ever, ever, ever leave any kind of balance on Venmo. Always cash it out. It may seem like a pain in the ass, but always cash it out, even if it's small, or it may be grabbed from you. And you may say, well, come on, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, I'm not Daniel Negreanu. I'm not Justin Bonomo. They're not going to hit me. I'm a nobody. Well, what about Vanessa Self's wife? She got hit because she was associated with Vanessa. So if you have transferred anything with anyone on Venmo who might be a victim of this hacker, such as somebody in poker who's better known than you, then you may be a victim as well. And... Just the fact that this vulnerability exists and knowing that support will tell you basically nothing if this happens and won't do anything for you, 
that's a reason not to leave yourself open to this occurring, even if you think you're unlikely to be a victim. So I cannot stress enough, delete the banking info unless you need to cash out. If you do have money on Venmo, cash it out right now, and then delete your banking info after it's hit your bank. And if you do not have a balance, then delete your credit cards and delete your banking info. And if you ever need to send money on Venmo, then just you can add it right back. But do not, do not leave it on there, because you're asking for trouble. So, Trump, you said that they uh, emailed support, but I mean, they must be doing something else, right? They couldn't get a hold of anybody? What, what do you mean doing something else? Well, go on LinkedIn and find who the C- CISSPs are. P- I'd be blowing everybody up in the company. Well, I mean, I, see, I, yeah, I don't know what they're doing. People's info. I, I don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I don't know what they're doing. See, some people just, uh, they send messages to support, and then when they hit a brick wall, they kind of just get frustrated and throw up their hands. And I think that's kind of why they go up on Twitter and, and complain about it, which which is fine. That's the right thing to do. But uh, I have a feeling they're not pushing as far as what you're saying, which, which is a good idea, by the way. I'm just saying that I have a feeling they're not doing it. If they are, they haven't said they've been doing it. I'm not sure how Justin eventually reached somebody to deal with this, but it looks like that they were not very helpful. So this is uh, very bad. It's it's a huge mess. And let's look at uh, why this is happening. Like, why poker pros? Well, it's pretty obvious. Poker pros are ones who are most likely to have money sitting in their balance. Because just because somebody's rich doesn't mean they have a lot of money sitting in their Venmo balance. The average really rich person that has a Venmo account is going to have zero in his account. Why? Because they'll use Venmo to send from their payment method if they need it. So they'll they, they'll have a bank account or a credit card attached, but they're not going to sit with a Venmo balance because why? Why would they need that? In fact, most people who are wealthy, they're, they're not going to be receiving money on Venmo. They're going to be using it to send to businesses or other people. So just hitting someone you think is rich is not really going to work. What you need to hit if you're this hacker is someone who's likely to be holding a large balance in Venmo that would be very lucrative for you to steal. And who might that be? How about poker pros? How about high-stakes poker pros? How about well-known poker pros? How about poker pros that probably exchange money back and forth with other poker pros and therefore have a lot of money sitting in their Venmo? So poker pros are a perfect target for this. In fact, I cannot think of a better target for this as a group than poker pros. And whoever is doing this must know this. So it's someone who is in poker. Now, whoever is doing this, if they ever get caught, which I hope they do, but if they ever get caught, I doubt that this person's going to be a well-known name. It's going to be some nobody who's like just some poker fanboy who had the ability to do this. How he discovered this, I don't know. Who knows? He could have even fell upon it accidentally or semi-accidentally. I, I don't know. He could have just uh, been messing around with the system and found something. But whatever it is, it, it could be an insider who uh, works for Venmo or uh, someone who worked on their system. But it appears to be someone in Las Vegas, and they know poker. They know po- the poker community, and they realize that this is a way – to jack a lot of money. And so far, they have gotten away with it. And the reason they've gotten away with it is because uh, Venmo support has been so crappy and probably has not put a priority on this as far as catching the person. So I have a feeling after enough bitching back and forth 
they probably paid some of these other people, and that's probably why we haven't heard from them. That's probably why we're not hearing any more about this from, from Negranu or Selbst or, uh, or Seidel. Not that their silence has been bought, but you have much less motivation to compl- continue complaining on Twitter when things have been made, made right. And that's not a criticism because I have behaved the same way as well. When I have a dispute with a company and I want to shame them on Twitter, uh, after they have contacted me and made things right, I'm less inclined to go out there and continue bashing them, even if my entire experience is bad. That takes away a lot of the motivation when the problem is solved. So maybe they're eventually reimbursing these people after investigating and seeing that uh, it wasn't their fault. But the fact that this is still occurring three months later, and the fact that it is so hard to reach someone, even if you're watching the hack occur in real time and you can't stop it, is insane. It says very bad things about Venmo. So don't blame any of these people. It's not their fault. In fact, some of them attempted to stop it and were unable to. But it looks like this is a person in Vegas who's doing it, knows poker, and realizes this is a way to get money. Watch out if you use Venmo. And I'm sure we're going to hear more and more of these stories until Venmo closes the hole. And the bigger the company, the more likely this type of vulnerability is to sit and be exploited. Because that's the way bureaucracy is. A lot of times it's hard to get things done. A lot of times, as strange as it sounds, it's easier for them to just reimburse people tens of thousands of dollars than to drop everything and try to figure this out. Whereas a much smaller company would say, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? We, we've been breached? Someone can get into accounts at will and steal money? Okay, that's priority one, guys. Work on that right now. That's what I'd say if I'm the CEO. But this is a huge company. As Trudrusky mentioned, uh, they're also PayPal. So to them, this is small potatoes. But it's pretty bad. And it shows you how people will victimize this community if they think they can and they can get away with it and there's money in it. Someone wrote on the thread on a uh, poker fraud alert with Venmo, just go into settings and enable face ID or thumb ID and the problem is solved. See, I'm, I can't be sure about this, but I don't think so. I think that uh, whoever is getting in uh, can do everything at will. And for whatever it is, reason, it, it doesn't uh, demand these things. In fact, Vanessa said she was trying to put these things on, and uh, she was unable. To, uh, she wasn't able to find anything that could protect her from this. And I believe her. I have a lot of criticisms for Vanessa Selbst, and I stand by them. But she's not stupid. She's a smart person. So I, I believe that she did all she could to stop it, and failed because of Venmo's own flaws. And I think the same for Bonomo, who. Again, I have a lot of criticism for him, but I think he's also someone who's intelligent. So this is pretty uh, bothersome that this is happening. I have a feeling it's one person. I have a feeling whoever was in that Uber is the guy. It's obviously someone involved, but uh, the only way it's not the guy is if he just did this for a friend or gave it away. But I have a feeling it's the guy. I have a feeling the person's so brash that they don't give a crap. They've gotten away with it. They're just going to Keep doing it. Kind of reminds me of that uh, Bellagio bandit, that Michael Cohen guy. I'm not talking about the Trump lawyer, but the uh, the former Trump lawyer. I'm talking about the Bellagio robber who kept robbing the poker room. 
and then finally got shot dead when he shot at police when they happened to be there when he was on his way out. So he's gone. We won't be seeing any more of those robberies by Michael Cohen because he is now uh, in the ground. But he kept doing it over and over because he kept getting away with it. Finally, he got caught, but only because of a lucky circumstance that the police were there for something else. So I think the same thing is going to happen here, where whoever's going to do this, whoever is doing this will keep doing it. And they're probably getting a lot of money out of it. I think they're probably getting some thrill out of it, too. I think they're enjoying seeing themselves discussed out there. Pretty bad stuff here. Okay, so moving on, I'll give you an update about the Mike Possel defamation case that has been filed against me since uh, early October. As you guys probably know, I have attorney Eric Benzamokin, who is working on this case as my attorney. He is the one uh, providing my defense. We have filed an anti-slap motion against this defamation lawsuit, which basically seeks to have it dismissed, at least have me dismissed from it. And if that is successful, then Postle will owe me my attorney's fees. And that is because California and Nevada both have anti-slap statutes on the books allowing this sort of thing to be done. Not every state does. In fact, most states do not. But fortunately, California does. This was filed in Sacramento, California. So California law applies here. And this is basically what anti-slap is made for. Anti-slap is made to allow you to fairly quickly dismiss frivolous lawsuits that are filed for the purpose of chilling your free speech. And that's exactly what this is about. You can't just shut down someone's speech because you don't like what they're saying, because they're saying something about you that is unflattering. And that is definitely what is happening here. This is a frivolous lawsuit. And it's amazing that I have been dragged into this because I was not a major figure in this entire Postle situation. I was not in any of these games. I've never met Mike Postle. I've never spoken to Mike Postle. And I was not the one breaking the story. And I was not the one pushing this story in the initial days. By the time I even said anything about it, it was several days old. And still, somehow I have been dragged into this as if I have defamed Mike Fossil. It's absurd. I have defamed nobody. And it's just so dumb, Druff, because you have nothing but time on your hands. You love shit like this. You're going to be the biggest pain in the ass to him. Or have been already, you know, and it's like if he left you out of it, it I would have been anyway. Well, I, I think he probably wishes now that he did. But uh, yeah, I like as Eric said when he was on the show uh, a little while back, if we do win this anti-slap motion and he does owe attorney's fees, even if he is uncollectible initially, and we're going to try, but even if he's uncollectible initially, uh, this is going to be following him for the rest of his life until we get that yeah. money. I mean, we're, we're every, not going to say, oh, well, years, we, you can renew it. Yeah, we, we, yeah, right. Exactly. 10 years and going to be renewed. So uh, 
in case he thinks that just because he's uncollectible now, which he may or may not be, but I, I don't know if he is or not, but if he is uncollectible now, I'm not going to just throw up my hands and go, oh, well, oh, well, sucks I can't get that money. Oh, well, might as well forget about this. That's not the way I'm going to handle it. That's not the way Eric is going to handle it. We are going to be relentless about collecting any money that we are owed from this. Now, this hasn't happened yet. It has not been ruled in our favor, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. But yes, we we will relentlessly go after this because if if this is awarded to us, then it is owed to us, and it is very justified because this was frivolous, and I was dragged into this just uh, because he could do so, just uh, to punish me for getting involved in my commentary about it. And I think, I can't say this for sure, but I think probably my commentary about it in September is probably what pushed it over the edge to add me to it, because I was the last name on there. I think me and Phil Galfond are the last two names, and uh, not coincidentally, we were pretty vocal about the whole thing in September, and up then October 1st, uh, this thing drops, and I'm part of it, and Galfond's part of it, uh, along with a bunch of other people who were kind of more obvious that would be hit with something like this. And and I want to be clear, this is not justified against anybody, not against Veronica, not against Joey Ingram, not against Doug Polk, or uh, any of the others. The whole thing is frivolous. And it pisses me off, because this is not the way the court system should be used. But thank goodness we have the anti-slap legislation in California, which allows us to fight back when this sort of thing happened. And uh, and I'm glad I have attorney Eric Bedzimokin, who is uh, very, very good at uh, doing this sort of thing. And uh, you can see this by the motion that he filed. I have high hopes for the way this is going to play out. I actually wish this didn't happen. I'm not enjoying this, but uh, it has, and I'm going to handle it. I'm not going to back down. If we do prevail, then it's going to be pretty difficult to avoid for Mr. Postle if that happens. But anyway, that's what's happened up until now. Let me tell you the latest. So originally, our hearing date was February 10th. And you may say, well, why didn't I hear anything? That was 17 days ago. Well, because it got uh, delayed. So what happened was Mike Postle, as you remember, he doesn't have an attorney anymore. Uh, he originally had the law firm of uh, Stephen Lowe in Beverly Hills. And uh, then Stephen Lowe filed paperwork to be dismissed as counsel because they could not communicate with him. And uh, Eric on this show said that uh, usually when that happens, it's because the client hasn't paid. Uh, it did say in the filing that they weren't able to reach him for over a month, like at all. He just wasn't responding to them. So paid or unpaid, he just wasn't responding to them. So they they asked to be dismissed as counsel, and that dismissal was granted, as we've already told you back in January. That's That happened in mid-January that uh, Mike Postle's attorneys uh, got off the case and were granted a dismissal from the case. So Mike Postle, as far as I know, currently has no attorney. Now... Prior they could have made him stay on, too. Well, they could have made him stay like, What's that? Yeah, they could have made him stay on. Yeah, because it's like they take this bullshit lawsuit. They, you know, they, they throw all this paperwork at everybody. 
And now just to let them walk scot free is, you know, kind of bullshit, but. Yeah, well, it's, it's pretty standard that they let them do that. So, so anyway, he, before leaving, uh, his attorneys filed on his behalf a motion to delay the anti-slap hearing. And we actually did not oppose that for reasons I won't give out here because uh, we can't give that right now, but we chose not to oppose it. So it was granted. The judge didn't have to grant it, but the fact that we were not opposing it. Uh, and I think uh, Veronica's attorney, uh, Mark Randazza, I think he didn't oppose it either. So because Veronica also filed an anti-slap, as I've mentioned on previous shows. So uh, we didn't oppose it. I don't think Veronica's attorney did either. And it was granted the delay. So it went from uh, February 10th for us, and I forgot what her date originally was, to March 16th for her and March 18th for us. Now, we were slightly ahead of her before. Now we're slightly behind her. It doesn't really matter. Just that's the way it went. So March 18th was supposed to be the big day when we would find out uh, whether this was granted or not. Or I don't know if they rule on this right away, but that would be the day it would be heard. And then Veronica's would be two days earlier than ours. And so that's coming up pretty soon. However... And here's the new update. Mike Possel has filed paperwork asking for another delay. And that's insane. We're, we're not going to allow that. I will tell you now that while we did not oppose the first one, we're not going to let him delay it again. Or at least we're going to try to not allow him to del- delay it again. So Eric is going to file paperwork in opposition to this because he's had his delay we gave it to him and what was what was the reason what was the reason he just because of the council thing was that it yeah well it, it's it's really bizarre so uh, there's actually an article about this that was written by jennifer newell who's a longtime uh, media figure in poker and she, she's been doing a good job covering this whole thing but Jennifer Newell wrote this by uh, for I think uh, legalpokersites.us. She she does takes these like freelance jobs with various uh, websites that put poker news out there and have like affiliate stuff on there. So anyway, she wrote an article. She found this, which uh, was pretty impressive how quickly she found it because I know I didn't tell her, but uh, I think she just found this on her own. But uh, anyway, uh, I I wasn't sure whether we were going to announce this yet, but then. Once, uh, once this was put out there by Jennifer Newell, which is fine, uh, she's, uh, you know, she has the right to do that. This was filed in court, and she found it very quickly. But he cited a lot of bizarre th- reasons why he needs to uh, get this delayed. I know because I mean, Truff, the longer the the longer it stays open, I mean, we could probably say it's damaging your reputation more and more. They keep talking about it on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Yeah, well, it, it also needs to be done. It's one of these things like, uh, I, I just want this to be finished. I, I want to be out of this. I want to know I'm no longer a defendant in this lawsuit. I want to be finished with this and be owed the attorney's fees back. I, I don't want this dragging on. There's, there's, it's it's ridiculous. There's, it, you know, When he asked for the delay the first time, and we say, okay, fine, and then he gets it delayed, they grant it. 
the, you, you can't do a second delay. It's not justified here. Uh, you can, you can try, but it's not justified here. In in my right. well, and, it, and could that increase the damages that you're owed? You know, well, it it could because happens. because anti-slap uh, when you file that, uh, you get paid if 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 it is granted, then you will often be given the attorney's fees for everything up to and including that 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 motion being presented in court. So this this adding more work. Is this, this is this is adding more work for for Eric to have to do, and this runs up the bill, and uh, this that's another reason that this is obnoxious. Is it just uh, running up the attorney's fees for everybody? So I'm I'm looking at this right now. I have it in front of me uh, now. I, I got this. He actually had this emailed to Eric through a Sacramento attorney, which is kind of weird because. Uh, this was filed by Mike Possel representing himself. It was called the uh, improper, meaning uh, representing himself. So he does not have an attorney yet, but this was sent to Eric through a Sacramento attorney's office. It was an attorney I haven't heard of before. And uh, we don't know what his association is with this attorney. We don't know if uh, this is who he's going to hire eventually, or if it's just someone who's helping him and consulting with him, uh, or if it's some friend of his. I don't know, but but it's a name I have not What's seen. The name? Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to put that out right now. But uh, it, it's nothing significant. It's it's uh, some local attorney in the Sacramento area. But anyway. Uh, there's kind of strange reasons which are being stated for why this needs to be done. Said, uh, first of all, that the previous council excused themselves due to lack of experience in online defamation. So he's claiming he needs extra time because uh, the previous attorneys didn't have experience in online defamation and, and they excused themselves for that reason. Well, that's not true. That's not why they ex- excused themselves. Wow, I wonder if that's actionable. I mean, isn't that... Isn't that slanderous against the law firm? No, well, they may not have this experience. I don't know. I I had wondered that, too, when he chose them. But that's not the truth. That's not why they excused themselves. They didn't say, oh, we don't know about this. We're we're getting out of this. They they left because he wasn't responding to them. We know this because that was filed in court. Then he also said that he's he's seeking replacement counsel with experience in online defamation. And, uh, well, that's why he had this delay in the first place. That, that's the whole reason this was granted, so he could find counsel. You don't get to do a second delay. And then uh, there's also... Right, and that's what he was suing for to begin with, so why wouldn't he have had that to begin with? Yeah, that's also weird. Like, Why, why hire an attorney at all <laughs> no, without exactly. checking into that? <laughs> and and he, he, another weird thing is he claims that uh, he has hired some sort of firm which specializes in uh, first amendment issues but not attorneys like he like he, that he's uh, it says that uh, plaintiff has retained an organization specializing in internet defamation and first amendment issues to assist when new counsel is retained both will need time to confer and prepare so again he's not saying he hired some expert first amendment attorneys he's saying here he hired some organization which are not attorneys that specializes in internet defamation and that they're going to work with his new counsel who he hasn't hired yet. And he needs additional time for this. This is all a bunch of nonsense. So anyway, uh, we're, we're going to oppose this. And uh, he is filing this about both 
our anti-slap case and Veronica's. He's trying to have them both delayed. We were sent this motion by email by this uh, attorney that he is associated with in some way, but hasn't hired yet to our knowledge. He sent this to me and Veronica. Actually, he sent it not directly to us, but to our attorneys. So he sent it to Eric and, and to uh, Mark Randazza. This is dumb. Now, I don't know what Veronica is going to do. I, I meant to ask her. I meant to ask Veronica what she's going to do. But I have to imagine that she's going to oppose it as well. I have to imagine that uh, Mark Randazza is not going to put, put up with this either. So it's weird because in his own filings, he's stating things which are just absolutely not true. And I know they're not true because they contradict filings by his own previous attorneys. So I don't know what the hell he's doing here. I mean, I know he's trying to delay things, but I'm not sure what is going on. But I will let you know if this is successful. This is going to be ruled on fairly quickly because March 18th and March 16th are not very far away. If you remember, February has 28 days. So we are talking about... uh, We're 17 days away from March 16th and 19 days away from March 18th. That's not a very long time. So we will have an answer on this fairly soon. This has already been reported on, as I said, by Jennifer Newell. And this has been filed with the Superior Court of Sacramento. So I'm not giving away secret stuff here. But I wasn't sure if I was going to discuss it until we had... uh, submitted our response to it. But since Jennifer already wrote about it, I said, what the hell? I'll comment on this here. And uh, we'll see. Hopefully the court rules to keep everything on the dates that have been set. That's where that stands right now. And Jeff, do we know he's not collectible? No. No, we don't know. We'll, We'll find out if we have a judgment against him. I have no way to know because I I don't have access to his finances and I have not had any kind of official examination of them. I have my opinions about the matter. Uh, I have some guesses about the matter, but uh, we'll see if they end up being correct. If he does owe me anything, then we will find out pretty fast if he's collectible. So We shall see. Hopefully we get to play this out on March 18th and hopefully it goes my way. And then we will... Update you as it all occurs. All right, so moving on here. MGM National Harbor is a fairly new casino. It is in the D.C. area. And uh, an individual was playing there in August and had a pretty bad experience. So I wouldn't say this is his fault, but I will say that he was uh, reckless in the way he behaved after having a very good day there. And this is only coming out now. You may say, well, why are we talking about something that happened in August 2020? This is six months ago now. It's because it did not come out. This story was completely hidden until recently. And now it's all coming out in the news and is being exposed. So this is what happened. A guy played at MGM National Harbor... And uh, he won 60K. His name was uh, Nathaniel Nagbe. And he was from uh, Gaithersburg, uh, Maryland, which is in the D.C. area. And what happened was 
he was showing off the money that he had won, which, you know, you can see how that happens. The guy's very excited, the most money he's ever won in his life, and he's you know, walking with his head in the clouds because he just won 60K off the casino. I have to imagine he's not an advantage player. I think he's just a negative EV player who got lucky. He said, I won 60K that day. I showed it off to a few of my friends. I invited a few people there. I don't know what he's talking about there. Um, maybe his room. Now, he didn't give anyone the key to his room. He said, I only requested one key because I don't ever give anyone any key to my room. Now, the rest of the story is a little bit unclear, but I think I can figure out what happened. While he was down there showing off the 60000 he won, he met a girl who was all of a sudden very interested in him, which is always a bad sign. <laughs> when you're flashing money and some girl comes up and goes, Hey, what's up? Hey, want to party? Like, yeah, well, would you have wanted to party if I lost everything? Would you have wanted to party if I was broke? I don't think so. We already had a situation that occurred like this in the UK, where and now there, there was a much bigger age difference between the two. I, I don't know how old this guy is, but he's not that old from what I can see of his picture. But in the UK, there was uh, a guy in his 50s who uh, was also a, a, a poker pro, and he had won a bunch of money. And a 24-year-old former prostitute targeted him and pretended to be interested in him and pretended to be like his new girlfriend. And it was all to set him up so then she can let in her real boyfriend and her boyfriend's friend to come in and beat the guy up and steal all his money. So that's what they did. And she let the guys into his, his apartment where he had all the cash and uh, they got the money, but I guess they beat him a little bit too much and he died. They beat him to death. A very, very brutal story. They eventually arrested all three, and uh, the girl turned on her boyfriend and the boyfriend's friend, and uh, she insisted she didn't know that they were going to kill him. She said they just. She thought the plan was just robbery, and these guys took it too far, and she she didn't want any of that to happen. And yeah, I, I obviously don't feel sorry for her. She deserved. Uh, I, I thought she actually deserved life in prison for this. I don't care if she meant to. Uh, have the guy killed. The bottom line is she set him up and he was killed. <laughs> That's a, To me, that deserves at least life in prison. She didn't get life in prison. She got a number of years, but not as long as she should have. Uh, the, the guys, I think they got a lot longer, but whatever. Bottom line was, this guy should have seen it coming. This guy was a dude in his 50s and looked like he was in his 50s. And this girl in her mid-20s is all of a sudden like really into him. Like, he's got to know why. He may not have known that she was going to set him up to, to have have him beaten up and eventually killed, but uh, he had to know that there might have been something shady about this, that she found him there because he was a rich poker pro who was winning a bunch of money. So anyway, let's back to the story. So this guy, uh, Nathaniel Nagbe, was in his room, and uh, he said his door started to open. Now, that doesn't make much sense. I don't know if he uh, left the door open so people, like his friends, could come up and party with him because he mentioned something about having a party there or if he uh, opened it for her. This part isn't clear. She was with two dudes. And I think you know what happened next. 
the two dudes showed up, and it turned out that uh, this whole thing was a setup. She was not interested in him, like she had pretended, like she did you know, down at the casino. The two guys had a gun. They both had guns and said, uh, "Open up your safe," because he had stored his money that he won in the hotel safe in the room. So what they wanted from him was the combo to the safe. Now, I don't know what happened, but somehow they couldn't get it open. I don't know if he gave them a fake combo or what it was. But while they were struggling with the safe, he ran into the hallway. And he thought, okay, I got out of the room. I'm probably safe. Nope. The criminals followed him and shot at him. And one of them hit him. He was shot in the back. And the bullet went through his lower intestine. He said the pain was excruciating. It was unbearable. He then got went to the stairwell. I don't know why he didn't go to the elevator, but uh, maybe the stairwell was closer. Maybe he was able to quickly open that and get away there. It, it would seem like you wouldn't want to go to the stairwell because they could kill you there without anyone seeing. But uh, somehow he ended up in the stairwell and bleeding profusely, stumbled down 17 stories to get to the bottom. He said, I was in so much pain, it was like my body was prepping itself for death because I knew no one was coming to help me. But he got to the bottom, was still alive, got to the hotel valet and said, uh, call 911. So they called 911. The three suspects then walked out of the casinos, walked out of the casino and uh, they were described as uh, one male, approximately 20 years of age, all black clothing. He has a headscarf on and a backpack. And it turned out it was three people. It was two guys and a girl. So this happened back in August. And MGM National Harbor has tried very hard to suppress this story because it's a pretty bad story that criminals were hanging out there in the casino and targeted a guy who just won a bunch of money there and then uh, set up this whole thing where the girl found out what his hotel room was because she pretended like she wanted to go back and have sex with him, presumably. She said she was interested in him, but I think we know what uh, he thought was going to happen. And turned out the whole thing was uh, a robbery, and they were setting him up. So uh, they did eventually find two of the three people who did this. They found the girl, whose name was uh, Alicia McCoy, 25 years old, from Washington, D.C. She was charged with attempted first-degree murder and other related charges. They also arrested 20-year-old Barry Reed of uh, Temple Hills, Maryland. He was also charged with the same stuff. Uh, There was a third person they have not found yet who was involved with this, one of the other dudes. He said... I loved MGM so much, but it's like when this happened, it was like, you know, how could you do this to me? How could you let someone just come to my room? You see everyone on camera. Well, I mean, (laughs) if you told them where your room is and you either left the door open or you opened it for it because you thought you were going to get laid, then uh, that's how it happens. Now, I will say that uh, they probably, if these People hadn't gotten away yet when he got to the bottom and they somehow let them out. That was pretty bad. But uh, I don't really know if it's their fault at MGM because they can't watch everybody at every moment. They can't be sure that people uh, in the casino are not going to follow you back upstairs, especially if you give your room number out, which is what happened. 
They didn't. They didn't just stalk him. If if they stalked him upstairs, then he would have more of a claim that security should have been watching for this type of thing happening. But still, that's kind of hard to do. You can't watch everybody in the casino. But if he gave the room number to a girl who set him up, then I mean, it's not really the casino's fault. It sucks that this happened, and I hope these people never get out of prison, and I hope they catch the third person. WUSA which is a TV station in Maryland, Channel 9, they they were pressing this pretty hard. This had not been publicly reported, but uh, finally WUSA got wind of this and started asking questions, and finally they got some answers to the whole thing, and they got to interview the victim, who had since uh, recovered somewhat from his injuries, he did say that uh, the bullet has now uh, that caused damage, which still hasn't been fixed. That they uh, um, he's still in pain, and there's limitations as to what he can do right now, and he hasn't had uh, that fixed yet. That uh, surgeries he's had surgeries, but they haven't been able to fix it so far. So he may have permanent damage to his intestines from this, and he almost died. He was bleeding profusely and went down the stairs 17 stories to get help. So here's here's a uh, video from WUSA 9. I'm going to play about this. Daniel Nagby was staying at MGM National Harbor Casino Hotel last August. The Gaithersburg resident says he won big playing blackjack and wanted a party. I won in, uh, 60 grand that day. Um, I showed it off to a few of my friends. Um, I invited a few people there. But he was startled while inside his hotel room. He noticed the door started to open. I only request one key because I don't ever give anyone another key to my room. According to the police report, a woman he planned on meeting later at the casino floor came into his room, joined by two gunmen. One of the men had a um, the AR-15. The other one had, like um, I think it was a Glock. Nagby says he was pinned down and forced to give the hotel safe combo. But when the robbers couldn't open the safe, that's when Nagby said he ran into the hallway where he was shot through the lower intestine. Pain was excruciating. Um, It was unbearable. Bleeding, Nagby stumbled 17 stories down the stairwell. I was in so much pain, but it was like my body was preparing myself for death. You know what I mean? Because I knew no one was coming to help me. Nagby finally got to the hotel valet, who helped him call 911. 911 audio from that night describes how the three suspects walked out of the casino. One male, approximately 20 years of age, all black clothing. He had a headscarf on, and he's got a backpack. MGM Resorts tells WSA 9 in a statement, MGM National Harbor is aware of this incident and is fully cooperating with the proper Prince George's County authorities. The safety of our guests is our highest priority, and our security team works closely with law enforcement and security experts to provide a safe environment. MGM Resorts declined to say whether it increased security after the August shooting. Prince George's County State's Attorney charged Alicia McCoy with attempted first-degree murder. Her attorney did not respond to comment. Prosecutors also charged Barry Reed with attempted first-degree murder. Barry Reed had a preliminary hearing here at Prince George's County District Court Monday morning. Now, prosecutors say that Reed showed off items he stole from Negby on Instagram and also that it was all caught in MGM surveillance camera video. How stupid is a criminal? The guy steals all this money and 
jewelry and whatever else from uh, the victim, shoots him, and then has the nerve to go onto Instagram and show this stuff off. I mean, how stupid is this guy? I know he's only 20, but still. I mean, can you imagine being this dumb? Can you imagine? Like, so many criminals are also stupid. It's not like on TV where you, where these these criminal masterminds whose brilliant plans are only foiled by the more brilliant hero. These are morons. He goes on Instagram and shows off what he stole after shooting someone in the back and almost killing them. The defense attorney says you can't tell that Reed was in that video because everybody was wearing masks. A judge decided to hold Reed in jail pending a trial. I have not heard anything in public record about this whatsoever, and it would seem to be something someone might want to know before making a decision, whether they wanted to go there. I love the MGM so much, but it's like when this happened, it was like, you know, how, how could you do this to me? You know what I mean? How could you let someone just come to my room? The bullet that ripped through Nagby's lower intestine caused pain and life limitations multiple surgeries have not yet fixed. Police say there's still one gunman on the loose, and if you have any information, call their Crime Stoppers hotline. Reporting at MGM National Harbor Casino Resort, Nathan Baca, WUSA 9. I don't understand why they can't find this third gunman. Like, shouldn't they be able to investigate the lives of the two they arrested and figure out who they were hanging out with? It shouldn't be that tough at this point, once they got the first two. Probably friends on Instagram, I'd imagine. Right, right. <laughs> Check out all those Instagram friends, exactly. But like, how about cell phone records or anything else? Like, I, I don't think these geniuses did a lot to uh, suppress this third person's identity before committing the crime. I don't think this was a masterful plan. I think this is just a, a crime of opportunity. Maybe, maybe they went there looking to rob someone, and then this opportunity presented itself right in front of their faces. But w- whatever it was, I, I can't imagine it's hard to find this third person. That sounds like some uh, police incompetence to me. But this is yet another lesson that we must learn, that when you win at the casino, you keep a low profile. You don't flash the cash, you don't celebrate, you don't brag, you don't speak loudly about it, you keep quiet. And if strangers approach you and are interested in you all of a sudden, do not give them any information, watch out that you're not followed. I mean, at at first it seemed to me that the guy gave the info of where his room was voluntarily to this girl. Maybe he was followed, but as I said, there's holes in this story like, how does the door just open? He never explained that. How, how, how can your door just open? These doors lock on their own. I guess it's possible he didn't completely close the door. Maybe it it, it, it was a faulty door and didn't completely close and click. Uh, I've seen that happen before. But it's also possible he just let her in, and he just doesn't well, want to admit and, it. And drop also, just because when you said it and then hearing him say it again, you know, his whole statement, I never give anybody ever my key. It's like, who makes a statement like that unless he gave someone else's key? Yeah, it could have been that too. It could have been, you she, know, it could have been that she said that she'll come up and bang him and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm here, here's right. my key. Come on up to the room when you're ready. Well, <laughs> well, it's almost like he knows he fucked up by getting an extra key or something. So then he's like saying that out loud twice and like emphasizing that he has never, ever in his life giving anybody an extra key. Right. I mean, it just seemed a little shady. Yeah, there's something weird here. Like, I, I just, I, I guess it's possible they could have followed him up and watched where he went, but 
I have a feeling that wasn't it because they would have had to follow him up there, do so undetected, and get into his room by just pushing the door open, which usually you can't do in a hotel because the door locks behind you in these casino hotels. It's this isn't like uh, 1980 where you need like a where the door doesn't automatically lock. This this is a very standard feature of hotel rooms for decades that in casinos like this that. You close the door, it automatically locks. In fact... Beetles or stones? Uh, Beetles. What is this here? Chocolate. What's your How dare they run commercials on my show without my permission? WUSA. Yeah, I, there's something missing from that story, but I, I still feel the guy... I feel bad for him. Like, I, I, he was a victim for sure. I don't think that part is a lie. I think that he was set up. I think that this was what's known as a honey trap. And this girl feigned interest in him to get access to his room and then these two dudes she was with pulled guns and said open the safe up and he tried to run off and they shot him in the back and these people are pieces of shit and need to be out of society for life after doing something like that including this girl i don't care if she's not the one who pulled the trigger she set him up just like that one in the uk by the way i know mug shots are not that flattering, but there's a picture of this girl. If you can go to Vegas Casino Talk, my other site, VegasCasinoTalk.com, and go to the Eastern U.S. and non-U.S. casinos section and take a look at the pictures of those involved here. And uh, this girl is not very attractive. <laughs> so, this guy, if he's going to get tricked by a girl in the casino looking to rob him, he's got to raise his standards a bit. At least, at least be tricked by pretty girls. This girl wasn't even pretty. At least the one in the, in the UK was pretty. This this one was not. But uh, either way, they're both pieces of shit criminals and uh, deserve harsh consequences for something like this. But this guy also kind of put a target on his own back. Okay, Trap, but if she wasn't worth like a $60,000 winner, what would you say? I haven't seen the picture yet, but what is she worth? No, oh, I, I, I don't even think a $600 winner. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe, like maybe a buffet comp. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe like if she came up to me and said, "Hey, hey, you know, I, I saw you just got a buffet comp because you complained about something. Would you, would you like to go to the buffet with me?" I go, "Uh, you know, I don't really find you very attractive, but eh, I don't feel like eating alone. Fine, come on in. I think that's about as far as I'd go. Should give you a handy under the table. Yeah, may, maybe I'd take that." Let's talk about uh, NBA Top Shot. I screwed this up, by the way. NBA Top Shot. I'll explain what happened. We have a listener to this show and also a forum user who goes by Willie McFML. And he's he's been around for a long time. And I, I talk to him privately sometimes. And on February 1st in the afternoon, he privately messaged me on Twitter and told me about NBA Top Shot and described briefly what it was and asked me if I was into it. I said, I haven't heard of this before. And so he told me it's it's pretty much like guaranteed money. The problem was that I was sleeping and I woke up briefly to go to the bathroom or something and uh, I checked my phone and there was a message from him. And then, you know, he can tell when I've read it. So I didn't want to appear to be rude and just you know, answer later, or I, I may forget to answer later. So I just typed in one word in response to that whole thing. Yeah, it, very unlike me. He he describes this like guaranteed money making opportunity, and 
I gave him a response saying, interesting. <laughs> that was it. I th- it, uh, interesting is all I said. And I dropped it. And I forgot it. I forgot. Like, I have a memory of this happening, but when I woke back up, I didn't think, oh, I better look into this Top Shot thing. I just totally forgot he even told me. So then, uh, I don't know, two to three weeks later, I started seeing Top Shot mentioned on Twitter. So, okay, I remembered that Willie had told me about it. And I'm like, oh, that's an th- opportunity to make money with something having to do with like video uh, trading cards or something. Maybe I should look into this, but I kept putting it off. I just, for some reason, I just wasn't uh, motivated to learn about it. So time passed, time passed. Well, finally, we get to this week, and everybody on Twitter is talking about Top Shot. When I say everybody, I mean like in poker Twitter, it's become a very big topic. Well, at that point, I've got to look into it, and then I realized I screwed up. I realized that I missed an opportunity. Now, we're not talking about like buying Bitcoin at $5 in 2011 opportunities, but uh, I'm still talking about uh, thousands of dollars I could have made here that I did not because I let this get by. But the good news for me and you is that it's not over. There's still some uh, possibilities to make money here with Top Shot, and that's why I'm doing this segment to tell you about it. And the good thing is the risk is really pretty low especially if you just do it in the most uh, conservative way. So before I uh, go any further, I will explain to you what NBA Top Shot is, because uh, if you haven't heard of it, you're probably scratching your head saying, what the hell is that? What, what does he mean, NBA Top Shot? So that's a good question. It's not obvious from the name. So the simplest way to explain what NBA Top Shot is it's I bet it's those digital cards. I'm just guessing. I, yeah, is it like those NFTs or what it's called. Well, it's it's. I'll tell you, they're they're actually video clips that are sort of similar to like baseball cards, except they're about the NBA, and they're video highlight clips from various times in the NBA that. Uh, you supposedly own. However, when I say you own them, you don't own the rights to them. Like if somebody uses that clip, you don't get paid for it. It's just kind of like a hobby thing. Like you, like uh, it, it's kind of like owning a baseball card. When you own a baseball card, yes. you don't own rights to that player. You just uh, it's just something you collect for fun. And and that's the way it started. And since uh, mid two thousand nineteen, when the whole thing began. People were were doing this, but not for an investment. They were just doing it because they enjoyed it. Now, you can trade it. You can sell it. These are transferable, and that's where the money can come in. But uh, no one really got that into this until January. And even then, it wasn't that well known yet. I'm talking about January 2021, about a, a year and a half after the whole thing started. And I heard about it on February 1st, but did nothing. So anyway, the way Top Shot works is that every so often they drop what's known as new packs. It's called a drop, actually. If you get in line to buy the packs, and when I say line, I don't mean a physical line. I mean you can get on a virtual line through the website, which is nbatopshot.com, and you need to create an account beforehand. So don't do it on the day that they're doing these drops. You have to do it beforehand. But provided you have an account then you get in this random queue with everybody else who wants to buy one of these packs. 
and then it'll give you a random place in line. It's not first come, first served. It's just uh, if you get in queue before the whole thing starts, then it assigns everybody a random place. And if your random place is low enough to where you get one of the packs that's being offered, then you have the opportunity to buy it. When it's your turn, it gives you like five minutes to actually purchase it. And you have to purchase it for real money, and it's anywhere from like between like nine dollars to two hundred something dollars. And I'll explain shortly why there's a difference there and how much these packs cost. Now, similar to baseball card packs, some of these packs have very rare highlight packages in them. And when I say rare, it's the ones they define as rare. Obviously, a highlight can't be rare. A highlight's a highlight. It happens once. But um, for the purpose of NBA Top Shot, they assign some of these as being rare and some of these as common. Common meaning that they sell a ton of these highlights to people. And therefore, they're less valuable. Again, similar to baseball cards. So if you get a rare one, then it has a much higher value. Some of these packs that they sell are common packs that will never have a rare item in them. However, they also sell some premium packs for more money that may or may not have rare clips in them. And if you're lucky enough to get a rare clip, then you can resell it for a tremendous amount of money, far more than you paid for the whole pack. And when I say far more, I mean way, way more. But even if you don't get a rare highlight in there, in one of these premium packs, you can sell the common players you get as part of these packs. You get like six highlights per pack. You can sell these, and once you've sold them all, you'll have made more money than the pack costs. So it's not only a free roll, but it's a guaranteed profit. You might make a little profit if you get all common players, and you might make a lot of profit if you're fortunate enough to get a rare player. Believe it or not, the most expensive highlight so far has sold for... One million dollars. Well, not quite, but close. Uh, 400-something thousand dollars it sold for, like 439 or something like that. Can you imagine? So you, you can sell these on the secondary market. That's how you sell them. And then you transfer the rights to whoever you sell them to. And that's how you make money. You get one of these packs, and then you sell whatever you get at a tremendous profit if you get a rare one. And if you get a common one, those go for some money too to where you can make more than you paid for it. You're not going to make big money from selling common ones, but you will get back what you paid and then some. Now, where there's a little bit of risk is if you buy some of these clips in the secondary market, if you don't wait for these packs, but instead you buy these highlights from other people who are selling them the ones who are selling it at a profit, with the hopes that these will go up in value even more. Kind of like buying Bitcoin now, saying, hey, you know, Bitcoin's worth 50000 per Bitcoin when it was worth $5 per Bitcoin in 2011, but I think it's going to go up to 75000 or 100000 per Bitcoin, so therefore I think it's still a good purchase. It's kind of along those same lines, that you, you could buy these things in the secondary market, but similar to Bitcoin, uh, the value for these could crash, and then you'll lose a lot of money. Whereas if you get one of these packs, these are cheap enough. As I said, they're ranging between like $9 and $200 or so to where you'll always be able to sell what you get out of those for a profit. You may say, okay, well, why not just always just get packs? Well, because it's not that easy because there's far more people looking to buy packs than are than packs being sold. 
Now, to show you where the opportunity was and really is no longer is that it was far easier to get these packs before when hardly anyone knew about NBA Top Shot. But now that there's a craze about this, there's a lot of competition to get these packs. So, for example, on Friday, they dropped a premium pack, and there were over 200,000 people who got in line to get it, and they were only giving away like 10,800 of them. So you had about a 5% chance to get one. Which isn't very good. That's that's fucking insane. Yeah. So, uh, and I think that was a ninety nine dollar pack. Uh, I didn't even have an account yet, so I couldn't even try. I, I I have an account tonight. I just made an account tonight on there, so I'm going to give the next one a go. But I'm expecting. I mean, it's if if they're doing that type of thing, because I'll tell you. Well, you heard about you know like the Travis Scott thing where he did a concert on uh, Fortnite. And made like two hundred and forty million, more than he would have got if he toured. You know, and and it's so it's just like um and and then one time my cousin dragged me to like this place where where they sell the Nikes. It was like in uh, Midtown somewhere, like off La Brea, but drop you wouldn't have believed it. There were fucking miles of people in line. So if you're telling me now they're doing this type of thing digitally with these cards because like these and what's the acronym is it like the nfts or something because i've been hearing about yeah that's that's something similar to this i, I don't know that much about right. it but uh that's that's another thing that's similar to this yes because that's supposed to be the next thing so i think that's the enabling technology like this it sounds like this is more just one vertical of the whole thing yeah, and this this by the way this is this has another uh, similarity to Bitcoin in that uh, the ownership of these is actually stored on a blockchain similar to Bitcoin. So they're they're right. saying they're saying well this look at that it's not going to be hacked it's it's very secure. So that's kind of a gimmick they have going with this. It wouldn't have to be stored on a blockchain, but this, that's how they're doing it here. And well, no, but that's that's how you know it's a one off. You know, my brother does uh, augmented reality art. You know, so. His art now, he can, you know, so now for digital art, I guess if it's in the, fuck, I forget to call something, if it's in the, if it's in the, um, blockchain, I think that secures it, doesn't it? I don't think it's like a gimmick. I think it shows that it's like a one, it's, it's a only thing, you know? Well, the thing is they, they release like tons of these packs, though. They release uh, 10,800 of these packs. Now, I think they're all different, these packs, but, I don't know how. Well, I don't know. If, if, but just like Opeachy or Tops would sell cards, right? I mean, isn't it just the same thing? But yeah. they're doing a restricted number. Yes. You can't just copy it. No, you can't copy it, no. So, I mean, yes. Now, speaking of copies, I will say that some of these highlights are available anyway on YouTube, unrelated to all this. So that's the funny thing is you're, you're owning a highlight that you can actually go over on YouTube and watch for free at any time. But, uh, of course, this is a different thing. The, the whole point is like like owning the highlight as, as part of NBA Top Shot rather than just being able to go watch a highlight. So it, you have to understand the thinking behind this whole thing, and you have to kind of understand the appeal and, and understand that it's also one of these things where if people assign a value to it, then it has value for the moment – but this can crash at any time. Of course, people always like to compare this to the tulip bulbs 
that happened in uh, in Denmark uh, hundreds of years ago, where similarly they were assigned a high value when really they're pretty worthless, and uh, people kept paying more and more for them until the whole thing crashed and uh, people were left broke over the whole thing. So there's always a tulip bulb comparison whenever one of these things happens. And we've seen a lot of this type of thing in 2021 already. And NBA Top Shot has is kind of the newest version of this. I'm not sure what all of a sudden made this uh, shoot up. It wasn't even because of the GameStop stuff, because uh, this started up before that. It just has really caught fire in February. So the reason it's gotten so popular is pretty obvious is from what I said before, that if you get one of these packs, it's guaranteed money. And people said, okay, well, why would I not want one? <laughs> if, I, if I can sell this for more than I buy it, if I can turn around immediately and sell it for a profit, why would I not do this? It doesn't take a genius to say, hey, let's get in on this. So that's why there was such a tremendous number of people. And I have to imagine the next drop is going to have even more people trying to get it. So, and are there easy? Are they easy to sell? Drop? Is there like, I mean, a Coinbase, I guess, or, or some type of exchange where you could easily sell it? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, uh, it's easy to sell, but it's not easy to cash out. Apparently, there's, uh, they have kind of a fail site that they take forever to verify you before they'll let you cash out your money, and uh, so there, there's some downsides to this. It's, it's not a shady company. Like it's assumed this is legit, and they have a licensed partnership with the NBA. It's just, it seems like they're not ready for all this. This is supposed to be kind of like a, just a little hobby that people who are really into the NBA could buy these clips and it's developed into something far bigger than they expected. And this has caused some problems. So like, for example, the premium pack they were dropping on February 25th, they weren't ready for it, and it was crashing their server, and the, the 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 craze was overtaxing their resources. So they had to delay the drop for another day to drop it on uh, February 26th, only to then have it to where uh, that had problems too. So who knows where this is going to go. The company doing this wasn't quite ready for this type of craze. And the question also is, does this have a future... Or is this going to die out pretty fast? Now, there are some who believe, including Willie himself, that this has more potential because eventually the Chinese might get in on this and, and other stuff like that. And this it might have kind of a, a second uh, run-up or maybe more than a second run-up, maybe a second, third, and fourth, and fifth run-up. Kind of like, like at Bitcoin, how long that's been running up. It's been running up for 10 years now. Even though it's gone down, it would go back up even more. That's how we're sitting at 50K right now. So there may be more opportunities, even if the entry to it is much tougher now because you can't uh, acquire these packs that easily anymore. There's also accusations that people are botting to get access to the, making a whole lot of accounts and uh, just having tons of different uh, accounts attempting to purchase these packs so one person is actually taking up thousands of spots there's been some it hasn't been proven but there's been some accusations that this is going on and again nba top shot wasn't ready for this so they didn't really think these things through the chinese nba fans 
some people are thinking, hey, there's a lot of them. NBA is very big in China. So if the Chinese start getting into this, that could really pump this up. So some people think that even buying it on the secondary market at this point is a good idea. But of course, that has some risk to it. But at the very least, if you don't want to risk that, go create an account on nbatopshot.com. It's free. You don't even have to enter much info. Right now, you have to use Google, actually, to make an account. You have to link it to your Google account, which I don't like doing. I actually linked it to kind of like a throwaway Google account I have, like Gmail. Uh, But, yeah, just make a Gmail. I, I don't like giving them access to a Gmail I use for other things, but just make kind of like a throwaway Gmail and make that your login to NBA Top Shot. Make an account and wait for the next drop. They'll email you eight hours or more in advance of when it's going to be. And then get in the line. And if you get one, great. It's free money. That's the most conservative way to do it. If you want to be more adventurous, you can buy some of these from others and hope they go up even more and then resell them. And if the theory about the Chinese fans eventually pushing this up further comes true, or just the fact that you believe the whole craze isn't over yet, that it's just getting started, and that it has a long way to go before it peaks, then you can try that too. However, some prices have fallen since they peaked. So it may it may have already had its first peak, and there may have to be some other factor that would pump this up again. But still, getting those packs, even though they are not free, you will make guaranteed money on the packs if you get one. So NBATopshot.com is where you sign up. And also, if you want to read a good article summarizing the whole thing, there is one from uh, SBNation.com, which I linked from the NBA Top Shot thread I created in the Flying Stupidity Forum on Poker Fraud Alert. So you can click on that if you want to see a good explanation of the whole thing. NBA Top Shot itself has kind of a tutorial about the whole thing, but it's not very good. It's very confusing. So like, I went over there to read about it. I'm like, I have no idea what they're trying to say here. Like The whole thing's really not easy to follow if you don't know about it already. It's one of these things like where they wrote it kind of as insiders who know it really well, and they weren't writing it for the average person who wasn't familiar with it, which is a big mistake. I would go to that SB Nation link. They explain it much better. I try to make this show the opposite of that, by the way. I always try to gear this show to everybody, not just to people who are really familiar with the gambling world and the poker world, but also to outsiders who uh, might want to learn about it. So I I try to make it to where everybody can appreciate it, even ones who are not experts in this community. But I I do know some other shows that don't do that. Now, maybe they don't want to do that, but I I hate just using terminology or discussing things that people may not have heard of and then just leaving them scratching their heads like what's going on. I always want people to be able to follow what's going on here. Anyway, sign up. It's really no risk at the moment. Try to get some packs. Are you signed up there yet, Trader Risky, or you had this is the first you've heard of it? No, I haven't heard about this NBA. I've just been hearing about those digital cards and how that's going to be the next thing. And my brother's starting to look at it for his art, but that's pretty much all I know. But they are saying it's going to be very hot and a lot of money to make. Although, yeah. you know, I got the idea it was more the infrastructure companies 
but I think all these verticals too, you know, cards and everything else. Yeah, something I want to also mention with NBA Top Shot is that people who did get on it like really early, the people who were just part of it before it was a craze at all, they collected a lot of this stuff. Some of them are sitting on millions of dollars of assets of NBA Top Shot, which is insane. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine you just join this thing, you start just collecting this stuff, and then you just find out one day in 2021, a year and a half later, it's worth millions? Imagine you just like collect a ton of it, and then you find out you're worth one hundred billion dollars. Crazy times we live in. Crazy times. Like think of Bitcoin. Think think of somebody who uh, it was of the very 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 early adopter of Bitcoin back when it was like pennies. They had like thirty thousand Bitcoin, and they just sat on it. What that would be worth now at fifty k each? Isn't that crazy? Amazing. Be worth uh, the the over a billion dollars, one point five billion. Let's hope it wasn't Doctor Evil that got it. <laughs> okay, so uh, I want to talk about full tilt poker and the final fate. What happened to it? Because uh, full tilt, it met its first version of an end ten years ago. Almost exactly 10 years ago, April 15th, 2011, when it went down because they had spent all of our money and then the government busted them for all of their uh, money laundering and everything else they were doing to operate illegally. Like they busted Poker Stars and UB, but unlike Poker Stars, UB and Full Tilt had no money left either. That was the second problem. That was the bigger problem, in fact. So Full Tilt continued to operate, pretending they had money, trying to uh, make enough money back from the non-U.S. players to cover up what had happened, and then it eventually came out, and then uh, they were down, and then uh, Poker Stars bought them, and uh, then they were operating again, and uh, it never regained what it once was. Full Tilt after Black Friday, after April 15, 2011, really was a shell of its former self, even when it came back. And people weren't all that interested in it, even when poker stores bought it and when you could trust the ownership of it once again. So the brand, which was once a very beloved brand, and the software was excellent, so they didn't want to just throw that away. The way poker stores got it, of course, was that... Uh, the owners of Full Tilt surrendered it to the U.S. government as part of a settlement, basically, so the owners of Full Tilt didn't go to prison. And then the government went and turned around and sold it to Poker Stars, partially to make money for itself and partially to raise money to pay back the players that had been screwed by Full Tilt. And that's how people got paid back, who got screwed by Full Tilt, that had spent all the money on deposit. So PokerStars was in control of it, and for a while it ran as a separate site. Then they did away with that and combined it with PokerStars and made it just a skin into PokerStars. So you could play on Full Tilt using the Full Tilt software, but you'd actually be playing at PokerStars tables. So that has it's been that way for quite some time. I think like five years, or maybe... Three, three to five years. I didn't. I forgot exactly when it happened, but it was at least a few years ago. And finally, 
poker stars just decided they're done. They just decided, like, what's the point? I mean, yeah, yeah, Full Tilt has its fans, but is it really worth keeping this up? Is it really worth maintaining this software just to be a skin of poker stars? Like, are these players really going to leave if we say, hey, you got to move over to poker stars? And, of course, the answer is probably no. The, the answer probably wasn't worth keeping alive. So, Full Tilt has finally closed February 25th, 2021. Full Tilt completely shut down and those players were directed to go back to Poker Stars. That means the Full Tilt uh, brand lasted from uh, 04, I believe, through 2021, 17 years. Full Tilt, if you remember, if you were around in those days, was started by a big group of poker pros. They got together, they pulled their money, and they decided they are going to start an online poker site together. And it was quite successful. They did a pretty good job with it, but in the early days, I was already seeing signs of things I didn't like. I was seeing some kind of weird behavior. I saw the customer service was kind of difficult and acted strange at times. I just didn't ever 100% trust them. I'm not going to say I predicted what was going to happen, because I didn't, but I always thought that a scandal there wouldn't completely shock me. And indeed, they had a bigger scandal than I would have ever imagined. And I think this is where Negreanu needs to get props, because he basically, right? I mean, he kind of before they even, when they all got together, he said, forget it. He's staying away from that crowd. Yeah. And uh, well, right. and part of that was because he didn't like uh, Howard Letterer because Howard was is the brother of Annie, who he always hated. So by extension, well, he, he yeah. But I think wasn't it like character and integrity? I mean, right? I mean, I think that was the issue, and that's probably why they want to get into business too. I mean, in addition, just maybe not personally liking him, don't you think? I don't know. It's it's hard to tell. It, it could be both. It could be that he just didn't like Howard's character and didn't like him, so he's like stayed away from the whole thing. But uh, it's kind of the end of an era. I I think most of us have seen Full Tilt as dead for quite some time, even people not in the U.S., like if it's just a skin of poker stars, who really cares? But there is something to be said. It it was the second biggest poker site of all time at at the time of the poker boom, only a little bit behind poker stars. And to have that actually be completely 100% shut down to where it's just never going to exist again, it, it kind of just looks like they're just going to put this away and it's done. They're not they're not selling it to anybody else. It's not going to come back in a different form. They're just forever retiring the Full Tilt brand and the software, which is too bad because it's good software. It's better than the software you see at the U.S. sites today. It's better than ACR, better than Bovada. Like it's a, uh, the software we're using today on these U.S. facing sites is shit, including the software on uh, WSB.com. I mean, Full Tilt, their software 10, 15 years ago blows that away, which is sad. So it does kind of suck that that good software is being uh, just kind of put away, but the brand, the software, it's, it's all gone. And that's as of February 25th of this year. So that's that. And you know what? This could have been an enduring brand if it wasn't mismanaged, if they had someone other than Ray Batar running the show. And if they didn't have others who enabled Ray to uh, do what he wanted, people like Howard and Chris Ferguson and Ray First, 
if they ran this well, this could have endured and been a very relevant site that was not just an extension of PokerStars. Full Tilt, actually, uh, I almost was patched by them in 2007. There was going to be a televised final table. In fact, there was a televised final table of the 1K No Limit with Rebuys event at the World Series. And I was down to the final 10 people. And it was all in me against a guy from Hawaii, an amateur from Hawaii, he had ace-king suited, I had pocket-queens, he was in the small, I was in the big. We had almost identical stacks. We were not super short, but we were the two shortest at the table. But of course, that hand plays itself. We're going to get it all in pre-flop, which we did. And uh, flop safe, turn safe, bam, the ace of spades on the river. Just like in Barry Greenstein's book. Ace on the river, actual ace of spades, like on the cover of his book. And... Uh, that was that. So I was knocked out, and he went on to the final table, and I did not. Had he lost the hand, he wouldn't have busted, but he would have been so crippled that he would have been out next almost certainly. So Full Tilt had agreed that they were going to give me $15,000 to wear their patch at the final table. I did not make the final table. So I did not get to wear the patch and did not get $15,000. Full Tilt also was in a war with Poker Stars in 2010. Of course, this is the final year before Black Friday. 2010, during the main event, they were trying to rapidly patch up as many people as they could deep in the main event that year. Well, that was one of two years where I went deep in the main, the other being 2019. But 2010 was my first time going deep in the main, and they and Poker Stars were patching people up. Full Tilt was breaking the rules. Surprise, surprise. The WSP had established rules that when you patch someone up, that they have to wait until the next day to start wearing the patch. And this was intended to prevent them from just grabbing people who suddenly rocket to the chip lead uh, to, to make them hesitate a bit before they do that and uh, to have to make them wait a full day. But uh, Full Tilt was just not doing that. They would just put the patches on people right then and have them wear them. Whereas Poker Stars, which was owned by Issa Scheinberg at the time, they followed the rules. But uh, Full Tilt was getting so aggressive with patching people up that uh, Poker Stars realized they had to do this as well, or otherwise Full Tilt was going to swallow up all the remaining players who weren't already patched. By the dinner break of day six, there were only two players in the entire field who had refused a patch that were open to taking one. One of them was me, and one of them was Jason Senti. Senti, I don't know how you pronounce his name. Anyway, Jason went on to make the final table and finished ninth. I did not get to the final table. I was uh, 88th place. But we both were signed on that dinner break to Poker Stars for a much better deal than what everybody else had gotten. Because Poker Stars was basically offering uh, only money if you made the TV table. And otherwise, if you don't make the TV table, you had to wear their patch anyway, starting the next day. And if you never made it onto TV, then you would be receiving... Zero point zero. But I said, nope, I do not wear anybody's patch for free. And so did uh, Jason Senti. So both of us said, no way. 
And then because Full Tilt was so aggressively patching everybody, because me and Jason were the only two left, uh, PokerStars is much more willing to make a better deal. So I was given 7500 to wear the patch starting the next day. And then I came back from dinner, and shortly after dinner, I busted. <laughs> so I never wore that patch, but I got paid because that was in my contract. That was a good deal. $7,500 not to wear a patch. Though Jason got a better deal. He got even more money because he made it to ninth, and I did not. Full tilt, uh, I guess I never ended up wearing their patch. I had my chances, <laughs> but it didn't happen. But given what ended up happening with them, I'm glad I did not. Well, maybe I'm not. I, I think I would have taken the 15K back then in 07. I wouldn't have taken the 15K after they screwed everybody, but uh, like in hindsight, I, I would have like taken 15K to wear a patch on the final table from them before they had done anything wrong. I mean, I know I would have. I agreed to it. But uh, like, if I had done that, I wouldn't be ashamed now because I didn't know yet what was coming. Okay, speaking of somebody who didn't know what was coming, Norman Chad, if you remember, had the coronavirus in uh, August of 2020. Norman Chad is not a young man. Of course, you probably know him as one of the longtime commentators of the World Series of Poker on TV. Norman Chad... He, he was very mean and nasty to me when I appeared on TV in 2005 playing Limit Hold'em at a World Series event, finishing third. And he said a lot of bad things about me. But I was kind of asking for it. So over the years, I kind of softened on him and said, okay, you know, Norm is just doing his job. However, I was still a little bit pissed because, like, I heard him on a few podcasts where he talked crap about me, where there he didn't have to do it. Like, it's one thing to do it on TV where he's paid to do it. It's another thing to go on a podcast and they'll say some unflattering things about me. So I I wasn't a big fan of his for a while. And uh, then over time, I softened on him. Just, uh, you know, time heals all wounds. And I thought, okay, well, I did kind of act out at that final table and uh, it's his job to comment on it and he's going to comment later on it on a podcast I mean it's understandable like I I kind of realized that he didn't do anything bad to me so I kind of got over it and I didn't have any animosity towards him but I, I always wondered what he thought about me until 2019 and I've told the story before when he came up to a, a table I was at at the main event, and it happened that a good friend of his, some recreational player from the South, I don't know how he knew him, but he was a good friend of Norman's, uh, was sitting right next to me. So he went up to talk to that guy, and I didn't say anything to Norman. And me and him had never had a direct conversation. But then he looks down and sees me and says, Oh, Todd, I didn't see you were here. Oh, oh hi. How are you doing? And I'm like, you know, that's kind of awkward. <laughs> Does he remember all the shit he talked about me? And then, and then he stopped the table and told everybody that they need more people in poker like me, that I do so many good things for the community with calling out scammers and, and bad companies that screw poker players. And that, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's really great to have people like me in the game. And he, he like stopped the table to listen about this and, and told them 
all about me. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe uh, all the really nice things he was saying about me. And I said, oh, okay, well, if he's going to do that, <laughs> that really makes me uh, forget about anything that he said about me in the past that wasn't very nice. So from that point forward, I thought a lot better of him. As I said, I'd already gotten over it, but now I thought very positively now that he did that. And it seemed very sincere, too. Then he got the coronavirus in August. And I was a little concerned for him because he's not a young guy. I don't know if he had any existing health issues. But still, even if you're healthy and you're over 60, you don't want to get the coronavirus. So he did some videos talking about it. And the good news was it appeared that he wasn't uh, getting really bad. You could tell he was tired. You could tell he didn't feel good. He was kind of lying down as he did the videos and didn't look that energetic. But he didn't look like he was on death's door or someone about to be admitted to the hospital. He looked like just someone who was sick, who wasn't enjoying life, but was going to get over it. And I was hoping for his sake that he was going to get over it and not have any kind of long-lasting or permanent damage from it. And that is often the overlooked problem with COVID for those who are between like 45 and 65, where, yes, there is a chance you're going to die from it, but the chance is fairly low. It's not so low that you don't have to worry about it, but it's uh, it's fairly low where if you get COVID in that age group, you're very, very likely to survive. But uh, what really isn't that unusual is to get major problems that are never going to go away, like lung damage. And that's not discussed very much because a lot of times these people are never hospitalized. A lot of the people who end up with the permanent damage from COVID are between 45 and 65 and are never hospitalized. They just have a pretty bad bout with it, but they're at home. It never quite gets to the level they need to go to the hospital. And then they have effects of it that never go away. These are called COVID long haulers. And the reason it's called long hauling is because it's like an illness that's never completely gone. You have effects of it forever, or at least for a very long time. Now, maybe some of these will eventually heal. Maybe there will be treatments for this one day. Because COVID is so new, we don't know these things. But they may actually be permanent. So there are people who have lung damage, people I know personally that had COVID that have lung damage, and they may have it for the rest of their lives. And it's sad. And that is actually what worries me the most about catching COVID. Because while death is the worst consequence of it, and the thing to fear the most as far as... uh, the very worst thing that can happen. At least you can say when you get COVID at an age like mine, okay, I'm probably not going to die from this. Yeah, I've got a chance of it, but it's uh, the overwhelming chances I'm not going to die from this. In fact, the overwhelming chances I'm not going to end up in the hospital from this. But there is a fair chance that you're going to end up with permanent damage from it at this age. Whereas when you're 25, you're not likely to get any permanent damage at all, or any kind of hospitalization or death or any of that. You're just gonna, you'll be sick and then you'll get over it and it'll be fine. So, huge difference. So, back to Norm. He is 
62 years old. You know, I, I hope he's okay. Well, he's not. Now, it doesn't appear he's dying. It doesn't appear that uh, his life is in danger or that this is necessarily going to take years off his life. But he has suffered enough long-term COVID damage to where he is not going to be doing the commentating on the 2020 main event final table. And keep in mind, that is something that is taped. So it's not like he has to go into a studio and do this all live for hours upon hours upon hours. They record this with footage that has already been taped and they can take make several takes at it if he has a problem. But despite that, he was not able to do it this year. And this was announced by Lon McCarron that due to long-haul issues from COVID, that Norman Chad will not be seen on the upcoming broadcast of the World Series of Poker final table. We're talking about the most recent uh, late 2020 version. It turns out that he is being replaced by someone who you wouldn't really expect unless you've already heard the story. And that is Jamie Kerstetter is going to be doing it in his place. And is Mike Postle's friend still going to be the other guy? Oh, yeah. Uh, Lon McCarron? Well, he's kind of a, a friend of Stone's, not really Mike Postle, but yes, he's still going to be there. So it's going to be Lon and, uh, and Jamie. Jamie's not that surprising of a choice because she's friends with Norman Chad. And in fact, if you remember, Norman Chad had a recent feud with Daniel Negreanu where they talked some shit back and forth. And this is because uh, Norman is friends with Jamie, who's had some unflattering words for Daniel herself. So the like with Jamie and Norm being friends and with Jamie not liking Daniel, then you can see how Norman and Daniel also don't get along now. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way, but that's the way it went. But anyway, presumably, I don't know how this happened for sure, but my guess is that when Norman couldn't do it, he said, hey, Jamie Kerstetter would really like to try, and I think she'd do a good job. I recommend her. And they said, okay, and they had her do it. So I guess we'll have to see how she does. She does have that show that she does on uh, that, that video show he, she does for Phil Galfon's site, that run at once show. So, I mean, she does a decent job there. I know that's different than poker commentating, but we'll see. I mean, at least we see she has some kind of broadcasting experience in recent times having to do with poker. So she is the one taking over for Norman Chad for the moment. And I think I think she'll be good because I mean Norman's kind of now. I don't think he'll be tough to replace. Well, but th- he's kind of like the the comedy relief, though. He's kind of like the the guy who who makes uh, entertaining quips during the show. And I, I don't know if uh, Jamie is going to even attempt to do that, or if she's going to bring her own style to it. I'm not I'm not sure what she's going to do, but we'll see. It's going to be on fairly soon. I, I don't have the exact date in front of me, but it's going to be on pretty soon. And that's why Lon McCarron wanted everybody to know this that instead of Norman Chad is going to be Jamie there, and the reason is because of the effects of COVID. So this is making me wonder, what are these effects of COVID? It's not like we're asking Norman Chad to run a marathon. He has to do 
the commentating for the World Series of Poker main event from a taped stream. So what has happened to him since August to where he can't do that? Now, if you're thinking lung damage, possibly, but that's not usually how the lung damage shows up. When you hear about lung damage from COVID, you picture someone just like sitting in a chair having an incredibly difficult time breathing. But that's not really how it is. The lung damage that comes from COVID makes it difficult for you to do anything even mildly strenuous. So uh, exercising becomes much, much more difficult. Uh, Going up the stairs can even be more difficult. It's not that you can't do it, but you get winded after doing it. So it's just that you can't take a deep breath easily. You can't exercise very well anymore. Things like that. But just sitting around in your chair, it's going to feel pretty similar to normal. But you will notice it several times a day when you do anything even mildly uh, strenuous. Because as I said, like even going up the stairs is mildly strenuous. So that's where you feel the lung damage. But I'm not sure how that translates to poker commentary. Maybe the talking does it. I don't know. I guess I guess that's another reason I should avoid it. Otherwise, that might be the end of this show. Whatever it is, it actually kept Norman from being able to do the World Series of Poker broadcast this year. That's not a good sign. And what's also not a good sign is the fact that this may never get better. Some of these things are believed to be permanent. And there's a number of these... Uh, COVID long-haul effects that people have talked about. Some of them are very weird. In fact, some of them even have to do with the symptoms that you get during COVID. Like, there's some people who never got their smell or taste back, which sounds really awful. But there's a lot of different COVID long-haul effects. Again, I don't know which one he got. On WebMD, an article dated uh, February 19th of this year, It says a third of COVID survivors have long-haul symptoms, which is much more than I thought. It said that uh, 33% of them who were never sick enough to be hospitalized, presumably that was Norman's case, complain of symptoms like fatigue, loss of smell or taste, and brain fog. I've heard about the brain fog. I've heard about people who have COVID that their brain never really comes back and they're just not sharp anymore. They they, They have trouble coming up with things they're trying to think about. And I know what that feels like. That, that, that happened to me two and a half years ago when I had my uh, severe anxiety and depression issues. I got a brain fog along with it too. However, once I completely knocked out the depression 100%, then the brain fog lifted 100% as well. So I don't have that anymore. But I, it was weird. Like, I would be trying to think of something and I wouldn't be able to come up with it. Sometimes it can be a word I want to say. It can be a, a name I'm trying to think of. It can be uh, a memory I'm trying to to recall. It's just my brain kind of was getting stuck thinking about things. I could speak and act normally, but when it would come to like thinking of things, I, I would be stuck a lot of the time, and that didn't used to happen to me. And it hasn't happened since. So I know what it feels like, but that would really suck to have this for life. Uh, now, that's probably not what's happening to Norman either, but maybe it is. Maybe, maybe if he has enough of a brain fog, it's preventing him from doing the commentating well. By the way, the average age of these long haulers is 48. 
exactly the age I am. Well, I'm about to not be it anymore, but I'm at the moment 48. Very, very close to not being 48 anymore. But uh, I'm at the moment 48. Also, the long haulers are usually not people who had serious health problems that would have made them likely a high COVID risk. Just kind of normal people in middle age. If 33% have this, and if you count out the young people who usually don't get this, then that really makes it look like uh, this is much higher. Okay, so actually, this is broken down by age. This is interesting. They're claiming 27% between 18 and 39 said they have it. So I'd like to see that broken down even more. Like, I want to see like 18 to 25, 25 to 30, and 30 to 39. Uh, 27% 18 to 39 have uh, long-haul symptoms, 30% between 40 and 64, and then 43% 65 and older. They said the likelihood of this appearing appears to be age-related with older patients more likely to report ongoing health effects after the initial infection. It's funny, I always thought that long haulers were kind of more middle age and just before senior. I thought the older people were kind of either dying of this or, or not getting the long haul symptoms, but I guess they're getting it even worse. I never really looked into the long haul stuff, but uh, I know of people who have it. I know of people who've told me about the breathing problems they've had. That's that's the that's one of the best known ones, the the lung damage. But I know the brain fog one is pretty big, too. Uh, it says the brain fog is particularly debilitating to folks who do a lot of intellectual work and often work at home via computer. They can't focus on the computer for that long, and the bright lights just bother them and give them headaches. They're just not as productive as they used to be, and it's very frustrating for them. Yeah, I can believe that. So something like this is happening to Norman, and that is too bad. By the way, uh, related to our previous topic... Shoeshine Box is reporting that NBA Top Shot is not available in Nevada. Wow. He said he went to go sign up and they booted him off. He is in Las Vegas. Hmm. I did not know that. Can somebody else in Vegas try and let me know what happens? I, I'd never heard it's not available in Vegas. In fact, I'm, I thought I saw people in Vegas on Twitter who were part of this whole thing. Maybe not. Maybe it's poker players I thought were in Vegas and are not anymore. Anyway, uh, good luck to Norman Chad. Hope he gets over this and hope this is only temporary. Unfortunately, it may not be. Well, there's somebody who wants something to be temporary, and that is Ape Styles, an online poker pro. He wants his ban from GG Poker to be temporary. Ape Styles' real name is Jonathan Van Fleet. And he's a longtime online poker pro, a very successful one. And he was recently banned from GG Poker because he was kind of caught up in the whole Fedora Cruz situation, which we talked about on this show previously. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole Fedora Cruz story again. This was from the fall of 2020. This uh, really blew up in September. But it involved a site pro that GG Poker didn't really want to admit was a site pro and uh, using real-time assistant software to cheat in these games because you're not uh, allowed to use that on there. 
Anyway, whole big scandal about that, and GG Poker handled it pretty poorly. But uh, something I didn't know was that they banned lots of other pros, some of whom may have been innocent, ones they suspected, or at least they claimed they suspected, were using real-time solvers. Real-time solvers, by the way, for those of you who don't know, it's software you can run while you're playing poker that will actually uh, analyze the exact situation you're in and give you the optimal way to play. It's almost like uh, having a bot play for you, except you're the one making the motions and it's, just, it's giving you advice on what to do. So obviously it's very, very hard to beat a real-time solver or to beat a player using a real-time solver. And GG Poker has banned the usage of them, which is the right thing to do. But uh, there have been some allegations that GG Poker, which is known to be hostile towards pros, they really don't want pros on their site, they kind of tolerate them, but they find ways to make life difficult for them, that they use this as an excuse to get rid of pros they just didn't want there. They just falsely accused some pros of using real-time solvers when they weren't and booted them off. So ApeStyle said in an interview back in December that he had recently been kicked off of GG Poker as a result of the whole Fedor Cruz scandal. Not that he was accused of being involved with Fedor, but just that he was accused of basically doing something pretty similar. So they, in this interview, they said to him, since the Fedora Cruz case, the poker rooms have started a war against real-time assistance and GTO, that's Game Theory Optimal Solver Programs. GG Poker suddenly banned a lot of players, including you, which they also received some backlash for. Some people said that it was leading to unfair and biased decisions against regular pros. What is your opinion regarding the banned players' controversy? Is it like a poker witch hunt? And then Ape Styles, Jonathan Van Fleet, said back, Yes. I have been banned from GG Poker, even though I never used real-time assistance with any due process without even informing me what they have against me. They did, however, give me my, my, my money back, and I do believe they have a right to choose who wish, they wish to have to play on their site. Honestly, it did seem that only winning players got booted off. I don't know any losing players that have been banned. Okay, let me stop right there. So, he's admitting they didn't take his money. He's admitting they paid him and then said, get out. And he's admitting that while he's unhappy about it, that they didn't screw him because they paid him what they owed him and then said, go away. So he said, if they don't want me, then that's their right. But uh, I'm noticing that they're kicking off only people who are winning pros and anybody who's a losing pro, they, they're not kicking them and claiming they're using these solvers. So he's implying that they're just using this as an excuse to get rid of winning pros off their site, which is possible. He goes on to say, Recently, I've also been under investigation by Poker Stars, probably because of GG Poker. It is ongoing, but I'm absolutely 100% confident I will be cleared because there's nothing I've done in violation of their terms and conditions. I'm excited for that, actually. Another reason was that I was associated with a site called GTOtrainer.com, which shows on my Twitch after a session. I do have a program on my computer that is meant to prevent me from using the site while playing. GTO Trainer has a lot of different solvers that you can look up for almost every situation post-flop, and we actually work really hard to prevent cheating. Okay, let me stop here. This is really suspicious. So, he's associated with GTOtrainer.com, which he admits is a real-time solver. However, 
he says that he has a program on his computer that will stop him from using one of these real-time solvers while playing. <laughs> well, why does he need that program? Why doesn't he just not use it? <laughs> why, why does he need a program to prevent him from using GTO Trainer while he's playing? If he doesn't want to use it while playing, how about just not using it? Like, <laughs> That's a weird thing to say. And he says they work really hard to prevent cheating. Well, how... In order to use the site, meaning GTO Trainer, you must first download a program that doesn't allow you to have other poker sites open and has a delay to make sure people cannot use it in real time. I can't stand cheaters, and I have great respect for people who study their game to get better, which is why GTO Trainer is meant to be used as a great study tool alone. Okay, so you see what he's saying here, that GTO Trainer, in order to separate itself from the real-time solvers people use online to cheat that it will only analyze this data on a delay after getting the hand history and some amount of time has passed, and that if you have a poker site open, it won't run. Well, yeah, okay. I mean, I'm sure that's true, but uh, that also sounds a bit performative to me. Like, if he is associated with GTO Trainer, he could easily have it, that he could have a different version of it that could run for him and others who are closely associated with it. I don't know what his affiliation is. I don't know if he's just a promoter of it. I don't know if he owns part of it. I don't know. I I haven't looked into this. But given his close association with GTO Trainer and that it is a solver and that it has the capability to do this, I mean, he could even run this on another computer. There, there's a lot of ways that this could be pulled off. So to say, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm part of GTO Trainer, and yeah, that's a solver, and yeah, I have it on my computer, but, but oh, no, no, I got a program that prevents me from using it, so come on, guys, I'm totally innocent. I'm not saying he's using it while he's playing, but I'm also saying that he's not necessarily not using it. You know, you know what I'm saying here? Like, it could go either way. We don't know. We're not, we're not there at uh, Ape Style's house. But I will say that using this thing is lucrative. Using this thing will make you additional money. It's not that he needs this to win. I know he has an excellent track record. I know that he's an excellent player and has very good results. But this is still helpful. And there's always the temptation to use it. So someone who's this closely associated with a site that sells a real-time solver, it's understandable why there's some suspicion about him using a real-time solver, and why GG Poker kicked him off, and why PokerStars is investigating him. Now, it's possible that he's right, and that it's just because he's promoting it that they're automatically suspecting him of wrongdoing, when in reality, he has actually been uh, innocent the whole way. So that is a possibility, and I'm willing to accept that. But I'm also willing to accept the possibility that he's really been using it, and that finally the hammer's falling. He finished off by saying, after all that, I just realized I had to be vigilant about what I have open on my computer because I teach poker and I have some documents that I really need to close when I'm playing, regardless if I'm not using them. The poker sites have really good detectors, which is great. I'm glad that these sites have securities, but it does suck to be accused when you technically work hard and don't do anything wrong. Well, see, that already makes them look more guilty. Hey guys, you know, I have some things open, which I'm totally not using them to cheat, but I can see how it looks like that. So next time I'm going to close these things so nobody sees them 
And th- that'll look a lot better. But I'm totally not using these for bad purposes, guys. Totally just using it for research outside the games. You know, like, I don't I can't say this guy's innocent. I'd, I'd love to say GG Poker threw him off without justification and that they should bring him back and that this is a witch hunt, like some people are saying. But I can't. I, I could easily believe he would be using this. There's a lot of temptation to do it. And he's got the tool right there. Anyway, on February 26, he made another attempt to come back. That, that quote I just read you is from uh, December. But on February 26th, just yesterday, he wrote, Hey, GG Poker, I promise that I will play on camera and screen share 100% if playing, uh, parentheses, Twitch streaming. Please unban my account so I can punt in all your nosebleeds. And I did not and do not cheat. I'm open to any additional verification. So basically, he's saying to GG Poker, Hey, let me back on and I'll let you guys watch me constantly on camera whenever I'm Twitch streaming. Well, first of all, why only when you're Twitch streaming? <laughs> why not when you're not Twitch streaming? But also, okay, like, I believe if he comes back there, he's probably not going to use this thing. Whether he was or was not before, I believe since the lightning struck once, that either way, he's not going to use it. He probably wants to come back because he probably believes he can beat these games legitimately, and he doesn't want to miss out on them. So he wants to come back. It's like, hey, guys, you can check out this time. I'm not going to be cheating. I never did cheat, but you can check for sure this time. But just because he's not cheating in the future does not mean that he didn't cheat in the past. So this is something which is just too hard to decide. He could have been doing it. He could have not been doing it. I don't want to make any accusations. I'm not trying to make a wink-wink, nudge-nudge accusation against the guy because he might be totally innocent. But... Sometimes when something looks very suspicious, there's a reason for that. And I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced either way. I'm not convinced that he's a cheater. I'm also not convinced that he didn't use this program. And you know, appearances mean things. If you have this thing open in the background when you're Twitch streaming, and people cry foul about it and say, wait a minute, it looks like you're using a solver. Oh, no, 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 I just have that open for... for, uh, other times, and I, I have software preventing me from using it, guys. No, 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 no. I, I, I really, guys, guys, when I'm off stream, I don't do this. But you got to believe me, guys. Like, you can say that, but it looks terrible. So maybe this just was something that was bad for appearances, but he wasn't doing anything wrong. But I can definitely understand the suspicion. So who knows? Crow Diddley wrote on the thread about this on Poker Fraud Alert, if a poker site has evidence of the guy cheating, do they give him his money back when they boot him? No, of course not. Poker sites love to confiscate funds. They booted him because they can and because whatever reason they thought it was bad for their business. But if they thought he was a cheater, they would have kept let him keep his entire role or at least sat on him for an extended period of time. Well, that's a good point, but they could have strongly suspected he was doing it but didn't have any proof between what he had open on Twitch and his association with it and maybe his play stats. Maybe they didn't catch him red-handed, but they're like, you know what? This looks very real-time solvery to us, and while we cannot prove he did it, we don't want him in here anymore. So cash out and get out. It's possible that's what happened. But on the other hand, with GG, you never know, because they do look for excuses to get rid of pros. They don't want pros on their site. They hate pros. They're very hostile to pros. So this could have just been 
an excuse to get rid of him. And it is possible maybe PokerStar is investigated because they heard he got booted for using this on GG Poker when the whole thing was a false accusation. And now they're investigating him too. So it's possible the guy's totally innocent and this just looks bad. So I'm willing to agree that this is a possibility. Again, I want to be very clear. I'm not accusing him of anything. And honestly, I don't know what would, I don't know which way to think about this. He's trying to get back. I don't think they're going to let him back though. I, that's my, my guess is GG Poker's done with him. And I think part of the reason is number one, they don't want pros back there if they don't need to have them. It's not like they really want him there. They, they're happy to not have him there. And second, if he does come back and then he does cheat, it'll look really bad for them that they banned him for using a solver and then he comes back and uses a solver. I don't think he'd do that. I think if he does come back, he's going to not use the solver. But if he were to anyway and then get caught, it would look very bad for GG Poker that they didn't get rid of him the first time. So I think think they're going to leave him off there. I think this is all in vain, whether he's innocent or guilty. And you know what? Sometimes you got to look at what you're associated with. If you're very closely associated with GTOtrainer.com, a real-time solver, then if people suspect you of using a real-time solver and don't want you on their poker site, well, you got to kind of expect that. Okay, Trader Ruski, are you there? Or have you fallen asleep? I am asleep? here, but I was just about to DM you that I'm fading, and I think I'm going to have to throw in the towel. I, I could tell you were starting to lose energy. I could tell there was... Uh, Less interaction here. I could say, uh oh, this, he's either sleeping or close to sleeping. Yep. I've been, uh, yeah. All of a sudden I got hit with, I hit the wall and I'm about to, about to fade out. Okay. Well, what we will do is I will go take a break right now. And we have three more poker and gambling topics to do. We have a coronavirus segment as we always do here ever since that started. And then I will do my Jew tip of the week. So we have seven things remaining to talk about. So, Trader Ruski, I will bid you farewell. Thank you for being part of the show. And uh, I will call you tomorrow about the other matter that uh, you messaged me about. And uh, so, thank, thank you for joining us. Okay, I appreciate it. Have a good night, everyone. Bye. All right, good night, Trader Ruski. Okay, so... I'll be back in a little bit, and we will continue the show at that point. If you're listening live, it's going to be a longer break than if you're in the archives. Just got to take a little break, get refreshed, and then I will come back and do the remainder. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on this site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money. He's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally. 
and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then you can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. All right, uh, we're back. Let's talk about the 1990s double bracelet winner who has been charged with sending letters with a suspicious white powder to New York gaming officials. Weird story, but that has happened. This is not a super well-known player. But nevertheless, somebody with $3 million worth of tournament caches and someone who's been around poker for several decades. I'm talking about Brent Carter, who won World Series of Poker bracelets in 1991 and 1994. He was charged with sending an envelope with white powder to New York gaming officials. And this is presumably as a result of a long-standing grudge which dates all the way back to the 1970s. He's just really been battling back and forth with New York gaming officials all the way back then to the present. And I guess he can't get over it. So he's been harassing them in various ways and finally just they got tired of it. In the state of New York, he was charged with a federal crime in Albany In the criminal complaint, it alleges that uh, 72-year-old Carter uh, sent a white powdery mixture from Las Vegas to the New York Gaming Commission. And supposedly he did this on four separate occasions between April 2019 and January 2021. Also, back in... In uh, 2017, he allegedly left voicemails to that New York Gaming Commission that uh, it was about the shooting, the Stephen Paddock shooting that occurred in October of 2017. And he said, looks like it missed you guys, which, while not illegal itself, was kind of a veiled threat that they were the ones who deserved to get shot. 
That was what he was trying to imply there, presumably. And then on four occasions, he's accused of sending this white powdery substance. Now, you may wonder, what was this? Was this anthrax or something else that uh, could have hurt somebody? No. Actually, it was meant to look scary, but was actually harmless. It was a combination of drywall, talcum powder, bird seed, and other substances uh, which are not harmful. But still, it was meant to really scare people because they open up an envelope and there's this white powder there and people immediately think of anthrax or something else that uh, can be sent through the mail to kill people or make them very sick. They interviewed him in New York, or they interviewed him with investigators from New York, presumably in Las Vegas, they interviewed him in October 2020, and uh, he made various excuses, but they weren't buying it. But uh, funny enough, it looked like that after talking to him in October, they were willing to probably let it go if he was going to leave this whole thing alone. And then he sent another uh, envelope with a white powder to New York again in January. And the feds were like, ah, this guy, obviously he's going to continue this unless we arrest him. Because we, we go and talk to him. He makes excuses. He says, oh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't know. I, I I didn't think anyone was getting scared here. Whatever he said, they left believing this was over. And then he did it again in January, just three months later. So they said, uh-uh, that's it. We're charging him. He's been charged with conveying false information and hoaxes. He pled not guilty in court this past week. He could face up to five years in prison and fines, but not likely to get that long since he didn't actually send anything harmful. Now, the reason he's so angry at the New York Gaming Commission when he's all the way in Las Vegas was that back in the 70s, they would not let him compete in horse racing. They suspended his license to compete in horse racing. And even though they eventually reinstated his license... He's been pissed at them ever since. It's believed that maybe as he's gotten older, the grudge has gotten worse and he's become less reasonable in his old age and decided he wants to harass them. So Sometimes as people get old and they start thinking back to things which pissed them off that they felt they never got justice for or that someone really screwed them over and they start to feel like one day they're going to die fairly soon and they will not have gotten their revenge for what happened. And then that can drive some people to start uh, start up with aggressive behavior all over again. And that seems to be what was happening with uh, Brent Carter. So this seems like this is something that goes way back that actually was undone, but he was so mad about it happening in the first place and its effect on him at the time, way back in the 70s, that he wanted to still bother them and felt that you could tell what he thought he was doing was things that were threatening and unnerving and bothersome, but not illegal. So he thought, okay, well, you know, I'll just leave them a message about looks like it missed you guys about the shooting back in October 2017. Well, they understand what he means. 
But he could say, hey, look, I'm, I'm just telling them, hey, it looks like uh, a bad thing missed you guys. It happened across the country. You can make that comment. There's nothing illegal about that. But he's trying to send a clear message. And same thing with this white powder he's sending. He can say, hey, there's nothing illegal about sending a harmless substance through the mail. There's nothing illegal about milling a talcum powder or drywall or bird seed. You can do this. So what's wrong with that? But he expects they're going to open the envelope and see this white powder and immediately think anthrax or something else and be very scared. So it's one of these things where he feels he can do it, accomplish what he's trying to accomplish, and not suffer any consequence. And the feds were like, no, we're not going to let this happen. So <laughs> looks like they kind of tried to talk him out of it first, and then when... Uh, he continued doing it. They decided to charge him. Now, I don't know if this is going to stick since he's charged with conveying false information and hoaxes. I see where they're going with this, where they're claiming kind of like this is a hoax that he's sending them anthrax when in reality he's not. But that's not quite what conveying false information and hoaxes really is. That's more of trying to deceive the public into believing something has happened that really hasn't. Like, uh, let's say I sent out a mass email to everybody in my city that there's dangerous piping underground of natural gas that has been leaking and is about to explode and kill everybody. And let's say I just made that up. Let's say that I had no evidence about this. I have no reason to believe it's happening. I just made it up to make everyone panic. And I sent them this email. Well, there they could hit me with such a charge like this, uh, conveying false information and hoaxes, because it is. It's false. It's a hoax. uh, I'm making it up uh, either because I'm a sicko or I want attention or I want to watch everyone panic. And you can't just do that without a consequence. So that would make sense. But here... He's not saying, hey, I'm sending you anthrax and actually sending a harmful, a harmless substance. What he's doing here is sending something that's implied to be a harm, harmless substance or harmful substance, but is not saying it is. It just happens to resemble one. So I don't know if this could be stretched like this. I don't, I don't even know what laws are in the books preventing something like this. They could get a restraining order against him. And then if he were to violate that, I suppose, uh, then they could charge him with that. But without that in place, if he's simply sending them white powder, even if the implication is that he's sending them some kind of poison, if he doesn't say that's what he's doing, and there's actually nothing harmful of what he's sending, I I don't know if he could really be successfully charged. So that'll be interesting. I'm sure he's going to fight this very vigorously. I don't know what he's going to explain he was doing. Like, how do you explain why you're sending this white substance in the mail four times between April 2019 and January 2021, including after the uh, the feds told you to knock it off in October of 2020, and three months later you do it anyway? Like, that, it's kind of hard to explain. You kind of look like a, like a psycho. It's not like he has an innocent explanation for this. No one's going to believe that this was not meant to scare people and freak them out. And that would work against him, but... I'm not sure if this particular charge is something that can stick. I don't know what would be the proper charge. This doesn't seem like it's the right one, but maybe there isn't a right one. So we'll see what happens with that. 
Shoeshine Box commented on the thread about this that I just created today. I just found out about this today. But he wrote, Wow, I always liked him. An old harness horse jockey. I told him I remember seeing him at the Meadowlands in one of his rare appearances there. He has the honor of eliminating Barbara Enright at the only World Series of Poker final table female ever. She went up in fifth. He was an Omaha 8 specialist. Yeah, Barbara Enright, still to this day, is the only female who has made a final table of the main event. We had uh, two females come very close one year. I think it was in uh, 2012. I think they finished 10th and 11th. We still don't have a female who's made the final table, except for Barbara Enright. So I guess he was the one who knocked her out. This is something that also uh, Box posted. He said, I think he was framed. This is from uh, 2012 regarding uh, what happened to him 36 years prior in 1976. Brent Carter addressed the board concerning the suspension of his license approximately 36 years ago. He maintains his innocence and referenced his prior attempts to reopen the matter. Mr. Carter also remarked about the Carmine Fusco court decision and the use of equine drugs. Uh, comments were received from Jackson Leeds via email and are attached to the minutes. No other comments were made. Well, I don't know. It, it still looks like he's upset about this. It's, it looks like he's upset that he got suspended in 1976. It still feels it was unjust and feels like he was never made whole for it. And that can stick with some people. If, if some people are really convinced they got screwed, maybe he was. Maybe this was a bad suspension. I don't know. I don't know enough, enough details about it. But if you feel that a government entity really screwed you, and you even if you got this somewhat reversed years later, but you still suffer damages from the time you were suspended or screwed in whatever way you're screwed, uh, it's easy to hold a grudge for all that time and really wish someone had gotten comeuppance for it. Now, what's foolish here is I'm sure the people who were involved with this decision in 1976 are not working there anymore 45 years later. So I don't know what he thinks he's doing. Because even if the board royally screwed him over in 76, I don't know what he thinks he's going to get here. I don't know what he thinks he's going to accomplish here if the people working there are not the same people as back then. I guess it's possible someone's still working there who was there in 76, but I think probably not, if you do the math. I mean, someone retiring at age 70, which is later than most people retire, would have had to be 25 or under back in 76 to still be working today. So it's almost certain to me that everybody involved in that decision who suspended his license is gone. So why is he still harassing them? Maybe the same entity, but it's different people. But this looks like it's not rational to me. Now he's 72, which is an age where some people start to have some mental decline and aren't quite themselves. But usually 72-year-olds are still sharp enough to where they're fairly the same person. There's some exceptions. I've seen some 72-year-olds who are really out of it. And some have gotten to the point of dementia. It can happen. But it's not like being 82. 72, you still usually have most of your faculties. So this looks more like a long-running grudge than just him being old and irrational. But whatever it is, it looks like it's been eating at him for 
four and a half decades. And he just can't get over it. It's kind of weird. It's also possible that he believes that this interfered with some sort of major life goal he had at the time. And that he wasn't able to accomplish something he thought he was going to. So it could be something like that. It could be that he's just thinking about his life. And he feels that the New York Gaming Commission took that away from him. They robbed him of it. It's hard to tell. Looks like the feds have had enough. I don't know if these charges are going to stick, but I have to imagine he's not going to do this anymore. It says in Wikipedia he lives in Oak Park, Illinois. But yet it mentions Las Vegas in this article, so I don't I don't know. Maybe he's living in Vegas now. In the 95 main event, he finished third place, so he wasn't that far from being one of the main event champions. So between the two bracelets and the third place finish in the main, which, you know, back in 95, there weren't that many players in the main, so it's not like finishing third today, but still, it is a third place main event finish. He also was a 15th in the main event in 91 and 31st in 92. So definitely, guy is a pretty good player. Now, I will say that it also looks like he may have hit some hard times financially. And I can't say that for sure, but he was, he has not had a World Series of Poker cash since 2012. But he didn't quit poker because he was playing a lot of lower buy-in tournaments for the next three years. So if you take a look at his Hendon Mob, which often tells the story of a lot of these one-time prominent pros. In 2012, he cashed twice at the World Series, one in the 1500 uh, PLO8 event, and then another one in the 3000 PLO8 event. Now, I don't know how many other events he played, but that was it for the World Series for him. He does not have a World Series cash since then. Now, maybe he's played some and just hasn't cashed it all, but if you look at the buy-in amounts of everything that he's entered since then, which abruptly stopped at the end of 2015, that was the last cash he had was December 30th, 2015, and in fact, he only had one cash after November 18th, 2013, but all the buy-in amounts are between 120 and $600, and all of them except one are $365 or less, and that makes me think that perhaps he fell on hard times and couldn't afford any event that was four figures or more. So despite his $3 million in caches over the years, which of course goes way back, and of course you have to subtract all the entry fees for the actual profit, but despite $3 million in caches going back to 86, perhaps he is low on funds, and perhaps he is thinking about the old days when the New York... Gaming Commission screwed him. And if only they hadn't done that, how his life might have worked out. You, you don't know what's in his head. And as I said, maybe he's justified in his anger, not in his actions, but maybe they really did screw him. Maybe something unfair did happen to him back in 76. And maybe it did ruin some goal he had that he might have otherwise achieved. And you can say, oh, just get over it, but it can be tough. And some people, it eats at them until they do something stupid. And clearly he's been doing something stupid here. Clearly that's, uh, it looks like this has been 
something that just isn't exiting his mind and probably never will until the day he dies. Believe it or not, there was actually a $5 Brent Carter chip at Binion's. It says, Binion's Horseshoe, World Series of Poker, $5. Brent Carter Millionaire, which is kind of a weird thing to have there, but it's a Binion's Horseshoe Millionaire chip, a $5 chip, $5 red chip, with his picture on it. Not sure when that was released. It looks like it was quite some time ago. Kind of looks like uh, circa 2000 or so, maybe late 90s. But yeah. If you were playing at Binion's Horseshoe in the 90s and 2000s, it's very possible you were playing with, among other things, Brent Carter Chips with his face right on there. Now he's been arrested for sending white powder to the New York Gaming Commission. Hmm. Very odd. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. Mike Matisau is not a fan of Brent Carter. He said, LOL, is that the same Brent Carter who called the floor on me in 2004 to give me a 20-minute penalty for saying the F word? Yeah, that's him. Hashtag douche. Wow. Mike Matisau does not like him. When somebody is playing World Series events for decades and then all of a sudden they're not, and yet they're playing smaller tournaments that usually means they can't afford to play the World Series anymore. Or they've just not done well and they're giving up. It's usually not, hey, I've done great at the World Series, but uh, I don't want to play that anymore. I'm just going to enter $300 tournaments instead. Like That's not how the thinking usually goes in poker. I'm not saying he should be ashamed of this or anything. I'm just saying that that can sometimes inform you of their other actions that happen after that. So to me, this looks like somebody who has forever felt like things could have been different and better if he hadn't been screwed this way by the Gaming Commission and can't get over it. It's easier to be bitter about things that happened in the past if the way your life turned out isn't the way you were hoping or if the way a certain thing turned out isn't the way you're hoping. So if if your finances aren't in good shape and you can look at an event that you can point to that may have set you on a different course that was worse, then you can say, well, that's why my finances are not in good shape. If only this hadn't happened, I'd be in a totally different spot today. And that's how some of these long-standing grudges can exist. Because it's not just a matter of, oh, I'm pissed about something that happened to me a long time ago. It's, I'm pissed about it, my situation today that's a result of something from a long time ago. It has to be something like that. Okay, so I'm going to move on, talk about something a little bit happier. I'm going to talk about the Pinball Museum. The Pinball Museum is a charming place in Las Vegas. Not in a very good area. I remember when I went there, I'm like, I'm a little worried to leave my car in this parking lot here. But it's, it's in a strip mall east of the strip on Tropicana. It's not a horrible area, but it's definitely not a good area. And uh, when you hear about a pinball museum, you don't picture it being in a strip mall. You kind of picture like a real museum setting. But it's not. It's a very informal thing. 
what the pinball museum really is, is a dude who set up a bunch of old machines, both arcade machines from the 70s and 80s, and pinball machines going back several decades. And for the love of the whole thing, not to make money, not for any kind of ulterior motive, but just because he loves them. It's a hobby of his. And he collects them, and he makes his collection available to the public to come in and play. It is a non-profit. Most of the games are a quarter, which, by the way, is a lot less money than a quarter was worth back when these games existed and took a quarter. So, like, you drop quarter in a Pac-Man machine in 1982... That quarter is worth, I don't have the inflation calculator in front of me, but I'm guessing the quarter is probably worth around 65 cents today. Maybe more, maybe 75 cents. So charging a quarter for today is a huge discount over when those were actually running. Never mind what premium you'd expect to pay just for the fact that they're available, where they're not easily found anymore. So you get to play all these for a quarter. They're mostly maintained pretty well. There's some that don't work or the controls aren't perfect, but uh, they're mostly maintained pretty well. And it has a very wide variety. If you could think of an 80s or late 70s arcade game that you liked, you'll probably find it there. And the pinball machines, you'll see some that you're familiar with, and then you'll see some that are super obscure that barely showed up anywhere, but that you got a hold of. There's some very unique pinball machines that are a lot different than any pinball machine you've ever played. It's a very interesting place, especially if you like pinball and video games. And something I was impressed with when I visited there, and I've gone there a number of times over the years. I haven't been there all that recently, but when I lived in Las Vegas, I was there a lot. Uh, What's very impressive about the pinball museum is that It completely lacks pretentiousness. You can tell it's a low-budget, simple operation by someone who really loves these games, someone who really appreciates these games, someone who is preserving these games for other enthusiasts, other people who love these games or have good memories of playing them from when they were a kid, to be able to come back in and play them all in one place. It's not looking to exploit this nostalgia for profit. It's not looking to uh, use these to attract you in for other purposes, to get you to buy other things. It really is just, hey, I've got all these games here. Come on in, play them. It's a quarter each. It's very cheap. But it, it allows me to make enough money off of that to maintain them. And that's what this guy's goal was. The nonprofit, basically, he just wants to support the operation. He just wants to not lose money on it. He wants to be able to pay the rent, pay the electricity, and be able to pay the costs of maintaining these games. And in fact, he claims that he donates the remainder, if he ends up making more than that, to the Salvation Army, which I feel is a mistake because this leaves him with no reserves. And indeed, uh, that ended up becoming a problem, not just on one occasion, but on two occasions. 
some years ago, I don't know how many, maybe six years ago or so, I'm forgetting how long it's been, but it got vandalized very badly. Someone broke in and just really screwed the place up. Just some malicious asshole. I have no idea why this was done, but someone just broke into the place. Remember, it's in a bad area, so I don't know if it's, it was targeted at this or if it was just pieces of shit in the area that wanted to break something. But they broke in and just smashed things there and... Uh, I, I think some of this was just to steal. I think they, they were stealing quarters out of the games. Whatever it was, they uh, it was very stupid. But the, the games were really bashed up, and it uh, required a lot of money to repair. So I thought it was done. I thought that was pretty much the end of it, and I was sad to hear about it. And I don't know how we got out of that, but uh, somehow it went on. Maybe from donations, I don't know what allowed them to go on here. But the problem was they didn't keep any kind of profits. In, in order to uh, maintain the whole nonprofit status, as I said, he would donate to the Salvation Army anything that he made beyond what was keeping the doors open and the lights on. And the problem with that is it doesn't give you any reserve for when things like that happen. Now, um I'm not sure what the exact rules are about keeping reserves for nonprofits, but I'm sure there was a way he could have done it. I don't run a nonprofit, so I don't know, but there has to be some way this can be done where you can keep reserves for operations, but you just don't take any profit. So that was the first time. But the second time, I guess he didn't learn from the first time, the second time was COVID. So this time it wasn't a vandal, it was a virus, and people couldn't come there anymore. So he still had rent to pay. I guess it was cheaper to maintain the machines because people weren't playing them, but still, he had counted on this constant stream of income to keep the place afloat, and it just didn't have that anymore since COVID started. So he announced that this is probably going to close, it's probably done. Well, word started getting around that they may have to close this thing. And the guy who runs uh, a Facebook group called Not Leaving Las Vegas, which I'm actually part of. It's a a Las Vegas-based Facebook group about Las Vegas. uh, Tried to work to get this thing uh, saved in some way. So... uh, the guy running Not Leaving Las Vegas, his name is Stephen Campbell. And Stephen Campbell uh, tried to publicize the situation that the Pinball Museum's in financial trouble. Well, somebody got a hold of Stephen Campbell and said, hey, I'd like to save this thing. And wrote a check for $79,000 to help save the pinball museum. One individual who was impressed with the operation said, okay, yeah, I'll give him 79000 So the owner of the uh, pinball museum, which, by the way, is also known as the Pinball Hall of Fame, the owner said, I just got handed a check for $79,000 from an anonymous donor. That finishes our fundraising campaign. We're basically not going to starve to death and put the games out on the street for the lack of a better place to go. Well, they also got money from another source, and that would be GoFundMe. So in addition to this $79,000 check he got, they also had a GoFundMe, which raised $140,000. 
actually $145,000. They got some additional donations today. It was 140 when I looked earlier, so they got another 5K today. I guess <laughs> I guess they don't realize that it's already uh, received all the donations it needs because this story was covered on uh, Channel 3 in Las Vegas. So I guess this has brought some attention to it. It actually says up here, uh, 195 people, quote, just donated, presumably meaning today. And I'm seeing a list of these donations. So that's going to keep it afloat. And the owner, whose name is Tim Arnold, is thrilled about this. But not only is the Pinball Museum going to stay open, but it's going to move. See, it's going to leave its seedy area and move to a better neighborhood and probably a more appropriate location right by the famed Welcome to Fabulous Las Vegas sign right by McCarran Airport. So that's going to be its new location. It'll be on uh, Las Vegas Boulevard, pretty far south, you know, where that sign is. It'll be bigger. They're going to be moving to a bigger facility in a better neighborhood. And they feel they can afford it now because uh, they got all that money. I don't know how long all that money is going to last. And I don't know if it's going to be able to support itself once COVID improves. But I guess that's what uh, Tim Arnold here is hoping. I will visit the new location once it reopens. And once I'm comfortable going there with COVID, but uh, it's good to see that this has happened. I would have been sad to hear the thing shut down permanently. Here's a video that Tim Arnold put out on YouTube to thank everybody for their donations. Hello, it's Tim again. We're in the rear yard of the existing Pinball Hall of Fame. I'm taking a break from dismantling a crane machine and turning into a handy metal pointing tool. Uh, to talk to you about the new Pinball Hall of Fame on the Strip. First of all, thank you very much, everybody who's contributed to get us to where we are today. As of this afternoon, we're about 30% of the way to our goal. So please, tell your friends, link and share and whatever you kids do. This is before they got to their goal, by the way. It was a little while back. With those computer things you have, do it some more because we really want to hit 200,000 That means we're over the top and ready to open. Now, in the last video, I kind of took you for a quick tour inside, but it's hard to envision what's going to be inside when it's just this big, cavernous, empty space. So what we have here is a drawing from our... Okay, I won't bother to play that, but you you can see this. It's on the GoFundMe page, this video and another one. I remember this guy. He was... Yeah, he's right there when you go there while it's open. He actually is there all day, like fixing machines and, and making change for you. I remember I, there was a machine that the controller wasn't working well, and I told him, and he says, "Okay, I'll take it out of service and I'll work on it. Uh, I've got two other machines ahead of it, but I'll I'm gonna I'm gonna get on that one too." So he puts a lot of hard work into this place, and you you gotta love something like this where it is someone it's it's their hobby and they're just trying to share it with everybody rather than exploit it for profit. And there's nothing wrong with making a profit from something you enjoy too, but there's there's a certain purity to something where it's being provided at cost. And that's what's definitely going on here. And he puts a lot of effort into this whole thing. Now, 
I want to compare this to another arcade-like thing that opened from with old games that opened up in 2011, and it was a lot more slick. It was a lot more promoted. It was better known, even though it was much newer than the Pinball Hall of Fame, a.k.a. Pinball Museum. And that was a place called Insert Coins, which if you lived in Vegas, you probably knew about. And it sounded really cool. Insert Coins was a unique idea where it was a combination of a bar, nightclub, and retro arcade. And the whole theme there was uh, the 1980s and 1980s video games. So they played 80s music. They had 80s games there. And at the same time, it was a bar and a nightclub. It was in downtown Las Vegas. That's what Trader Ruski was recalling when I talked about the pinball museum during the agenda. I was pretty excited about the Insert Coins opening. I'm not a big club guy. I never was. But still, I like the idea of it. In fact, we held a donk-down party at Insert Coins. And I should have known by the way that they treated us before we even got there that this place was going to have problems. So this was the site Donkdown, which was kind of a predecessor to Poker Fraud Alert in some ways. Uh, for those of you that weren't around back then, uh, I was one of the owners there with three other guys, and uh, I was eventually thrown off. I was thrown out of Donkdown as one of the owners, and a bunch of drama I won't get into, and I started Poker Fraud Alert six months later. So that's kind of how Poker Fraud Alert came to be, is I got thrown out of Donk Down, which no longer exists, and started my own site a little bit later. But towards the end of my time on Donk Down, we had this uh, meetup at Insert Coins, and our plan was to have a party where we would have a table reserved, a big long table reserved for Donk Down, or, or at least some area of it reserved for Donk Down. And our presumption was that for some kind of guarantee of minimum amount spent that they would make this room for us. Now keep in mind this was a weeknight. This was not a Friday night or Saturday night. This was a weeknight and we figured that they wouldn't be that busy and that they'd be happy to get the guaranteed business. We were not asking them to rope off a segment for us for free where no, maybe nobody's going to spend anything. We we were willing to guarantee a minimum spend so we wanted to do it, but they were acting really funny about it. They said, well, you got to speak to the VIP host. I'm like, ah, oh, I don't want to deal with a VIP host. Like, a, That's overkill. That's They're going to try to sell us a bunch of crap we don't need. We just, can you please just give us this area, like reserve a, a table or a few tables for us, and in return we'll promise we're going to spend, you know, a, collectively $500 or whatever. It's a dead night. Just do it. Well, now you guys go through the VIP host. And she she was like, right from the get-go, just very phony. You know how these VIP hosts are, these clubs. She just is trying to get us to spend, spend, spend. And we keep trying to tell her we're not a big operation. We're just trying to have a party for people from our website. And we're coming on an off night. Just, just can we please do it? And we were just 
getting a lot of bullshit. There, there, she, she saw a dollar sign. She saw a big commission out of us. So she's, she's thinking, she's trying to give us, uh, different stories about how we have to commit to buy this many buckets of beer or this many, uh, uh, drinks. And it was going to end up way more than the $500 or so we wanted to spend. They, they wanted us to guarantee like $2,000, $2,500 or something like that. Something absurd like that that we were never going to get to. And we, we were not interested in spending there. So we were, trying really to get them to come down here and just be reasonable. No, they weren't listening. So we finally said, screw it. On weeknights, there was no cover charge. I think there was a cover charge during weekends, but there's no cover charge on weeknights. So we're like, well, okay, fine. You know what? If they want to make less money, they can make less money. So we said, okay, everybody. It's still on. Just come on down. <laughs> so people just came down and we just hung out there. And yeah, we took up space. We took up tables and it was pretty empty. So we didn't really need the reserved area. I mean, it would have been nice to have, but it wasn't something we really needed. And we didn't have to spend any minimum amount. As a result, people didn't spend that much. Yeah, people bought a few drinks here or there and... and I don't know. There's a little money being spent, but it nowhere near 500 collectively from all our members, and that was their fault. That was their fault for getting greedy. And what was funny was uh, while we were there, Mikeon decided that he was going to try one more negotiation tactic to get us a booth when when they could see it was dead there. So he went up and there was the VIP host and he tried to talk to her and he said, hey, you know, we're all here. I know you don't have much business. Can we have this little area here and we'll we'll keep this, uh, you know, we'll, we'll give you some kind of minimum spend like we were offering to you. And she was like almost like pretending like she didn't understand. <laughs> and uh, he just gave up. He just I was afraid she was going to talk him into doing, agreeing to something stupid, and I was very happy to see when she walked away and I asked him, well, what's the result? He's like, I, I, I told her, forget it. I said, he means you, you didn't get anything? Nah. Yeah, she's trying to fuck with me. She's trying to get me to pay a lot more than, than she knows we're willing to spend, and we've already been over this, and she just uh, ignores that, and I just it just pissed me off. I just, I just told her, forget it. I said, good. If you remember Hero Poker... Hero Poker was a sponsor of Donkdown. It doesn't exist anymore. It was a skin of the Merge Network. But Hero Poker actually gave us some money for that party. And because we didn't end up spending it, what we ended up doing is we ended up giving away free hats that we paid for with that money. And the free hats were arranged by a listener of the show that... uh, we had not really known before, but he said he was a big fan of the show. He seemed like a nice guy, and he had kind of a weird screen name. And I said, how do you pronounce this? It's like Traders, S-K-Y, and he said, that's uh, uh, like Traders Hockey. I go, okay. That's what it stands for. I said, okay. That's Trader Ruski. That's how we got to know him. That's where I met him for the very first time, insert coins. Anyway, you may say, what does this have to do with video games? Well... Forget the whole obnoxious story about the VIP host. What about the games? Well, the games sucked. Half of them were out of service. And the ones that were running were set to the most difficult setting. 
to where you go play them and it's nothing like you remember in the 80s. So it's bad enough that you're rusty if you haven't played these games in many years or in some cases decades. But now you've got to play on a super difficult setting that was never set when these games actually ran in the 80s. And it's pretty much impossible to succeed. Not only is it a lot harder, but you're also not used to it. You're not used to it playing that way. So even if you bring back your old skills and your old old memories of these games and how to do well at them back in the early 80s, it's not going to work because they're set to the highest difficulty setting there. Why did they do that? Because they want you off the games and drinking. They want you spending money on drinks, not dropping uh, 50 cents into the game. I think it was 50 cents, maybe it was a dollar. It wasn't a quarter for sure. It was a minimum of 50 cents or maybe even a dollar what it was to play these things, but that wasn't even my biggest problem. It was that it was that they were set to be so difficult. So I said, you know what? This is really crappy. This isn't about the games. Whoever's running this is not a game enthusiast who's just trying to make a nightclub around it. These games are a gimmick to get you in here. And then they they try to make you lose super fast. So you go out and buy these expensive drinks at the bar and get expensive bottle service. That's what they want. They don't want you playing the games. They make them especially hard so you die fast, you get frustrated, and you quit. And uh, I looked on Yelp, and there were a lot of complaints about all of this. And the place closed after four years. They did it wrong. The problem was they were too greedy. They, they didn't create this pure experience. It was really the opposite of the Pinball Hall of Fame. The Pinball Hall of Fame, you play the games as they were back in the time that they ran. And it's a non-profit venture. It's run by someone who loves the games. Insert Coins ran it as a way to get you in there to buy expensive drinks. And it was someone who really didn't want you playing the games. It's just a gimmick. So it was amazing the contrast between the two. And one is still around and one is gone. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad the Pinball Hall of Fame survived. And it's a cool thing to go do if you want to do something in Vegas if you're from out of town, that has nothing to do with gambling. So that's something to consider. Now, if you're with a girlfriend there or with your wife, uh, unless she likes games, she may not be that impressed with it because a lot of uh, girls aren't into this stuff. Not not to be sexist here, but this is the truth. I, I wished it was different, believe me. Back when I played these games in the 80s, I would have been thrilled to have a lot of girls there who wanted to play them too. It would have been something I had in common with them. It would have been a, a good uh, starting point to get to know each other. But nope, it was mainly me and a bunch of dudes in these arcades. As I'm sure you will remember if you were around in those days. And even uh, pinball was like that too. The big pinball enthusiasts back in the day were also mostly dudes. I don't know if uh, your wife or girlfriend will want to go with you, or if she does, if she'll want to spend much time there with you, but if you're with buddies, or if you happen to have a girlfriend who isn't into this stuff, then uh, definitely a good place to go. The Pinball Museum, a.k.a. the Pinball Hall of Fame in Las Vegas. Whether it's on Tropicana, or whether it has moved, which I think is happening very, very soon, to its new location on Las Vegas Boulevard, in the very, very southern part of the Strip. Okay, so let's move on here. I want to tell you about a weird 
controversy that came up involving the Vegas Golden Knights hockey team. The Golden Knights are currently one of two professional sports teams, or major professional sports teams, I'm not talking about minor leagues, major professional sports teams in the Las Vegas area. The number of professional sports teams, again, a major professional sports teams, in the Las Vegas area prior to the arrival of the Golden Knights was... Zero point zero. They had none, and the concern was that these athletes would be corrupted by uh, the gambling in the area, that they would be bribed to throw games when there would be big bets placed on games involving whatever Vegas team there would be. Over the years, that became less of a concern when professional athletes were paying so much money that uh, it would never be worth it for anyone to bribe one of these players enough to where they would ever throw the game, especially the ones who would be the most meaningful in the game would be making huge money, and there's no way they'd risk that. So this became something, there was an obsolete concern that wasn't likely to be a problem anymore. Anyway, it took a while until Vegas warmed up to having professional sports there. And the other problem is Vegas is not a huge metropolitan area. It's, it's quite the opposite. Vegas has very little beyond itself and Henderson. Other than that, it's quite isolated. And the population in the metro Vegas area isn't all that big. So even if the city was warm to having any kind of uh, professional sports teams over there, if the question was, did any teams want to come? Well, the first one to actually come was the Vegas Golden Knights, and their first uh, their first season was the 2017 to 2018 season. They actually won the conference championship in 2017 to 18 in their inaugural season, which was a big shock. Nobody expected them to be a good team that year. They did not win the Stanley Cup, but at least they got there. And that was very exciting for Golden Knights fans, and it really excited the city of Las Vegas. Since then, an NFL team, of course, has arrived to Las Vegas, and that would be the Raiders. So now they have two major professional sports there. They still don't have baseball. They still don't have basketball. The Golden Knights are always looking for other possible revenue opportunities, and uh, that led them to make a pretty big mistake. The problem is that uh, even being in Las Vegas, they don't necessarily understand everything involving gambling. And uh, that can lead to some embarrassing mistakes when they make partnerships that they should not make. So this, this is what happened. They made a partnership with a tout service called UPIC Trade. UPIC Trade is based in Mexico, in Guadalajara, Mexico. A tout service, for those of you that don't know, is a service that sells sports picks. And the problem is most of these are scams. Most of these claim insane win rates, which just simply aren't possible. Many of them will sell separate picks to different customers where they're opposing each other to where this way they guarantee that half their customers are going to win 
and those customers will then re-up with them. So there's a lot of tricks these touts use in order to feign success when in reality they don't have any kind of skill in uh, picking these games, and yet some of them charge a lot of money to provide you with these, quote, expert picks. I will go as far to say that most touts have no idea what they're doing. Most services selling you picks are not selling you winning picks. These are not winners in the long run. The question you always hear is, if these picks are so great, why aren't they just betting on them themselves? And the answer always is, well, we've been limited. Well, we can't put that much action down. Well, that's a harder thing to say these days when there's so many different opportunities to bet online. Like, so, so why not bet online then? Why not actually bet online on betonline.com? <laughs> you know, like, why, why are they selling the picks? But there is an answer to that, that there is still variance to betting on picks, and it's, uh, they'd prefer to sell them, which is a steady income stream. Okay. But the problem is, most of these touts are just salesmen. They're just marketers. They don't have any actual skill. They just pick these games out of their ass. And they'll call it the super duper lock of the week. And they'll claim that they get 80% of their picks right. On I'm talking like spread picks where you're basically uh, 50-50 to get them right, not including the house juice. And they're claiming they're getting 80% consistently. When I say they, I'm just talking about random touts. And nobody can do that. That's not possible. No one's ever accomplished it. In fact, if you win 60% of spread or totals picks in sports, then you are a tremendously good sports handicapper. In fact, that's pretty impossible too, 60% in the long run. Someone's 57%, okay, that can happen, and that can be someone that uh, would be worth following. The problem is separating the truth from the trash. How do you know who's just uh, a liar someone who's selling picks that really are not winners and they're pretending they are, how do you know the difference between that and somebody who wins? You can say, well, you can look at uh, their posted record. You can look at uh, picks they posted and that have been verified that they were posted before the games played, and you can see if these uh, handicappers were successful. Well, not necessarily, because online, for example, there will be touts that take on a few different identities, and they'll post, again, opposing picks, Assuming that uh, one of their identities will just luck into doing well, while their other identities will lose, and th- then they'll ditch the other two identities and take the one that does best. So really, the, the only way to see if a tout is any good is to follow their picks from the start. And uh, even if they win for like a season, it doesn't mean much. You, they could have just gotten lucky. If you're buying sports picks from any service, you're probably getting ripped off. Some worse than others. Some do give you some valuable information, but most of them don't. Most of them are a complete scam. Now, I don't know much about this U-Pick trade, but it already has some uh, scammy-looking elements to it, and the fact that it's based in Mexico is not a good sign. If you go to upicktrade.com, that's letter U. Then the words picktrade.com. If you go there, it says, You pick trade your sports betting strategy. 
In December 2017, we decided to launch a sports picks recommendation service based upon statistics and a great money management strategy for each client. More than 6,000 clients around the world have changed their perspective and are now making a living off of sports. Carlos Lazo, CEO. Okay, so they're not just saying that they're going to give you winning sports picks that you can go bet yourself and maybe make a profit. That They have 6,000 people around the world that are now making a living off of sports. So it's one of these things where they're saying you can quit your job and become a professional sports better if you just buy our service. How much does this cost? Well, it says get bet smarter, money management focused strategy, and we tell you what and how much to bet on each pick. $89 USD. <sighs> so $89 and they will change your life and they will allow you to make a living betting sports, which is quite tough to succeed at in the long run. For $89, you can do it now, too. Now, we can laugh at that, usually, but you pick trade was actually an official partner of the Vegas Golden Knights up until today. So we're not just talking about some random tout service that I'm making fun of here. They actually had a partnership with the Vegas Golden Knights, an NHL team, which is crazy. How did they do this without doing their research? So someone at the Golden Knights was tricked into believing that uh, this is just totally standard, totally straightforward. It's totally fine. They're going to they're gonna help the people who are uh, signing up that see them as a partner of the Golden Knights, just going to help them make a living with sports. It's that simple. Just pay your $89, you, you make a living through sports. They're, they'll tell you how much to bet and who to bet on, and it's that simple. You just do what they say, and you get rich. And the Vegas Golden Knights are, are their partner. They didn't explain also what will happen if you're told to bet against the Vegas Golden Knights. Then what? Even if this place really was legit, it's kind of a bad look. Today's pick is the Golden Knights are going to lose by three goals. So bet uh, the other team minus two and a half goals. So the Vegas Golden Knights suck. Like, how do they explain that one if, if that were to be a pick? But this does not look legitimate at all. This looks like kind of a, a dumb version of sports picks that don't really have any kind of real basis to it as far as being winning picks. A combination of that and one of these money management schemes where they pretend like they're presenting something to you that's revolutionary when it's really just common sense. And they probably separate picks like, oh, this is a five-star pick, you bet this much. This is a four-star pick, you bet this much. This is a three-star pick, you bet this much. You know what? It doesn't work that way. It would be great if you could separate your picks into five-star, four-star, three-star. And a lot of the touts try this. But the ones that try this and aren't lying about it find that there really is not much consistency between what you think is a five-star pick and what you think is a one-star pick. If you think it's a good pick, even if you are a winning sports better, uh, it's not... The, the, the five-star picks are not going to win at a much higher rate than the one-star picks. So that 
becomes a problem. So presumably they're telling you to put a lot of money on the picks they like a lot and less money on the ones they don't like so much, but all you're doing is adding variance. Let's click on records here. What does it say for records? Yeah, okay. So th- this is this looks like a scam to me. <laughs> okay, so in 2021, they're claiming that uh, they are up... 28.56% on their picks for the year, which is, is pretty high. <laughs> In 2020, they're up uh, 29.54%, which I also don't believe. <laughs> now you like this one. In 2019, they're up one hundred forty-three point six eight percent. I think they're talking about uh, what bankroll you finish with versus what you start with that year. I think that's what they're trying to say. I don't think they're saying that's your edge on each bet. It wouldn't make any sense. But they're saying in twenty nineteen. Basically, if you started with thousand dollars, you would have finished with uh, twenty-four. $36 because you're up uh, 143.68%. In 2018, 95.28%. Okay. <laughs> Almost doubled your money. And then here comes my favorite one. In 2017, plus 687.24%. <laughs> so you multiplied your money by seven. Yeah. Yeah. Good partnership there, Vegas Golden Knights. They really had a moron there. In the city of Las Vegas, not understanding tout services and how they're mostly scams. And how this one really looks like a scam. And it's not even located in Vegas. There are so many tout services actually in Vegas. This one actually is in Mexico. Are you kidding me? What are they thinking here? That is really, really, really dumb. The Vegas Golden Knights finally ended the partnership after they got bashed up and down for this whole thing. You pick trade is acting all indignant. We are still in shock about the decision, they said. They said the Vegas Golden Knights have ended their sponsorship agreement with us. The organization will not have additional comments on the matter at this time. And this is actually the first partnership ever between an NHL club and a company based in Mexico. It also was the first deal ever between a professional sports franchise and a sports betting recommendation service. It lasted all of three days before falling apart. (laughs) Originally, UPIC Trade was supposed to be the official picks service partner of the Knights and would be featured on the team's website and social media platforms, as well as boards around the rink at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. At the time, Mike Mungiello, Vice President of Global Partnerships for the Knights, said, We're hopeful our fan base will make UPICTrade.com a part of their sports betting pick process. So I think it was this guy who made the mistake, this idiot uh, Mike Mungiello, who didn't realize that sports betting services are touts, and these touts are, are scams. Or he knew and figured that nobody would complain that loudly. So he was wrong. 
pretty much everybody was bashing this. Problem gambling experts were bashing this, saying that it's going to lead gamblers who uh, have gotten their addiction under control somewhat to believe that uh, finally here's a legitimate way to make money gambling and are going to lead them right back into it. Bookmakers laughed at this, saying that uh, these tout services are all scams. And sports bettors basically said the same thing. Then there were the concerns, as I mentioned, that you pick trade would sell picks on night's games. And if somehow they would be given privileged information regarding injuries or lineup information for night's games before anyone else had it. And if that was unfair. And uh, a spokesman for you pick trade told ESPN earlier prior to this decision being made to terminate the agreement that they'd be allowed to sell picks on games involving the Knights, but had not been asked and did not expect to receive any kind of advanced information. I can't believe they made this mistake. I can't believe they were this foolish, this stupid. Like how, how do you how do you live in Vegas and not know about these touts and their reputation? Crazy. And then how do you finally sign one that's not even located in Vegas? A very gimmicky, scammy-looking one out of Mexico. Unbelievable. So it took three days for the Knights to realize they screwed up big time. At least they reversed it, but what an embarrassment. Okay, well, Alan Kessler thinks that the prime social club in Houston is an embarrassment. And he wanted me to talk about this on the show. And I'm going to oblige, and I'm going to give you my opinion if you go to the Poker Community Discussion Forum on Poker Fraud Alert, you will see a thread I created called Alan Kessler Calls Out Prime Social Club in Houston for a weak attempt to prevent COVID spread. Alan posted a picture from Prime Social Club without saying where it was from, but it was pretty clear if you look at the back of the picture, you see a big prime on the wall and... If you just Google that Prime Poker, you'll come up with Prime Social Club. So it's not that hard to find, even if you haven't heard of the Prime Social Club before. It is a poker room in Texas. It's in the Houston area. Alan wrote, Please, poker tournament directors, if you want people to feel comfortable playing, you need safety protocols like the SHPRO. Making a weak effort like this won't cut it in my book. And then this picture shows a bunch of players... First of all, they're all at the table without any kind of additional distancing. There's no separators. There's no empty chairs. These are basically nine-handed tables. Actually, is it nine-handed or ten-handed? That's uh, no, nine-handed, but okay. It's nine-handed tables, people sitting close together. A number of tables are in the room. It looks like a tournament. And... There's a number of people either not wearing masks or their masks are pulled down to where they might as well not have them on. Like the guy who's most prominent in the picture right in the front is an older man wearing glasses who has his mask actually under his chin. (laughs) It's not blocking his mouth. It's not blocking his nose. I guess if the very bottom of his beard was to be transmitting COVID, then it would prevent that. But... Other than that, the mask he has on under his chin is not doing anything. The guy next to him also has it pulled down under his chin. 
And it's not just this table. If you look at the other tables, you see various mask wearing and lack of mask wearing or masks that are pulled down. So basically the masking is not very strongly enforced there. So Alan called this a weak effort as far as safety. He asked what people thought of this. Now, immediately he got some angry responses. Someone accused him of attempting to just bash tournament director Justin Hammer. Justin Hammer is a former commerce tournament director who abruptly lost his job for reasons I don't know. And uh, he moved on to work at Prime Social Club. My experiences with Justin Hammer were good. I thought he did a good job at commerce in the tournaments I played there. But, I mean, he got fired for some reason. I don't know what it was. He was always nice to me. And I know he liked Poker Fraud Alert. Alan does not like him. And he does not like Alan. Alan has annoyed a lot of tournament directors because he will be very critical. He will complain a lot about uh, things he doesn't like, about structures he doesn't like. Uh, Alan is somewhat misunderstood. Some people think Alan is a jerk or he's rude. He is very straightforward and he doesn't hold back and he'll say things that uh, are sometimes inappropriate socially. But he's not doing it to be an asshole. He's actually doing it because he's trying to make things better. He's trying to help. He's trying to give good advice. And not all his advice is good, but a lot of times he does give good advice about the structures of these tournaments or uh, he'll discover where, where casinos are screwing people and bring it to everyone's attention or he will pressure these rooms to stop screwing the poker players. He's done a lot of good things for the poker tournament scene. And if you deny that, then you're denying reality. So even if you don't like his personality, his demeanor, he isn't doing this for any kind of personal gain. He's, he's doing this really to be helpful. And he has, he has actually been helpful in many cases. He's not always right, but a lot of times he is. A lot of times he'll complain about something and go, yeah, yeah, he's right. And I'll agree with him. Sometimes I won't agree with him. But uh, back to this, uh, the problem is, tournament directors and Kessler sometimes don't get along because they feel like he's just criticizing them constantly. And they, they, they don't want to hear from him. They're like, who are you? You have, you have no right to demand this. So I don't know if that was the reason that he and Justin Hammer don't get along, but I know they don't get along. So some people were accusing Kessler of putting this out there just to bash Justin Hammer. Ray Henson, who is a fairly well-known poker pro, based out of Houston. He is a big advocate for Houston area poker, and he'll often speak in defense of any uh, Houston area room that is being criticized. He responded to Kessler's thread on Facebook and pointed out that Kessler brought up the same complaint a few months ago and that Henson responded saying, okay, I will bet you the number of people that get sick with COVID from here, which I don't know how you determine how someone got sick from there, but he wanted to place a bet with Kessler who he claims refused the bet. So he's saying that he thinks Kessler just complaining for the sake of complaining. And that if he really thought it was dangerous, then he would make a bet about how many people get sick there. Anyway, if you take a look at this picture, I will admit it does not look good. It does look dangerous. 
And not even really for the reasons that jump out at you. I know the masking thing is the most shocking because we've been trained by the media to believe that masking is everything. If someone has a mask on, then they are being safe. If they don't have a mask on or if it's pulled down below their chin, then they are being unsafe. So you see a poker room where a bunch of people are not wearing the mask properly and they've intentionally pulled it down to where it's not blocking their nose or mouth, then it is easy to conclude, okay, this person is a jerk who doesn't care about the safety of others, and the venue is run by jerks who let this happen and don't say anything. So this will lead people to believe it's an unsafe operation. The problem is that I believe masking is only a small piece of the equation when it comes to COVID avoidance. I believe that COVID mainly spreads in the air, in aerosol form, and that if there's a heating or AC system blowing it around, that's what makes it the worst. And that is why COVID, almost all the cases came from people who were indoors in an area where there were a lot of people in close quarters. And it happens a lot where there's a setting where there's a heater or air conditioning running. So where does the mask come into this? Well, if it's not so much happening from droplets that come out of your mouth when you're speaking, though that, that can happen too. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But if it's more from aerosol-type transmission rather than droplets, and we already know it's probably not surfaces, then the masking doesn't help that much. The masking helps with droplets. It holds back the droplets so they don't go as far out of your mouth. But if it's aerosol, then uh, a lot of that's going to get right through the uh, the mask. I have long said on this show that my fear about the masks is that they give people a false sense of security. That if you're wearing a mask, you feel a lot more comfortable walking indoors where there is COVID danger. And if you feel, okay, I can do this because I have a mask with me, it may it might make you engage in behavior that otherwise you wouldn't have engaged in if you didn't have the mask. So that's where the mask can actually be harmful. So I'm not anti-masking, but I'm anti-overestimating what the mask can do because that can lead to an even worse problem. So getting back to this picture of the Prime Social Club, there is no doubt this is a dangerous situation. If you don't think it is, then you have not been paying attention to how COVID transmits. It's exactly in an environment like this. A lot of people crammed into a small room, presumably with a heater or air conditioning running in the room. That is likely to spread COVID if people have it. And Ray Henson can give his anecdotal evidence that last time they had one like this, nobody got sick. And I believe him. I'm not saying Ray is lying, but I'm saying that doesn't mean anything. It just means that Nobody there had COVID, so they were lucky. But if you have somebody who has COVID, there is a good chance it's going to spread to a lot of people in a setting like this. Masks or no masks. So it is not a good idea to play under these circumstances unless you've already had COVID or you've had the vaccine and waited the proper amount of time like they've told you to wait until the vaccine is fully effective. So I would not play in this room right now. I'd be scared to play in this room right now under the conditions pictured there. 
And I think you should be too, unless you're very young or unless you've already had COVID or unless you've been vaccinated. But it's not really because of the masking. It's not really because of the people who are not wearing their masks right. That's a small part of it, but that's not the main part of it. I don't think these things should run indoors. And if they are going to run them indoors, they should have some sort of uh, vaccination proof you can present before coming in. In short, I think Alan is mostly right here, but he said, if you want people to feel comfortable playing, you need to the safety protocols like the SHRPO. Uh, I don't know. That's, he's talking about the Seminole Hard Rock Poker Open. I don't know what their procedures are, but I imagine it's probably something performative. It's probably something like a lot of deep cleaning and, and maybe more spacing at the table. And that's really not going to help that much. What will help people is if they simply stay away from this. They simply don't play in circumstances where there's a bunch of people crammed in the room, indoors. That's bad news. So I am not interested in playing in anything like this unless I've had the vaccine. Anyone saying that this picture is not dangerous for spreading COVID doesn't understand COVID very well. I had some conversations in that thread that were surprising where some people were saying, well, what about the chips? How do you explain the chips going around? How is that safe? I go, well, no, that's not really the problem. They figured that out already. It's not really spreading on surfaces from what they can tell. And they're going, so wait a minute, you're telling me if, if someone has COVID touches the chips and then I touch it and touch my face that I'm not going to get COVID? I go, yeah, you probably won't. <laughs> That's not really how it's spreading. It's not like the common cold. This is this seems to be spreading in the air somehow. And it might be from droplets. It's probably from both droplets and aerosol. I think it's more aerosol than droplets. But it's not from surfaces. It can't hurt to disinfect things and to... Uh, be careful with things like that, but uh, I don't believe that's where most of the spread is coming from, and neither does the CDC or any experts on COVID at the moment. But a lot of businesses are still treating the prevention of COVID like we have our information from way back in March or April of last year. And that's stupid. A lot of them are just performative. They just clean a lot. And they think if you see them cleaning, that you know it's safe. So if that's what Alan means, then it's not meaning anything. It's, it's not doing anything. By the way, the prime social clubs mentioned before on Poker Fraud Alert, A. Hoosier A, a.k.a. Lee Bradbury, brought them up. This is back in 2019. He talked about how the fact that they were raided, uh, they eventually uh, got out of this. Basically, the government screwed this up. I don't know that much about the Texas poker scene, so I don't know Prime Social's rep, but I know it's the largest poker club in Houston, and I think they need to space this out better and have fewer people in there. Because otherwise, it's just a matter of time until people catch COVID in the place. Okay, let's do our coronavirus stuff. So I want to talk about the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which has been approved and is going to start showing up at vaccine distribution centers near you. Up until now, there were only two types of vaccines that were being 
distributed in the U.S. There was the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. Both of these vaccines were, and still are, two-shot vaccines where you get one shot, then you are told to wait some time and then come back and do the second shot, and then you're told to wait again until you are fully uh, immune to get the full effect. You need both shots plus a waiting period after the second shot. Some concern about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines with the two shots involved, number one, people not coming back for the second shot voluntarily just because they don't feel like it or they didn't like the reaction from the first shot, or people having a hard time getting appointments for the second shot, which has been the bigger concern. So there really has been a desire for a single-shot vaccine. And the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a single-shot vaccine. So in that, it is superior, and it is easier to administer. It only requires one visit. However... The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are pretty similar. They're known as mRNA vaccines. That's the very first utilization of mRNA vaccines, which have been known theoretically for a long time, but they had not uh, released one in practice. And this has been a big success story so far that the very first mRNA vaccine released is arguably the most important one. And it has a very high efficacy rate that is far beyond any other vaccine for uh, the viruses like this. So people were very impressed with the Pfizer and Moderna's effectiveness, at least thus far even with the downsides of having to do the two shots and these waiting periods and having to store them at pretty cold temperatures, though it turns out not as cold as originally thought. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine only requires one shot and is not an mRNA vaccine. Unfortunately, because it's not an mRNA vaccine, it does not have the same efficacy as the Moderna and the Pfizer. It's said to perform, quote, very well, but of course that's subjective, what very well means, and is, quote, a lot more convenient, but, you know, who really cares? (laughs) I mean, it's sure it's better, but what you really want is a vaccine that works the best, and this is not it. This is being released anyway, despite the fact that it's inferior to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, because there is a shortage of vaccines in the U.S. And there's a concern that if we just wait for the Pfizer and Moderna to be available in enough number to vaccinate everybody who wants a vaccination, we will be looking at a very long time period. So this will speed that up. In fact, there's even some discussion of just giving a single shot of the Pfizer and Moderna for now and not even bothering the second shot to get more people vaccinated, to get twice as many people vaccinated, which I I don't agree with. I say you either do it right or not at all. I don't like this half-assed one-shot thing that only gives people about uh, 50% effectiveness. I think that's especially stupid. Anyway, along the same lines with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, 
the thinking is, okay, well, something's better than nothing. So get the vaccine. They're, they're trying to pump it up. They're trying to cover up its shortcomings. When I say cover up, I mean they're not denying it's less effective, but they're trying not to focus on that. They're trying not to really mention that. Uh, even in articles about it in the news media, you don't see much about the efficacy rate. I'm reading this article on CNN. I don't see anything about it. From what I've seen, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is like 60-something percent effective, which isn't that good. Uh, it's So yeah, it's, it's better than nothing, for sure. It's something that is that will definitely... Uh, help you both have lower chances of getting COVID symptoms at all and also bringing down the chances that you will have severe symptoms of the coronavirus. So that's that's good. But it's not nearly as good as a vaccine which is superior to it that has like a 90 to 95% efficacy rate. It's way better than 60-whatever with the Johnson & Johnson. It's kind of like old technology. Now... It is true that the Johnson & Johnson requires just one dosage and it requires uh, only regular refrigeration instead of these very cold temperatures where the mRNA vaccines of Pfizer and Moderna must be stored at. So it's much easier to store, much easier to transfer, much easier to bring to rural areas that may not have the freezing facilities. So it's not that this doesn't have a use and it's not that it doesn't have a convenience factor because it does. It's just this isn't the vaccine you want to get. If you're going to get a vaccine, I would say you'd want to get the best one. The Pfizer and Moderna are pretty equivalent, but this Johnson & Johnson is just much inferior. Now there's some discussion that just because you get the Johnson & Johnson doesn't mean that you're not going to eventually get the Moderna anyway for the extra protection. Now, that's true, but you'll probably be waiting a long time. Once you get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you're going to be in the very back of the line as far as getting the Moderna or Pfizer, and presumably you'll only get that once they have everyone vaccinated, and then anyone who wants to go for a second round of the better vaccine can do so. But we may be looking at something like September before that happens. I personally wouldn't want to take a vaccine where it's not effective enough to where I can feel confident going out. And if it's only 60-something percent, I'm not going to feel confident. That's like a one in three chance, maybe even more than that, that I'll still get COVID. Now, yes, with the vaccine, there's a decent chance that I will get a lesser version of COVID, than I would have gotten if I were unvaccinated. But still, I could still get enough of a version of COVID to where I would get that permanent damage I discussed earlier that I really don't want to get. So this just isn't effective enough. I just wouldn't feel that confident with this vaccine. Whereas with the Moderna and the Pfizer, not only does it have this very high efficacy rate, but the severe illness with it is especially low. So with that vaccine, I would feel very good about going back out into normal society and not worrying about COVID. With the Johnson & Johnson, I'd be plenty worried about COVID, and this really wouldn't do me much good. I think I'd still be acting fairly similar to how I am now. 
I read an editorial about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that people shouldn't turn up their nose at it, that something's better than nothing. But for the reasons I just stated, I disagree, because it'll then put you in the line behind everybody else. You'll not be able to get the Moderna or Pfizer for a very long time. And through most of 2021, you're going to be walking around not knowing if you're in that unlucky third or maybe as much as 40% that is uh, vulnerable to COVID. Now, public health officials really want you to take the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because they just want people vaccinated because there are a number of COVID variants, uh, mutated COVID versions that are out there, which are much more contagious. And they are afraid that if people don't get vaccinated quickly, this thing is going to spread worse than it ever did before. So they just want everyone to get vaccinated because public health officials don't care about you personally. They don't care if you are protected, if you get sick, if you get lung damage, if you die. What they want is the collective to have a better result. Public health officials want it to spread less. They want it to... uh, They want the incidence of COVID to go down. That is the goal. The goal is not for you to be healthier. So if you take the vaccine, the chance of you transmitting it becomes lower. So that's why they want you to take it. If fewer people are transmitting it, the chance of it successfully mutating and spreading is much lower. So don't be fooled into believing this vaccine is roughly the same as the other two, because it is not. Before you get vaccinated, I would recommend that you call around and find out which vaccine is being given out because before it didn't matter much between Pfizer and Moderna. Now it matters. So I would be checking. And if it's the Johnson and Johnson one, I'd probably pass and make another appointment elsewhere to get the Pfizer and the Moderna one. About 4 million doses will be available for ordering right away. And this can add about 25% more COVID-19 vaccination capacity for states. So we're going to see a lot of these doses coming in. But I don't think that's what I want. I had wondered when these were being developed, these non-mRNA vaccines. I was like, you know, if the mRNAs work out, I don't see how the other ones can compete. And the answer is they kind of can't. But it's being treated like, well, better than nothing. Might as well do it. Now, if they could give you this, and then this would not affect your priority for the other vaccines then I would do it because there it's a free roll. I admit I would rather have a mediocre vaccine that would at least give me some protection over no vaccine if this doesn't get in the way of me getting the good vaccine. That's what they should do, but they won't. But I think that would uh, that would encourage people to do it. Yeah, I'm looking at the FDA analysis here. It says of 19,630 participants who received the vaccine and 19,691 who received a placebo, and of course neither knew what they were getting, that it was 67% effective in preventing moderate to severe COVID-19 within 14 days and 66% in preventing 
moderate to severe COVID-19 within 28 days. So it looks like it's, it helps some, but it's just it's just not doing enough to where you could feel that confident. Let's move on here. I want to talk about the age-based system, which is suddenly becoming something that all the states are doing. I shouldn't say all the states. Something that most of these states are doing. And this was not the original CDC recommendation, as I have said before on this show, and in fact I criticized it on this show, when I talked about how the U.S. was the only country doing the stupidity and recommending the stupidity where they distribute the vaccine partially based upon racial equity. And I don't mean racial equality. I think it's fine to make sure that all races have equal access to the vaccine. Not only I think it's fine, I think that should be done. I don't want to see any particular race somehow have a more difficult time getting access to the vaccine. So any attempts to fix that is fine. But what I don't want to see is where they're giving unfair priority to certain races based upon social reasons or in order to right some past wrong about something else. That's what the U.S. was seeking to do. And that's why the U.S. originally recommended through the CDC that, quote, essential workers of any age get vaccinated in the same group, meaning they're competing for the same vaccines as those 65 and older. That means 25-year-old grocery store workers would have the same access, the same priority level as someone who is 95 years old, but not not living in a nursing home. And that's insane. There's no question the 95-year-old should get it first. But according to that priority system, the 95-year-old and the 25-year-old would be on equal footing competing for it. And since there's very limited numbers of these vaccines, the young people would have the advantage of being much more computer savvy to set this up. As we talked about last week, remember that guy called in whose mom didn't even have a computer. His 94-year-old mom, the only way she was able to get a vaccine was when he set the whole thing up for her. So this is a huge mistake. We were the only first world country doing it this way. Every other first world country was doing it based upon age. And the belief before was that, uh, well, yes, doing it based upon age will save lives, but there's some things more important than saving lives. We've treated some of these minority races so poorly in this country for so long Let's give them a leg up on this one. And I'm saying, no, this is the wrong time to inject racial politics into something. You just make sure that everybody has equal access to it based upon need for it, not based upon any other political factor. And when I said this, I had many on the left giving me a hard time, telling me that I'm being racist, telling me that I don't understand, that I need to... uh, Uh, I need to look at the big picture, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, it's very simple. You save the most lives. And I said, you know what? You know who this is going to kill? It's going to kill a lot of elderly, non-white people. It's going to kill a lot of elderly black people because they're going to have a hard time getting the vaccine competing with all the younger people who shouldn't even be in that early priority group. Well, turns out all the states have realized that 
this is probably correct, that they probably should not be doing it based upon any kind of uh, racial equity reason. They should just do it based on age, because that's what uh, the rest of the world's doing, and that's the way it makes sense. That saves the most lives. So with these variants showing up, and with uh, the shortage of vaccines, it has been decided by most states that they're going to abandon all the racial equity stuff and just do it by age. Hmm. Now, who was advocating this the whole time? Who was saying the whole time this is how they should have done it? Hmm. Now, there are some complaints about this new system that it screws people who are under 65 but have major pre-existing conditions. And I feel for these people. You know, people who have cancer, diabetes, other major health issues, yet they aren't 65, and thus it's going to be a while till they get the vaccine. So if you're 63 years old and you have cancer, it's got to be really annoying that you can't get the vaccine where someone who's healthy two years older than you can. And I feel bad for these people, but I understand it. And one of the reasons I understand it is because it is hard to verify who really has these conditions and who doesn't. It's not that hard to falsify. Whereas age is a lot harder to falsify. You'd have to, you'd have to bring a fake ID to get the vaccine, and you'd have to look the part. For example, I would have a hard time showing up and saying I'm 65. I would get a lot of strange looks. There would be a lot of suspicion if I were to pretend to be 65 to get the vaccine. 55, yeah. I, I, I could go say I'm 55. I, they probably think I look young for my age, but I'm not so far from 55 to where it's impossible to look like me and, and be 55. A 65-year-old who looked like me would be one of the youngest-looking 65-year-olds of all time. So I don't think anybody would ever meet me in present day and think there was any chance I could be 65. So even if I had a fake ID saying I was 65, I'd be looked at with a lot of suspicion and uh, rightfully so. And even people younger than me would have even a harder time pretending to be 65. So age, what's good about it is it's hard to fake. It's hard to lie about. And you need the ID and you have to look the part enough to be able to get away with it. Now, yeah, someone 60 with a fake ID could easily do it. But uh, like someone my age would have a very hard time. Whereas saying, oh, I have cancer, oh, I have diabetes, oh, I have uh, whatever other illness would qualify that's a lot harder to disprove on the spot. And you don't want to put the workers whose job it is to administer vaccines, you you don't want to make them into detectives. You want it to be a very simple process where it's easy to tell who qualifies and who doesn't. So it's a tough thing because you have people who really should be getting it, not getting it. You want to help these other people, but how do you do it without... uh, bringing on those who will abuse the system and the answer is there's no way you got to do one or the other so a number of states which before said that they were going to do it based upon uh, this racial equity plan have scrapped that connecticut is one of them governor ned lamont of connecticut said that uh, the risk is just too high for people over 65 to not prioritize them a number of other states, 
I don't have it in front of me how many of them, but uh, a number of other states have abandoned that. Even California is pushing away from their original racial equity plan and trying to get uh, old people down there to get this done, to get vaccinated. Uh, Rhode Island, will uh, they have an age-based plan. Uh, Nebraska said uh, they're going to issue plans to give certain people an ability to get the vaccine if they have major pre-existing conditions, but that everybody else will have to be 65 or older at the moment. Connecticut has moved on to vaccinating people who are 55 and older. So they've actually been vaccinating enough people to where they're able to move down to the next tier, but they are still receiving criticism for the fact that they're not considering pre-existing conditions. There's really no way to win here. The 40 states that adopted plans to prioritize people with major conditions, they mostly have an honor system where they don't really have an attempt to verify it. Not only can't they verify it, they don't really attempt to do it. And some of the problem is that people lie. People are just saying they have these illnesses so they can get vaccinated. So they have to balance the type of a system which either is going to screw people out of getting it when they should be one of the top priorities, like people who are uh, who have major pre-existing conditions that are middle-aged or older, either screw them out of it at the beginning, or um, but but then be able to prevent a lot of the gaming of the system or allow some gaming of the system and be able to vaccinate these people. So there's, there's no way to do both. But the states have mostly come around to believe that this racial equity version of the vaccination is a mistake and that that should not have been done. Now, there are those who are making excuses for it. Uh, in Washington, D.C., the city's health department said Age is not a good metric for disease severity, nor disease progression. What? (laughs) Age is the biggest metric for that. It's not the only factor, but it is the biggest factor. That is the simplest factor to be able to predict somebody's risk of dying from the coronavirus. Is their age. Look at the numbers. There's a tremendous difference. There's even a tremendous difference between being 45 and 25, as I mentioned earlier in this show. So to say age, age is not a good metric is demonstrating that you're a moron who can't read simple statistics. Then we even had a doctor say this. Dr. Anna Nunez at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine said age doesn't necessarily reflect overall risk and that housing employment and other social determinants can raise a healthy person's chance of getting the virus. Come on. (laughs) Now, you may say, wait a minute, she has a point. And yes, getting the virus. We're not talking about getting the virus. In fact, I will go as far to say that if you are young, you have a higher chance of getting the virus than someone who is old. Because someone who is old 
is more likely to be cautious and stay away from it, whereas someone who's young is not that worried and will go out and take chances. So getting the virus, oh yeah, you're more likely to get it if you're young. And you're more likely to get it if you are in uh, a housing situation with a number of different people. And if you're in a job where there's a bunch of people crammed into small space. But we're talking about getting it and having a bad outcome. And people who are young are not going to have a bad outcome. So this is how they play with words to make it uh, sound different than it is. So this person is trying to defend the racial equity strategy by saying, oh, well, uh, housing, employment, and social determinants can raise a healthy person's chance of getting the virus. Then you go, oh, wow, well, she's a doctor. That must be true. Well, yeah, it is true. We're talking about the, the virus hurting people, not just them getting it. It's so stupid. By the way, this Anna Nunez is the vice dean for diversity, equity, and inclusion at the University of Minnesota. So there, there you go. This is where a lot of the dishonesty is. So uh, then there's other things like experts say that black people, Hispanic people, and Native American people are dying at disproportionately higher rates. Okay. But why is that? You have to look why that is. It is What, what are the obesity rates in these communities? Or might there be some kind of hereditary factor in these communities to where they're at higher risk of dying? Or is it because uh, they are in a life circumstance where they tend to be more exposed? Or might they just be showing less caution than white people are? There, there could be many factors. You can't just say, oh, well, it's a racist disease because uh, these, these, these races are getting it more. These races are dying more often from it. You have to look why. If you determine that the reason it's happening is because they're just getting worse care when they go in to get treated for it, then yeah, you got to change that. Then you've got to go after that and find out why that's happening and reform it. But uh, you can't just jump to these conclusions because a certain percentage of a certain race is dying compared to another race. So the whole thing's stupid. It's it just be very simple. This is one of the cases where the simplest method is the best method, and that is just by age. It's astoundingly different as you go up by decade. Every decade you get older, it gets much more, much worse for you. So it stands to reason you vaccinate by age. And the states are finally realizing this, aside from a small percentage of them, which are sticking to their dumb plan from before. Okay, now we're going to talk about something else, which is not really about... COVID and vaccinations for the general public. This is not really a public health issue, what I'm going to talk about. It's more of a dispute that came up, a workplace dispute, and you can decide who's right or wrong. And there's no right or wrong answer to this. This is just a matter of opinion. I will give my opinion. You will have your opinion. And uh, this is not one that is completely straightforward. But I thought it was interesting, and it's been going around on social media today, so I figured I might as well make it part of our COVID segment. An individual named Ben Bonima, who is from New York and works at a Trader Joe's in New York, tweeted out today that he was fired from Trader Joe's because he complained that they were not being COVID safe. 
This is what he tweeted. Trader Joe's just fired me for sending this letter to the CEO saying that I don't share the company's values. I guess advocating for a safer workplace isn't a company value? All right. That, that interested me. Let's let's see why Trader Joe's fired Mr. Bonima. So he wrote, Dear Mr. Bain, who's the CEO of Trader Joe's, my name is Ben Bonnema, and I'm writing on behalf of myself and whoever, both crew members at Store 545 in New York City. Last week, more than a dozen scientists called on the Biden administration to set better air standards for workplaces. It's becoming more and more clear that aerosol particles, likely more so than surfaces or even droplets, are a significant source of COVID transmission. Okay. I agree. I've been saying that too. So, so far, you've got me, Ben Bonnema. You, you're, you're, Speaking right to me here. I You're preaching to the choir. Let's go on. Unfortunately, ASHRAE and the CDC and OSHA, the, the CDC, you know what that is, the others are uh, workplace uh, uh, or safety organizations, have downplayed the dangers of aerosols since the pandemic's origins, so saying that Trader Joe's exceeds their standards isn't good enough. We should be following the guidelines of scientists who study respiratory transition, transmission. Scientists like the ones who wrote the letter detailed this in the New York Times piece, and then he gave a link. Okay, let's stop there. While I agree the CDC has been crap about a lot of this stuff, and I understand the guy's point, you can't write to the CEO of a corporation and say, hey, the CDC and these other government organizations are crap, so saying that you're meeting their standards or exceeding their standards is meaningless. So here's what you need to do. So you can't say that to a corporation. You can say this to your buddy. You can say this maybe to a small business owner. You can't say this to the CEO of a large corporation that, hey, I don't trust these government organizations, so we need to way exceed what they're saying because they're wrong. They're wrong and I'm right. Now, you may actually be right, Ben Bonima, but I'm saying that you can't approach a CEO of a major corporation this way because they they are looking to comply with what the government puts out. They, they, they can't go off the rails like this. They can do additional things, but you can't require this of them or demand this of them if, the, if all the CDC is saying uh, is such and such that they're keeping to. Going on. Additionally, a recent paper from the Journal of Hospital Infection recommends, aside from the obvious benefits of personal protective equipment, the existing evidence is sufficiently strong to warrant engineering controls targeting airborne airborne transmission as part of an overall strategy to limit the risk of infection indoors. This would include sufficient and effective ventilation, possibly enhanced by particle filtration and air disinfection, and avoidance of systems that recirculate or mix air. Okay, again, I agree. But that's in a perfect world. That would be what would be the safest thing to do. But what is a practical thing to do? What is a practical thing to expect large corporations to do? That's a different story. Because this is all very expensive and burdensome and troublesome and time-consuming. So you have to balance that with whatever safety benefit it provides. Stephanie recently said that filters are getting changed more frequently. Stephanie is the supervisor. This is good, but more can be done. We recommend the following practices to be adopted at Store 545 immediately. So this is where he goes completely out in the woods because he starts listing all these totally insane changes that 
they need to make there that are never going to happen. Just make them sound like he's a demanding jerk. Number one, improve filtration. Right now, we're using MERV 7 filters, but the CDC recommends MERV 13 filters. Hmm. Shame, shame. When I asked the worker changing the filters of our system could handle MERV 13, he said, I don't know, that information has been painted over, and he bolded painted over. You'd have to ask the manufacturer. Can we ask the manufacturer? So, so he's obsessing over the filters being MERV 7 instead of MERV 13. Look, be happy you have any MERV filters there. You know, I, I'd understand if they were MERV Griffin filters, but anything beyond that, MERV 7, MERV 13, it's all okay to me. <laughs> uh, you got to be kidding me. He's writing to the CEO saying they've got to go from MERV 7 to MERV 13. Okay. Number two, increase our air change per hour ACH. What's the capacity of our HVAC system? Can we increase our ACH? We've been told that you're, quote, working with the facilities manager, but that gives us no real information. Are the air filtration systems on an energy-efficient setting? If so, now is not the time. We need to prioritize saving lives by pushing our filtration systems to their max, bringing in most of the outside air if possible. Okay. Look, again, you can't have them redo the HVAC systems and all these Trader Joe's to recirculate more air into the place. Also, this may not even be something that is beneficial. This could be worse. Yes, bringing in fresh outside air is good, but the more air moves that is blown around by an air conditioner or heater indoors, the more COVID spreads. So what you may be proposing here you think is good, it could actually could be bad. But even if it is good, you, you can't expect this of Trader Joe's. But wait, it gets worse. Number three, limit store capacity based on CO2 levels. If we purchase CO2 monitors and adjust occupancy when shared air exceeds healthy levels, 700 parts per million, we will all be safer. <laughs> what? What? So they're going to kick people out of Trader Joe's because the CO2 level goes above 700 parts per million? Are you kidding me? They're, they're going to be monitoring the CO2 levels in Trader Joe's and, and, and constantly adjusting the capacity? They're going to have someone at the door? Oh, hold on, hold on. You can't come in here. The CO2 just busted up to 701. We're, we're over 700. Sorry. CO2 emergency. Everybody out. Like, it's not realistic. What is he talking about? He really thinks monitoring the CO2 and rapidly changing the capacity of the store on the fly is the right solution? You think that's a practical solution? Number four, not allowing anyone inside the store without a mask for any reason. The ADA, that is the American Disabilities Act, requires that we offer reasonable accommodation, which we do by offering to shop for them. If they refuse, we should not let them in. See, now he's getting obnoxious. He's saying that people who have some kind of disability that won't allow them to wear a mask, that you should just not let them in. And that the way you accommodate them is you shop for them. You say, I don't care if you have a disability. You are going to wear a mask in here. And if you can't, we will shop for you. Otherwise, F off and get out of here. Maybe they don't want you shopping for them. Maybe they maybe they want to shop normally. 
So for the few people that can't wear a mask because of disabilities, you're now saying that you're going to give them a big fat middle finger and you're going to shop for them? And otherwise, tough luck on them? There's no way that uh, Trader Joe's goes along with this. Again, this is one of these things where you can't just say the government's wrong, do it differently. If the ADA says that they have to offer reasonable accommodations for those who can't wear a mask, then they have to offer reasonable accommodations, not just say you can't come in. And uh, Number five may be my favorite. Adopt a three-strikes policy when it comes to removing uncooperative people from our stores. I was recently shouted and sworn at by a customer who would not wear his mask above his nose, despite uh, mates, whoever that is, already asking him to do so. He was allowed to finish shopping and check out. So he wants there to be a three strikes and you're out policy where three times caught with a mask and you are banned from Trader Joe's. (laughs) He wants Trader Joe's mask bans. If you are caught without a mask, or at least if it's not completely over your mouth and nose, three times, three times, you're out of here! Out of here! Can you believe that? He really thinks they should maintain a log of people? (laughs) Like, how do you even do this? How how do you count the three strikes? How how do you know that some guy who just had it happen a third time had two previous strikes? Do you make him show ID so you can give him the strike? What if they doesn't want to? How, How do you maintain three strikes? Who does this? Did they hire a new three strikes officer? He really thinks there should be a three strikes and you're out rule for customers. <laughs> I mean, he really, he's not joking about this stuff. He really believes that there needs to be a three strikes rule. Take me out to the store game. Take me out to Trader Joe's. Buy me some specialty cheese and crackers. I don't care if one employee is whackers and will root, root, root for the masking. If I don't wear it's a shame. Cause it's one, two, Three strikes, you're out at the COVID game. Ben Bonhamma wants me to wear a mask at all times. It doesn't matter that he's 25. He thinks I'll cough and he won't stay alive. So we'll root, root, root for the filters. If it's not Merv, it's a shame. Cause it's one two three strikes i'm out at the trade store game (laughs) okay that's pretty stupid that is a really really stupid suggestion he finishes off saying we're writing to you because we know that alex stephanie and bob are reflecting your corporate policy and these changes can only come with your approval We put our lives on the line every day by showing up to work. Please show up for us by adopting these policies. Thank you, Ben Bonema. Okay, as I mentioned in the song, Ben Bonema looks pretty young. I don't know how old he is, but he looks like way younger than me. If if he's not way younger than me, either she's using an old picture or a filter or he just looks great for his age. But 
he looks like a younger guy. So I don't know what he's so worried about. That's that's the first thing. But you could say, okay, maybe he's concerned for employees who are older than he is. The bottom line is you've got to understand how corporations work. A low-level employee cannot write to the CEO and force a bunch of major changes to happen. That's not how it works. A, a bunch of major, burdensome, expensive changes. You, you can't just demand these and say, well, the world would be better if you did this, so so do it now. That's not how it works. So what ended up happening, as he mentioned in his tweet, was he got fired. And here was the letter he got. They, they, I guess they gave it to him as they fired him at the store. It says, termination. Your employment is at will, which means Trader Joe's may terminate you at any time without cause or notice. Store management will determine the appropriate action based upon the particular facts and circumstances. In a recent email, you suggest adopting a three-strike policy against customers and a policy if enforcing the same accommodation for every customer with a medical condition that precludes them from wearing a mask. These suggestions are not in line with our core values. In addition, you state that Trader Joe's is, quote, not showing up for us without adopting your policies. It is clear you do not understand our values. As a result, we are no longer comfortable with having you work for Trader Joe's. So that was it. They fired him. So I don't agree with firing him here unless he has a history with doing things like this. If this is really the first incident and they just fired him for this, I think that was overkill. I think that wasn't the best form. I mean, he was being obnoxious and he was asking for ridiculous things, but he also wasn't doing anything offensive. He was trying to help. He's trying to write what he believes should be changes they make. And uh, if they don't want to implement any of them, they they just either ignore it or write back and say, sorry, uh, we're choosing not to do any of these things at this time for such and such reason. But firing him, I think, is too far. But it's possible that he was instigating with other employees that uh, riling them up and it's possible they just felt he was a constant nuisance and they didn't want him there. He definitely doesn't understand the way corporate America works. He doesn't understand how you talk to a CEO in a letter. He doesn't understand what you can expect when you write to a CEO like this. This is one of these cases also where simplicity is your friend. Basically, he should have picked the most important thing he wanted to see changed here and then also make sure this is something relatively simple to do. For example, he could say that MERV 13 filters are substantially better than MERV 7 filters for this and this reason. Can they please consider using those going forward? And drop all the other crap about three strikes and monitoring CO2 levels and kick people out of the store if it's too high. Like That's insane. It's insane. It's totally unrealistic. So just bring up something simple. Since they're using these MERV 7 filters anyway, say, hey, how about you switch to MERV 13 instead? It'll help us here. So just next time you buy MERV 7s, instead buy MERV 13s. Okay, done. Like, I think if he approached it with just that and left everything else out, I think that uh, this would have not only not gotten him fired, there's even a small chance they would have said, okay, fine, let's do it. For the most part, he'd probably get ignored, but at least he'd have a shot there. At least it's reasonable to have all this other crap in there. He, he really wanted the whole Trader Joe's uh, procedures with COVID to change, just based on his letter. And the problem is, there's only so much a corporation can spend 
to mitigate uh, COVID risk. There's only so much they can spend to try to make the workplace safe to where they will spend themselves into oblivion and go out of business anyway. So it's unfortunate there's a COVID risk there. There's a COVID risk in a lot of places in life right now. You can't completely eliminate it. So it sounds like he wants them to just spend, 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 and also waste a lot of time and resources to, and also alienate customers. I mean, can you imagine a three-strike system? Can you imagine, steer right to, one more time and you're out. You're out of here. I mean, can you imagine how the customers would react if there's someone doing that to them there? For him to think this is realistic and actually write a letter like that is crazy. But still, you don't fire him because the intent behind the letter was not bad. It was really just to get them to do what he thought was safer. They just shouldn't have taken most of it seriously. And I I think just not responding at all might be the best approach. And then if he continues to bitch about it, then fire him. Or respond to his supervisors and say, hey, he sent a letter to us. uh, Let him know we've exceeded the standards of the CDC. That's all we're doing now. Please let him know not to... uh, that this matter is closed and and not to cause issues with the rest of the staff about this, or otherwise we will have to let him go. Something something like that. Kind of inform his bosses, tell him to tone it down or he's gone. To just fire him for sending that letter, I don't think that looks good, and now they're having to answer to it on social media. I will say on social media, he is more getting bashed than supported. Most people are not very happy with his letter. They're saying that it looks like It's just too demanding, too crazy, too uh, particular. And they're right. I looked at this guy's profile, and he's one of these people who's not trans, but puts down their pronouns. So he puts down he slash him. If you look at the guy's picture, it's very clearly he's a dude. It's very clear he's a dude, and he's not trans. He's just a dude. I think he might be gay, but that doesn't really matter here. And that has nothing to do with his pronouns. Pronouns is about being trans, not about your sexual preference. Uh, he has a rainbow flag there. So, yeah, presumably he's gay or bi or something, but no point to what he, him. It's not like he looks like a girl and you can't really tell. But I see this a lot. I see this a lot from people who are on the extreme left that they put this on their profile to virtue signal. And that's just really dumb. The only reason to put he, him down is if you think that others may be confused as to what to call you. I see men and women doing this who were born men and women who look very much like their birth gender. And they put that down there just to just to perform, just to look like they're sensitive to trans people. And it's dumb. It's really dumb. I don't think I have to tell you to call me he and him. I think it's obvious. I think if you look at a picture of me, you don't ever think I might be a girl. You don't ever think that I'm someone who transitioned. You don't think I'm someone who might want to be called something other than he and him. It's something that's easy to assume. So people who are still their birth gender, who haven't transitioned, who aren't going to transition, and still put down pronouns like that, I find to be very insufferable. And this guy kind of seems like that. Talk about having no grasp on reality of working for a corporation. Jeez. Okay, so let's move on to the final topic, and that is the tip 
of the week, the Jew tip of the week. We don't do this every week, but we do this some weeks because, you know, I am a Jew and sometimes I have some tips for you. So, what's this week? What is this week's Jew tip? Has to do with medical billing. And medical billing has been a pet peeve of mine for a long time. And I'm currently going through a medical billing situation, which I'm mostly done with. I've been victorious over the situation in all but one small aspect, which I'm still fighting out, but I will explain to you what's going on, and then I'm going to explain to you what you can do if you have medical bills that are surprising, are too high, anything like that, any medical billing concern. Or maybe even if you don't have a concern, you may want to think about this. So the U.S. has a very weird billing system that people in other countries just find bizarre. And I don't blame them. It is bizarre. Now, I will say that socialized medicine, in my opinion, sucks. The waiting sucks. Having a primary physician act as a gatekeeper and deciding whether you get to see a specialist sucks. Waiting a long time to get tests sucks. Having tests denied to where you can't get them sucks. Waiting a long time to see a specialist sucks. All these things suck and... With these being a factor, then the healthcare system is so much worse than what we have in the U.S. that even without all this BS I'm about to discuss, which doesn't occur in other countries, I'm still one who would rather have this than the other way. I want to be able to see a specialist fairly quickly. I want to be able to get the tests that I want to get and not have some jerk deny it. I don't want a gatekeeper a gatekeeper doctor telling me when I can or cannot see a specialist or have to wait five months to see a specialist. It's insane. So I guess if you're used to that system, it doesn't seem bad to you. It's something I would never want, and it's something I think a lot of Americans would never want if they were to actually experience it. They'd wish to go back to the old days where... You could see a specialist quickly. I've gotten into specialists same day. And I'm talking about in the last few years, not like 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And if not same day, it's usually within a few days. Once in a while longer than that, but nothing like the five months it can take or more in other countries. Or you can just be denied outright from seeing a specialist. So the U.S. system needs reform is what it needs. I don't believe it needs socialized medicine. I believe it needs reform. And where some of the greatest reform is needed, but yet neither party really talks about it very much, is medical billing. Because medical billing is a mess. It's a disaster. It's incredibly confusing and hard to follow. It is opaque. And what I mean by that is that you have no idea what you're paying for until after you've already bought it. It's the only thing in life that I believe is like that here in this country, where everything else, you know the price before you buy it, you make a decision as a consumer, okay, I want that, or I don't want that. Like, I make a decision as a consumer with Skype, whether I want to take a phone call, and I get this call from uh, this individual, and I say, okay, I'll take it. 
Is this a colonoscopy show? It's about to be. Jesus Christ. I just woke up. It's too early for this. How you doing, buddy? I'm I'm tired, I'll be honest here. I'm I'm oh, I've Jesus. been I've been struggling here. I'm not gonna be able to go for a long time here. It's just uh I, I wanted to get out this topic and then I gotta shut it down. I How long have you been alone for, buddy? Uh maybe two and a half hours, but you know, it's just I got up early today, so I had a feeling this show was going to be a struggle for me to complete, and I, I've gotten through everything except that this is not going to be so much about a colonoscopy. This is going to be about uh, medical billing. In fact, uh, I'll ask you if you if you've had these experiences. Did I, so, did I miss all the good stuff already? Then I assume. Yeah. Oh Christ! Well, wake up earlier. Oh, buddy, you know, <laughs> pandemic going on out here. All right. Well, I'll stick with you till the. Uh, to the outcome, I guess. Okay, so the, the the problem is you go to the doctor, and it all seems very straightforward at first. You give them your insurance, they see you, they ask you questions, they examine you, maybe they'll run a test or two, you go home, you'll get a treatment plan, maybe you go out and get medicine, whatever it is. It all seems pretty straightforward. You get a bill, and you open it, and you go, what the hell is this? You, you see all these different items on the bill, sometimes 20 different items for a single office visit. Most of which makes no sense. Most of it is terminology you don't understand. Sons of bitches. Sometimes it's in abbreviations that even if, if, if you, uh, maybe if it was not abbreviated, you'd understand it or partially understand. It. Anyway, it's a mess. It's very hard to understand, very hard to follow. I'm good at this. I have a hard time following it. I know more about medical billing than probably like uh, 99% of Americans or maybe more than 99% of Americans. I still sometimes get confused. So I can imagine for the average American how difficult this is. And what happens at that point is people don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to even question it. And sometimes it's way more than you expect. And it's a whole complicated system where first the doctor's office submits some insanely high bill to the insurance company. Then the insurance company forces them to write most of it off, sometimes more than 90% because of, because of the contract they have. Then the insurance company sends a check for whatever amount they agree to, and then the remainder is on you. But you'll see like 20 different items, and you, you won't know what you're paying for, and what, you know, what may be extraneous, what may be wrong. It's very hard to tell. So there's also ways there could be mistakes, because for the same thing, it can be coded a bunch of different ways, because it's all coding. This is all done with codes. Everything that's done at the doctor's office, they enter a code, or several codes usually, which then is used by the insurance company to process what was done and what you owe and what they owe, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of times there's a lot of different ways to code the same thing. And these medical billers, they work to enter the most lucrative codes for themselves usually, so they make the most money. But sometimes that now, screws is this, you. Is this where you being a former computer scientist comes in handy or has nothing to do with no, it? No, it has nothing to do with it. No, I, I, that doesn't help. But I just, I just learned the system. That's, so, so anyway... Uh, I'll give you an example of what's going on with me, and then I'll tell you guys of what to do for yourself, If not just with a colonoscopy, with any kind of medical p- procedure, uh, even an ER visit. That's a big one where you can do this. Uh, how to bring the bill down to where you pay less. Because I'll tell you what often happens if you call up and bitch about a bill. What they like to do is tell you you're wrong, tell you all the reasons you're wrong, use a bunch of jargon, which is complicated and you don't really understand, but they act like you do, and then they offer you a payment plan. 
Well, yeah, you you owe uh, you owe us twenty one hundred dollars, but how about you send us one hundred dollars a month for twenty one months? And you know what? A lot of people say, "Okay, fine. I don't love it, but I can afford a hundred dollars a month. I mean, I can I can scrape by. I'm not, I'm not talking about like rich people that it doesn't matter to. I'm talking about like people who are, who that the hundred dollars a month means a lot to, and they they back down because they think a hundred dollars a month isn't crushing. It's not something they like, but they can they can handle it." And and people think that way, unfortunately. I wish they didn't, but peop- a lot of people think the way of, like, as long as in the moment it doesn't break me, I'm all right. So if i got to pay $100 a month for 21 months, fine. They don't bother to think, maybe this 2100 isn't right. Maybe I can fight it. Maybe I can get it reduced. Maybe I can just dig my heels in and say no. And maybe I can get them to accept much less. They just think, okay, 100 a month, I can handle that. So they'll push you towards a payment plan. Or they'll threaten your credit. So, um... If if you think your partner is going to fold, if, you know, your, your opponent at a poker table is going to fold. If you think their hand isn't that strong, and let's say you're both you both have a lot of chips, and you bet, and they raise you, and you think they're not strong, Brandon, what what do you do in that case? If wait, if I'm the one raising them when they're not strong, you they're you, you bet and they raise you, and you've got a strong belief that they don't have very much. I'm going to three bet. Right, you're going to three bet them. So you got to do is the same thing in these these positions with these with these uh, healthcare providers. You've got to go in from a position of strength, and you've got to believe that they don't have it, and they will fold if you press them. And by fold, I mean they will back down and let you pay much less. Why? Well, let me ask you this as an aside. I've seen some stories on the internet. I'm not sure if it's been confirmed or not that you once was multi-tabling mid to high stakes limit hold'em during a testing procedure for a potential heart attack? I, I did, yes. This was last year. This was uh, just as COVID was, was uh, trying to be taken seriously. To beat them. Yeah, I actually I did. I, I won the money back that I was uh, paying in the ER. <laughs> I really did. You to sign a waiver to get your laptop or something to walk outside? Well, yeah, that was – that was uh, what happened was they, they were leading me around to all these different places, and I was just waiting to tell them before they bring me to the final place where they're going to monitor me, hey, let me go to my car and get my laptop. But instead, the final place they lead me to, they're like, okay, well, here's your bed. Get in it. I go, oh, no, 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 I'm not ready for that. Oh, no, no, you, it's too late. You're already past this point. You can't turn around now. And I go, yes, I can. I'm, I want to get my laptop. So I got this whole standoff with them about it. And they, uh, I didn't want to admit it was for playing online poker. I just said I needed my laptop. So I, they're going to leave me in there for like two and a half hours being monitored. So I don't want to just sit there. It'd be boring. You know, I want to, I want to play poker. So, uh, I, uh, I, I, they kept telling me there's liability. And I said, okay, get, I'll, I'll sign anything that you have no liability. If something happens to me going to my car and back. Give it to me. I'll sign it. So then I, I killed that. I killed that excuse right there, and then they they finally backed down and agreed to do it. But they were afraid. They didn't say this to me, but I could tell they wanted to have someone monitoring me the whole way. But they were afraid afraid to send a female nurse with me just in case I like sexually harassed her and they were liable that way. So I had to wait like twenty minutes until a male nurse was available to go with me. They didn't say that, but I had to get, wait, 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 and finally like a dude comes over and walks with me. And I I know that was not random. I know they sent a dude with me because they were afraid that uh like what if something happens with a woman, like what if I pull the stop button in the elevator and rape her or something, so they, they figured a, a dude is much safer. If they only knew who they were dealing with here, I, 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 I'm the last one who's going to do that. I, well, I want to just get my freaking laptop and play Limit Hold'em. But uh, anyway, I, I did get the laptop, and, and I did play the, uh, the Limit Hold'em, and they didn't see me for it. So they didn't see what I was doing. They they just uh, saw I was on my computer. They didn't look at the screen. So uh, 
I, it would have been a little bit embarrassing if after all that that they saw that was the reason I wanted it. But they did not know. And it, and it turned out I didn't have a heart attack. It turned out I was okay. So anyway. And you uh, wanted the, and you wanted the limit hold'em too. And I wanted the limit hold'em. Yeah. I, I was thinking if I lose after all this, it's going to be really, really frustrating. But, uh, so, so back to this though. I, well, actually I'll, I'll, since you're talking about that visit, we'll, we'll, we'll bridge it together with something that's relevant to what I'm talking about now. Mm-hmm. I had an emergency room copay that's, contracted with my insurance that that uh, pretty much I've agreed to pay and uh, they said to me that they are willing to give me a discount like a one-third discount on it if I pay right now like if I hand them my credit card and pay it right now rather than billing me for it so I said okay and I did and they gave me the discount now what's funny is that uh, they're not technically supposed to do that. Their contract says they're supposed to collect the full copay. But nobody enforces this. So th- why, why did they offer this to me? Because ERs get stiffed constantly. Most uh, the, the Ken Scalers of the world. Ken Scaler has like $100,000 worth of, of back ER bills. I'm not even kidding. He just it was like going there whenever he had any kind of medical issue. And just wouldn't pay. So there's tons of people out there like him that just stiff the ER left and right. So basically you're saying the U.S. medical systems like the old Monty Hall's let's make a deal. Yeah, well, maybe even worse. So, 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 so what happens is when they find a sucker like me who's willing to pay, they're, they're very happy to have me. And so they don't know right away when I'm in there if I'm really going to pay or if I'm going to walk out and, and can scalar them and never pay the bill. So in order to entice me to give them the money, you know when they say a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush? Yeah. Well, so the same thing with with this. The, the, the payment in hand is better than a payment that they're going to ask me for later when I'm not there anymore. So, so we both ended up gaining from this because I paid less than I would have otherwise paid, and they didn't know I was going to pay the whole thing anyway. Or, but they, they knew that they get the money. So that was a form of now this they offered it to me I didn't offer this to them but you can also negotiate with the ER so if you get a hefty ER bill you can call up and you can tell them this is way too much I can't pay it and if they say well get on a payment plan you can say no 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 I don't mean like that I mean I can't afford to pay it I can't afford to pay the whole thing now I can't afford to do payment plans I I just can't afford I didn't expect the bill this high I just can't pay it and if you bring this down to much lower, I'll send it to you right now. I'll pay it right now. Send me a new bill. Don't just take their word for it, or they'll just take what you're paying now and then actually not reduce the bill sometimes. So send me a new bill, and I will pay it immediately, provided we, you know it, it's what we agree to. I, I know what I know. The bill is correct. I'm not saying it was wrong, but I can't pay it. So I really want to pay. I just can't really afford to pay that much. So how about you agree to accept less? You'll be surprised how much they will reduce the bill. Now, it depends on how high the bill is. But uh, like the, the higher it is, the, the bigger percentage reduction you'll actually get. Because like, let, let, let's say the bill is uh, $15,000. Well, a lot of people can't pay $15,000. So if you're willing to pay them uh, $5,000... They're often willing to take it. Sometimes they'll even take two thousand uh, dollars. 
Uh, but if, if, if the bill is uh, 200, you're not going to be able to say, hey, how about, how about I give you 30? They're not going to go for that. But uh, anyway, you get the point. You can negotiate with them, especially if it's high, and get them to bring it down. And just make sure they send you a new bill where they've written off the uh, amount that you you've want them to bring down. And that's that. And if you keep pressing, tell them you absolutely can't afford to pay, you're not going to pay, you don't care about your credit, and even if you care a lot about your credit, you can pretend you don't. They don't know if you do or don't. That's where the bluffing comes in. So you just tell them, I, I don't care about my credit. I don't care. I, I just cannot pay this. I'm not going to pay this for this much. If you can bring it down to something reasonable, I'll pay it. And then once they agree to, ask them to send me a new bill. As soon as I get it, I'll pay it right away. And then when they do, then you can pay it and it's done. Do not let them talk you to a payment plan. Tell them that's not what your, your problem is. It's not about splitting it. It's that you just can't afford it. You just can't afford a period. You don't, you don't want to split into a, a million different months because it's just going to burden you the rest of your life or for the next three years, whatever it's going to be. So you're not looking for them to split it. You're looking for them to produce it. And if they say no, they say, okay, well, I'm paying nothing then. And then you'll be surprised how quickly they back down because the last thing they want is a customer who otherwise was going to pay who says, no, you know what? Uh, because you're not dealing with me, I'm going to send you... Zero point zero. That's the last thing they want. If they think you're all ready to send them money, the last thing they want to do is send you away. Now, if it's outrageous, they won't do it. You can't call up with a, a $2,000 bill and tell them, hey, I want to pay you $100. They're, they're not going to accept that. But uh, something that is seems reasonable to them, they'll take. So that's with the ER. Now, with doctor's office, it's a little bit different because ERs, they know that uh, they have to take you. That no matter how much you stiff them before, they actually have to take you by law. Doctors' offices don't. Doctors' offices can say, we don't want to see you anymore. We, we don't want to have you as a patient anymore. So doctors' offices are less willing to uh, negotiate like this, but they will negotiate somewhat. So you can try the same thing with them, but just don't expect as much of uh, as much success. But you can always try to plead poverty and, and tell them you didn't expect the bill to be this high, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there's some other things. There is the matter of what's covered and what's not covered. And you can't just take the insurance company's word for it or the doctor's, com- the doctor's word for it of what is actually covered. Because you'll get a bill sometimes. You'll say you owe this much. And you'll look at the explanation. And it's not really clear of why certain things are covered and certain things are not or certain things are partially covered. And if anything seems to fail to make common sense to you, here's the little secret. You can talk your way out of it. I'll give you an example. This happened to me this year, 2021, with what Brandon said, my colonoscopy. A colonoscopy is supposed to be free. Because in uh, 2014, when Obamacare came into effect, it was required that preventative medicine is free. The idea being that if they make preventative medicine free, it'll encourage people to do it more, which I don't really agree with, but whatever. That's that's the way the law is. Now, preventative is a very broad term. What does preventative mean? Anything can be preventative. So that is where there's some problems of what is considered preventative and what's not. Every insurance company sees it differently. But for the most part, insurance companies think a colonoscopy is preventative as long as it's in the age range when you're supposed to do it. So if you're under 45, 
is probably not preventative in their opinion. If you're over 45 and have a family history, it's preventative. If you're over 50, with or without a family history, it's preventative. So I fit there. I'm over 45 and I have a family history. So for me, it should have been free. However, I got a bill for a number of different things. I got a bill for the initial visit where they like describe the whole thing and I ask questions and, and they give me information. I got a bill for that. I got a bill for uh, the taking out of the polyps. I got a bill for the al- analysis of the polyps. And I even got a bill for what they call ambulatory services. Do you know what ambulatory services are? No, no, no idea. No idea. I didn't know either. I had to look it up. Ambulatory services are just the kind of like outpatient services, like all the stuff they're doing for you in there. Yeah, you know, the the nursing services, the uh, the equipment, uh, all the other stuff they're using. It, it's all kind of under an umbrella called ambulatory services. So I got a bill for that too. So I'm going, what the heck? This is supposed to be free. So they told me, that's the insurance company, that the reason this is not free is because since they found polyps in me, it is no longer preventative because they're actually taking something out of me. <laughs> and that makes no sense because what they're doing is preventative. They're taking polyps out of me to prevent colon cancer. If they looked in my colon, it was clear then there's nothing preventative because they're not preventing anything. So uh, they, they didn't have much of an answer for that. They said, well, you know, they, they, have, to, they have to do certain things. We weren't, you know, that's, uh, once they're doing this, it becomes diagnostic. I said, look, it's very simple. I called up beforehand. I said, is the colonoscopy free for me, given my age and family history? And you said, yes. Well, but there's different circumstances. I said, no, but as a, as a customer, that's what I expect. You didn't say it's free unless there's polyps found. You said it's free. So they backed down and they took off most of the only thing I'm still fighting out is the very first visit where they gave me the information, but I think I'm going to win that too. But I, I, in total, I was billed almost $500 and I've gotten all but 65 of it taken off. Now, initially when I called up, they told me, no, they told me uh, this is the insurance company. They said, sorry. But I was able to talk to them. And so what they did is when, when I convinced them after their weak argument, they did something called writing it off where or giving you a one-time exception, which never really is one time. They just say that. And basically what they do is instead of me sending my part to the doctor, they send the check on my behalf to where I don't pay the doctor anything. So it's always worth taking a shot at this, especially if you have an individual health plan. If you have a group health plan through your work, it's a little harder. They're less cooperative about this. But if you have an individual plan, either one you pay for on your own or th- or through uh, the ACA or where uh, it's subsidized or whatever, if you have any individual health plan, you're not getting through work, then they will very often back down if you argue a charge and if you say, hey, can you just pay this and give a good argument. Just, just, and, and the, the argument should be, like, if you really didn't expect this, if something doesn't make sense to you, that's all you have to say. You just have to reason it out with them and they'll back down pretty quickly. So, you need to always question everything with medical billing. Every time you get a charge, you need to take a look, say, why is this being charged? Call the insurance company, make sure you're speaking to a U.S. rep, don't get the Philippines, they're useless, they won't negotiate with you. You got to get someone in the U.S. 
You get someone in the U.S., you tell them, uh, you ask them, why is this charged? Why is that charged? Don't let them tell you jargon. Have them explain it to you in, pl- in, in plain English. And if you don't agree, tell them. And then ask them, is there a way you can uh, that, that you can cover this anyway? Is there a way you can make an exception? You'll be surprised how frequent they do, how frequently you do, you get the exception, and how often you save money. And, and so that's negotiating with the insurance company, and you can especially negotiate with the ER and uh, with their bills, even with the copay for the ER, you can you can do that with, and with doctors' offices, you can sometimes get them to do this as well. You can sometimes get them to just write off part of it. You can claim, you know, the, 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 this bill. You didn't expect it to be this high. There's there's too many things being charged on here. Uh, it could have been billed a different way. And, and always ask, here's a good question to always ask the insurance company when you call them. Always ask them, was there a different way this could have been billed to where it could either be cheaper or to where it would have been free for me? Because sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes they'll say yes. Well, if they submitted this code instead, then it would have been cheaper or it would have been free. Then you say, okay... Tell me what to tell them, and then you call up the doctor and tell the doctor, can you please resubmit it? Because once they submit billing to the insurance company, it's not set in stone. They can always resubmit it, and it will override what was done before. So I've had that done, too, where I've told, I've called up the doctor and said, hey, can you please resubmit it as preventative? Can you please resubmit it as, uh, as part of the annual physical? Like You can ask them to do this, and they will. And then you won't have to pay your part. So always take a crack at this. And you'll be surprised how much money you will save. Now, with that said, Brandon, I'm going to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Have you gone to the doctor and gotten one of these type of bills that was like very confusing? It had a lot of like a million different charges on it for a relatively simple visit. Yes. And, and what did you do at that point? I'll talk to people that were smarter than me. <laughs> and then what did they tell you? They, I mean, what did, did, like in terms of paying it or just... Well, yeah, like what did you end up doing in these cases? Did you negotiate? Did you call the insurance company? Did you just pay it? What did you do? Um, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I've never paid. I've never negotiated. I mean, maybe I have years and years ago. Um I have a really good insurance, so fortunately I haven't been too much in that scenario where I've had to, you know, worry about that, if that makes sense. Um, I just have a small copay normally, and everything else more or less has been taken care of. Um, I've, I've had a couple where my insurance should cover, this seems to happen a lot more, my insurance should cover procedure, yet I still get a bill from them, and I've had to call and, and you know, kind of get hassle them to have it, you know, resubmitted, that sort of thing. But other than that, no. I mean, I've really been fortunate. Uh, you may have run well. Yeah. But I haven't had a lot of things that have been added on that shouldn't be or that my insurance didn't cover. So I've been, yeah, I would say I've been fortunate, I guess. Yeah, just about everybody I know has had this. And, in fact, uh, even my girlfriend in the time I've been with her, and keep in mind, she's actually one of the people who knows this really well, too. But uh, she just... Uh, uh, she feels less comfortable calling up and arguing, uh, like compared to me, where she she knows that I'm more comfortable doing this. So, like, she'll see it and understand that she's kind of being screwed here and get annoyed, and then I'll say, okay, well, I'll call for you, and 
So I, I will call up on her behalf and just say I'm her husband, even though we're not uh, technically married. And uh, I've negotiated these things off for her. So it's and there's been some that have been pretty egregious too, that just happened through no fault of her own. Like a good example was they she went to an ear, nose, and throat doctor. I forgot what for, but they this is years ago. But they they put up this scope that goes uh, a good deal up her nose, and they looked. They didn't even see much, whatever they were looking for, and uh, that was that. And she thought she was going to get billed for an office visit. Well, she gets this high bill for like a $250 surgery copay. And she's like, this has got to be a mistake. I didn't have surgery here. So she calls up the doctor and says, "What? why is this? Why am I being billed for surgery? And apparently this medical office submits a code that is considered surgery just because they put that scope a certain amount of uh, distance up your nose, which is insane. They didn't even do anything. It's not like they, they did any kind of surgery in her nose. They stuck a, a scope up there to look and pulled it back out. So it goes a few inches up your nose, all of a sudden it's surgery. So they tried to blame it on the insurance, and I wasn't having it. I just said, this is not surgery. If you're submitting it this way, you need to inform the patient before doing it. Before You should ask her before she gets before she gets this put up her nose, hey, we're going to build this a surgery. Uh, do you still want this? It's going to cost you 250 bucks to do. Like that's Well, we don't know your insurance. Well, no, but do a lot of insurances do this? Well, yes. Okay, well, then maybe you should warn the patient. So I, like, I had a whole debate with them, and they've, they've, the doctor's office finally backed down and, and agreed they're not going to charge it. What very famous 80s slash late 70s TV show had a line, had a character that commonly said, up your nose with a rubber hose. Um, it was like his trademark line. Kind of a there's a poker uh, connection too to it. Is there the show? It's... Up your nose with a rubber hose. Did I forget. All right, I'll tell you the I'll tell you the character that said it. On the, his name on the show was Arnold Horshack. Oh, okay. Welcome back, Cotter. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew it sounded familiar. I just forgot which one it was. Yeah. How is there a poker connection? Oh, I know why. Because it was Gabe Kaplan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gabe Kaplan. So okay. Uh, the 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 bottom line here is that you're going to find a lot of weird things like this over time. If you haven't run into it yet, you will. And a lot of times what they say, it sounds very convincing. Like the thing with uh, that surgery charge. You call up insurance, they say, well, this is the way the doctor submitted it. You need to talk to them. You call up the doctor, I'm sorry, but uh, this is the code we put for this. If the, if the insurance considers it surgery, then that's between you and them. Okay, then what do you do? Who do you talk to then? They're passing the buck to each other. So at some point, you have to just, uh, either side, you can do it to either one of them, say this makes no sense, this this is uh, not what I expected, this was a, a, an insane charge that uh, I could have never foreseen, and I need this either forgiven or paid. And often you'll be successful. You just have to be very aggressive about it, polite, but firm. And and you also have to get out of your head the fear that they're going to screw your credit. And here's another secret about credit and medical billing. And that is, and this is especially going to be true after COVID, when you are applying for a loan, let's say a car loan, a home loan, whatever, 
or let's say you're going to rent an apartment or let's say you're going to get a cell phone and they check your credit, if they see that your only black mark is medical debt, they typically ignore it. Now, not always. I don't want to give you a guarantee on that. But it is generally understood that because medical debt is not something you did voluntarily, that it's something that you had a health problem come up and couldn't pay, that that's different than irresponsible spending. What about other more uh, higher financial tools like loans, credit cards? Is it the same? What do you mean? Meaning, will they not look negatively on it? You said, you know, renting an apartment, buying a cell yeah, phone. Yeah, no, yeah. What usually, about usually, a credit card or oh, yeah. buying a house. Yeah, a usually, usually they will forgive this. Now, it, it it varies from bank to bank, but in general, with if it's only medical debt and nothing else, then they will typically look past it. Uh, occasionally, they won't, but that's the most forgiven type of debt you have. Most considered, uh, it, it's very often ignored and people don't realize that. So often you can win these battles by stating that you are willing to pay. You're willing to pay right now or very soon after you get a a bill that is corrected, but that it needs to be reasonable and that you're not paying a penny until it is. Because that puts them in a position where they think they're either going to get nothing or they're going to get a reduced amount. And usually they will go for the reduced amount. And if you dig your heels in, and you don't let the credit thing bother you, and if you, if you say things like, it's very important to me that I don't pay more than such and such, or that I don't pay more than I expected here, or that this charge is taken off, and uh, but I'm an honest person who pays my bills. If you use language like that, they get the idea, okay, here's someone who wants to give us money and they're not going to if we don't work with them. And it's hard for them to hang up on you and not take your money. It's hard for them to hang up on you and know you're not going to send them anything now. They feel like they, even even hospitals, they, they, they so badly want the money, they so badly want something out of you that they really are willing to negotiate. And you need to keep that in your mind and know that they fear not getting paid much more than you will fear your credit being screwed with. I'll even tell them sometimes, I don't care what you do to my credit. I'm just not going to pay this if I don't think it's right. And uh, and then that makes them afraid that you're going to just absolutely pay them nothing. Something else I always suggest is never, ever, ever, ever give them your social. Why don't, Don't make it easy for them to screw your credit. Don't... Don't ever give them info they don't need. They don't need your social. They have this on every form to put your social. Just don't put it down. Leave it blank. If they ask you, where's your social, which they almost never do, but if they ask you to say, I I don't like giving that out unless it's uh, required by law because uh, of identity theft issues. I've just made it a policy not to give it out any time. When is it required by law with doctors or medical stuff? Never. It's only required by law. Well, it's required by law to give it to insurance companies so they can tell the government that you have health insurance so you don't get a penalty. But doctors never required. So you, you, when, I, when it's required by law to give is like if you're going to be paid something, 
which of course doesn't have to do with the doctor. Like if you if you're uh, taking a job, you can't tell your employer you're not giving your social. But you uh, or if you're you're getting like a paid a jackpot at a casino, you can't just refuse to give that. But you can refuse at anything where you are not getting paid, basically. Now, if someone needs to check your credit to give you credit for something, then yes, it's either give the social or don't get the credit. But uh, other than that, the, nothing medical that you're doing requires a social. And they just try to collect that to get your information. Another thing you should get in the habit of doing is not giving your home address. Because uh, that's also something they can use against you. So it's, it's better to either... Put down an old address, a P.O. box, uh, your mom's address, whatever. Just don't put down your address. Because let's say there's a long-standing dispute and they want to sue you. Why make it? Why make it easier? Or why why make it easier for uh, them to try to look into your assets? What, whatever it is, like you, you don't any, you don't ever want to make anything easy on someone. Give them extraneous information which can be used to uh, do something against you or find out more information about you in the event of a dispute. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. So what do they need your address for other than to mail you something that, uh, so you need to give them an address maybe that uh, you can receive mail, but that's about it. But the social is more important. Social never give to them. Always leave it blank. And don't feel bad about it because people do it and they don't even question it usually. I think I've been questioned one time ever about why I don't give my social. And they backed down super fast when I said why I don't. They're like, oh, you left this blank. And I said, oh, well, I have identity theft concerns. They don't give it unless absolutely required. So, okay, no problem. Now, if they they, they are going to want to see your ID just to see who you, you know, that they have a right to ask for because you're using insurance. They want to make sure you are who you say you are. You didn't just find a card on the street. So that they do have a right to see. They do a right to make a copy of it, whatever. But uh, don't give them the social. Anyway, if anybody has uh, a question about this, you can text me, and I'll answer it for you. I don't mean necessarily right now or in the live show, but you can text me, and uh, I'll get back to you. 775-372-8355 is the text number. You can text me before, after, or during the show at any time, and this is pretty much it. Is there anything else uh, you'd like to bring up, Brandon? No, I'm good. Are you? Uh, did you talk about the uh, WSOP tomorrow on TV or today? I talked about how Norman Chad's not going to be on it and why and who's replacing him. Okay. And you talked about that uh, Johnson & Johnson, what have you? I did. Okay. Yeah, I got... I, tr- I tried to get everything here. I did my research here trying to get all the relevant topics for the show people are going to want to hear about and... You know what's kind of annoying is how long it's going to be until I get the vaccine. Well, now let me ask you something. Uh, I only was briefly reading this today. At some point, will someone like you or I, not talking about anyone older or younger, but our age group, will be able to specifically request which one we want? Or if, or if they offer us one that we don't want, or, or okay, I guess say the Johnson and Johnson, which we don't want, would we be able to decline it and wait for the one of the other two? Um, well, you can always decline it by just uh, well, obviously. But then would that impact you? 
You know, could you say technically I'm going to wait for the Moderna or the Pfizer one? Well, there's a way to do that, and that's either just find out which one they're doing either by contacting the facility or if you can't, just find out by somebody who's been down there and what they've gotten. Uh, or you can just – and it's like you can make an appointment in a different place that is using a different vaccine is what you can do. You're, you're not, you're not banned you from getting – Right now you could get the Johnson & Johnson one even though it's, what is it, like 67% yeah. effective. Would you pass? Or would you would you wait, or would you? Stop well, it? I was just discussing that that if if I could get it and then still get the other one without any kind of uh, reduced priority, because I already got the Johnson Johnson one, I would do it because having something is better than nothing. What I would not do is take the Johnson and Johnson and then put the very back of the line to get the better ones later on. I I, I really want it done right, and I don't want. It being done right delayed because I got one that's not as good. So uh, I I don't know how that's going to work. But right now I, I can't get anything. And what what's kind of bullshit is that people my age, I know you're just a few years younger, are kind of getting the shaft the most here. Maybe the ones the second most. The ones who get the shaft the most are the ones who have the major pre-existing additions who are not 65 yet, but. Aside from that, uh, people who are around my age are getting the shaft because we're not going to be in any kind of priority group, like at all. I'm not saying we're not first priority. That makes sense. But I will not be prioritized over young people, which is crazy because I I really do deserve the vaccine ahead of people who are 25 and 35. And I will be in the same group as them. And that's frustrating. So I think they should, they really should do it by age. And if they have a way to prove people that have uh, major pre-existing conditions, I don't know how they'd go about doing that, but some way to prove it, then let them get additional priority as well. Sons of bitches. But they 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 should do it by decades. You go go. Uh, 75 and up, 65 and up, 55 and up, 45 and up, go down from there until you get down to the bottom, until you get to the 16 to 25 group. Yeah. Because they, they don't need it that badly. You think you think an 18-year-old really needs the vaccine? They, they're, they're very safe from this. They, they'll they get a little bit sick, and that'll be that. It's, it's a tremendous um, difference. All right, I do have two other things. I mean, we could do a cover like in 10 minutes, and I'll let yeah, you okay. get off, and you're tired. I, I don't I doubt you touched on this. What's your take on this whole Tiger Woods thing, buddy? I mean, oh, that's, that's a good that's a good topic. That's a good know, topic. Is he just like have a death sentence? Is he going to be able to come back? Like, why doesn't he hire a driver? Like, for especially for roads, guys worth them. That was my first, I guess, thought in my head. All that money, you know, and and just safety, bodyguard wise, all of it. Why doesn't he hire a driver? I Why thought of that too when, when on I on these streets on these streets he's not familiar with. So when when he first got into this accident, that was one of my first thoughts of why doesn't he hire a driver? Because it, obviously the money is not an object; he has so much of it, and it continues to make a lot of money too. It's not even just money he has stored up. But there is one reason not to, and that is it's kind of a pain in the ass. You've, you've got to have them around all the time. You've got to wait for them. Like I can see where 
It's like I thought about like if I had as much money as Tiger, would I want a driver? And the answer is pro- probably not. I probably just want to just do do everything on my own and not bother to wait for someone hey, else. Listen, to- no, they're shooting Lady Gaga's bodyguards off the street just for his own protection. He should he shouldn't be just driving. I mean, imagine if you're wouldn't you be just stunned if you're in L.A. Uh, you know, going to get a pizza and you just see him in a in a you know. Fifty thousand dollar SUV at at a red light? Would you just be shocked? <laughs> yeah, like be like, really? Like you know what I mean? Like it's just kind of, yeah. You know, well, he's he's probably one of the top five most recognizable figures on earth. Yeah, on earth, on well, earth, if not maybe top three. I mean, he could be one. Like, how is he just for his own safety? Then just not. It's crazy. I bet he does now. I bet you will be years before we, if ever, if he's ever just driving by himself. You know, especially in an unfamiliar city or area. Not talking about where he lives at home in Florida, going to the you know corner or something. But anyhow, go on. So. Well, now, now of course, if he didn't feel well, if he was tired, if he had been taking some medication, whatever it was, if he'd been drinking, I, I don't, th- I don't think he was drinking. I don't think he's like he was, no, he was. He had just had woken up and he was yeah. going to do a. Uh, I don't know if you saw. He was going to do a, a shoot for the golf. What this golf network that he has a sponsorship with, and training two uh, NFL quarterbacks. One being. Uh, Drew, Drew Brees and the other being Justin Herbert of the Chargers, and that's where he was going to meet, and they, they were there waiting for him, and they were going to do this training session or something that was going to be filmed that he's getting paid for, and it started like at eight in the morning, and that's, yeah, where, that's well, where he was that, going. So maybe he's just tired in the morning. That's it's like uh, though I, well, I, I see why at seven thirty, you know what I mean? You're groggy too. You're well, sure. so so, but the thing is, I, and then I can kind of see how this happened. If he was groggy at that point, it's kind of too late to go call someone to go get him and drive him. So then he kind of has to just try to tough it out. Otherwise, he'll be late to the golf network thing. So I, I see if he was tired, I kind of see how this happened. But uh, I, I will say that I know that road really well, better than probably anybody listening to this show. In fact, I'd be pretty surprised if any knows that anyone knows that road where he crashed. What about than Trader Risky? Nobody. Way better than well, way better than him. Right. I grew up very close to where he crashed. Very, very close. So I spent a lot of time driving up and down that road. And that's why before I saw the reports, I think before they even came out, about what had happened. I saw where the car was crashed. I saw the position it was in. And I knew exactly what happened before they reported it. Before they reported the more details, that is. So I said, it looks to me that he lost control. He was probably going a little too fast. And the the road is moderately curvy. And that he lost control and crossed the center divider. And then went up the other side and and the kind of like the car actually rolled up the hill and and had that crash that, that I said that's what happened before that was reported and I knew this from driving that road in fact people who are in the car with me when I drive down that road which is called Hawthorne Boulevard who aren't from the area get nervous it, like it feels weird because it feels like I'm going too fast especially because they can feel the the curve. It's not a straight road. It feels dangerous. If you're a local or former local to the area and you know it and you have a very good feel for that road, it's not dangerous because you know exactly uh, how to handle it. But if you are not a local, then it is easy to 
drive that road uh, in a dangerous fashion and lose control. And I believe that's what happened. Probably being tired 7-something in the morning contributed. But because it's on a fairly steep downhill slope, you can pick up speed pretty fast without realizing it, even if you're not trying to speed. And then it's got that curve to it, which it doesn't really look that curvy, but it actually is curvy. So it's got that curve to it, and if you're not paying that much attention, you don't know it's coming, uh, you you can end up uh, something just like that, busting through the city divider. They're never obviously going to admit it or anything. They couldn't. But just behind closed doors, you know who's got to be thrilled that, you know, this played out exactly the way it did? Who? The uh, maker of the car he was driving, Hyundai, because it got so much, I don't know if you read a lot about this, but it got so much press, uh, and it was basically said repeatedly that if it wasn't for all the various safety features in that SUV, uh, he would not have survived. Oh, yeah. That the interior of the car, because there's 10 airbags and other <laughs> things in there, you know, cushioned him. And everyone, and also like other, I don't know, whatever the trade industry magazines that, that rate them by safety was already high on the list. It was like one of the top three vehicles to drive. I mean, I'm just saying, can you imagine how many people now are going to want this? I think it was, it was a Genesis. Yeah, it because, was a Genesis. You know, yeah, and it was likely, I mean, that wasn't his car. He was only driving it because... The tournament that he had, uh, that he was a part of, his charity or foundation, whatever, the day before, was called the Genesis Invitational, whatever it was called, which that was the big sponsor. But anyhow, it got so much press. I'd love to see just the, the uptake in you know new or I guess even used Hyundai Genesis that are just bought by people now that think it's you know what I mean. They, they should do a reenactment commercial. So the Tiger Woods could have died in this accident, but thanks to the, the all new Seg, the all new uh, Genesis, uh, Hyundai Genesis, yeah. uh, Tiger, uh, Tiger is going to be able to walk again. Tiger will be able to live a normal life in, instead of being in the ground. Okay, so do you think? And forget about even winning another major. I think that's preposterous at this point. Do you think he'll ever get back? To you know, competitive form where he, if he did play in a high end, you know, competitive with other pros golf tournament, he'd be able to potentially win. Or do you think those days are just over? He's going to be lucky to just be able to walk. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty much. I think that's over because uh, he's not going to want to go out there and be terrible. And this is not just like could you go play a? Uh, could you manage to golf and, and complete a course? It's a matter of being competitive against uh, all these other top golfers. And he's also 45 years old, so it's harder to come back from this than if you're younger. And I just think these injuries were major enough to where it's going to throw him off. And even if he can golf again, I don't think he's going to be able to do it at the same level. And I think that's probably going to be it. He'll probably just concentrate on his son and seeing if he can get his son to following his footsteps except minus the uh all the the cheating well, on his wife and the, and the car accidents he's got a daughter too just saying i, I don't know how good the daughter i, I know the son we were talking about how he's, he seems to have a lot of talent for yeah. for golf so i don't it's know about the daughter um, maybe the daughter will be too but the i he may focus on that and that can even be the excuse why he's not uh trying to still golf competitively anymore that he's decided that spend the time focusing on uh, working with his kid, his kid, or both kids. And 
I, I just don't see that happening. But when I heard this accident occurred and I saw where it was, like I, I just I knew it because there, there, there have been fatal accidents on this road over the years that were similar to this. I guess they weren't driving the Genesis, but I've seen single vehicle fatal accidents that have occurred on that exact road under similar circumstances. So this was not surprising to me at all. And it was funny seeing like they're trying to look at it on Google Maps and say, well, it didn't look very curvy to me. And I don't know. Like, it was so funny watching them trying to analyze this when I, I already knew all the answers. I don't know why they didn't just act, ask a local from the area about that road instead of trying to guess that. I'm talking like major media, media figures, not like uh, Twitter people. That they they weren't putting the work in to, to find out about the area. But yeah, that's, uh, I think if you are a top uh, black athlete, I think uh, transportation at the beginning of the year in the 2020s is, is uh yeah, it's it's a lot of peril. And okay, so last subject, and then uh, I'll grace graciously let you go. I'm sure you've seen it. If you haven't, uh, you know it's all over the news. There's been a ton of momentum the last few days. It's picked up steam. Started with Kyrie Irving, and then Kobe Bryant's widow jumped on it about replacing Jerry West soliloquy with uh, Kobe Bryant as the logo for the NBA. What do you think about that? Have, um, you, seen, have you read about this? Yeah, I, I, I saw a little bit about that. Well, um, do you have any thoughts? Either yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I don't see the point of replacing it because Jerry West. It's not like there's anything wrong with him. If, if there's, uh, if Jerry West had been some kind of uh, reprehensible figure. And they said, why are we honoring this guy? And then they want to replace it with someone who... Uh, Jerry West was one of the best basketball players ever to play the game. But yeah, and I'm not even talking about his skill. I'm talking about it as a person. Yeah. No, like, well, he doesn't... the thing that's wrong with him is he's white. Well, they're right. That's, that's a problem. It's like yeah. you can't just take... I don't. You don't take it away from him just because uh, he's white and you'd ra- rather have a... Uh, a non-white figure there who, who died under tragic circumstances. The other problem is that Kobe Bryant has that controversy that is always going to be with him about the rape accusation. And that's also something that complicates any kind of matter like that, where he would be the, like the logo of the NBA. It's one thing to give him credit as for, for the player he was, but it's another thing to put him in a position like that when, when truthfully, like, I think if that story happened in a different time period, like now, instead of, uh, 2004, whenever that happened, I think this could have been a lot worse for him. But yeah, that, uh, and, and I, after he died, I did see a lot of this on social media of people were saying, why, why are we, Memorializing Kobe and saying how sad this was that you know he was a rapist and got away with it. Some well, people were. No, he, I mean, you remember again, he was accused. He never was convicted. No, I'm saying what they were saying. I'm not saying I didn't say oh, this. Okay. And in fact, yeah, I, I no, wrote no. back. I you know, I'll be honest. I don't think he did it. Well, I'll tell you I what I wrote back. There. I'll tell you what I wrote back to these people. I said that mm-hmm. it's difficult to tell what happened there, but the problem was that the girl 
who was making these accusations was unreliable and that uh, there, there were too many aspects of the story that were hard to tell what really occurred, that this wasn't very straightforward, and that it, it did look to me like she probably went up to his room to engage in some sort of sexual activity with him. And that, see, my guess was that it was something along the lines of that uh, she did go up to have sex with him. It wasn't that she was unreliable. She was, let's just say it, she was mentally unstable. Well, uh, yeah. So, so I, I think... she been in and out of, you know, she'd literally been in and out of men- a mental facility. Uh, you know, she had had sex with multiple people. Right, that was a, a different semen found in, in her underwear of, of, like, since she last washed them. Like, it was, so obviously, this was not... Uh, Someone who you could just say, okay, it was just some average girl that, that Kobe was alone with and he grabbed her and raped her. It wasn't that simple. Uh, it looked like she went up to his room with him probably to have sex with him. I think if anything happened that was bad, it was possible that maybe she changed her mind or maybe he wanted to do something she didn't like and she tried to stop him and he's like, nope, we're, we're going and we're finishing this and he just did it anyway and, and, and forced the rest on her or something like that. I, I could, that, that's kind of my guess that it was something, either something along those lines or she was just crazy and, and making it up or exaggerating it after they just, yeah, after they had sex. But, um, it was, there were too many odd things about that story. To where I don't think he was completely innocent, if if I had to guess. But it also looked like there was a lot of aspects of it that were hard to explain or understand. To where some things may not have been what she portrayed you know, it to be. It's kind of incredible, considering that you know a lot of people don't even mention that now. You know, he got lucky that that really occurred in that era because if it got if it occurred in this era, you know, a he would definitely be done with endorsements. I don't know if you know. Yeah. He. Uh, initially what happened I remember like his biggest endorser which which was McDonald's dropped yeah. him and I think he might have also been Gatorade like Michael Jordan but whatever you know then he later got them back slowly but if that happened now you'd be done like you know you still I mean you, you obviously could still play you know what I mean because it's you know if you're not convicted you, you know, you're not going to be banned from playing in sports but just the legacy you would leave behind and the you know income stream that for a superstar like that you know you'd be done there also may have been more of an aggressive attempt to uh, prosecute him than than was then. So, sure. So that he, he yeah. could, it would have been a lot more trouble, and uh, so that that can you can you just imagine though? You know, after Kobe just dying within roughly almost a year, you know, a year and a few weeks, if Tiger Woods would have died too. Can well, you I know that's why that's why I was saying it's a world? it's a bad time for travel for yeah. a, a, a prominent black athletes in the 2020s, um, the beginning of the year. Unbelievable. Unbelievable! Yeah, when I when I when I heard about that accident, I was like, "Oh wow, is it, did he did he die too now?" And then I saw it was, it was the car looked really bad, but then I heard, "No, it's he's, he's injured. It's not life threatening. It just looks like it's threatening his legs." So that's yeah, a big deal, but it's not the same as as life threatening. Well, it's not even that. I mean, look, he's not paralyzed. You know, totally incapacitated. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know. If, if I know if he if he escapes this and can live life normally, he just can't golf anymore yeah, then sure. it's not it it's really sucks for someone of that stature to lose that but it's not nothing like losing. i mean you know what though but it'd be the perfect time i mean you know what i mean it, it, if it was going to happen i mean you know he's on the back end of you know ever being you know what i mean he's on the back end of his career his dominance is over no matter what you know he's got a billion dollars in the bank you know his kids are still young enough he can raise you know what i mean 
could be it could be much worse. Well, yeah, it could have been twenty yeah. years ago, and then that would have been yeah tremendously exactly. worse. Yeah, yeah. How how far was that from where you once lived? Was it like you know real real close? Yes, super super close. And I drove wow. that I drove up and down that road so many times, and I can totally understand. How Did you happen. ever have a scary moment yourself on that road? No, because I was used to it. I, I was uh, not only was like I the used beginning. Like what age? Okay, what age were you? Did you live around there? Like were you a, a learning driver at any point? Well, yes, driver? but but I think I'd been on it so many times with my mom and my dad driving me that I was used to it. So even at night, you know, we'll put you out there when you were eighteen years old, driving at night with no lights, you know, dark. I don't know if the, the well the, the road is well lit, but whatever. Just at night, ten o'clock at night. You know, obviously, you're not going to be sitting there texting while you're driving it, but would you feel comfortable, you know, at 10 o'clock at night as an 18, 20-year-old, whatever, driving there? Yes, I was I was comfortable okay. when I was 16. Oh, okay. Because I because I told you, I've been up and down it so many times, even not as the driver, that I, I, I as a little kid, we were up and down that road. It was a, That is one of the main roads, in fact, it's the biggest road out of town into, into the rest of uh, southern Los Angeles County. So... Right. So you're on it so many times by the time you even drive it that you're already used to that. And then once you drive it, you get used to it very fast. But as someone who is new to the area or relatively new who hasn't gone on up and down it that many times, it, it can – the thing is it, it's a lot more dangerous than it looks like it is. So you, it looks like just you're going downhill on, on a fairly steep but not super steep road that's pretty wide. And you can kind of relax, and then it has kind of a curve to it, and you can pick up speed, and all of a sudden it feels like you're losing control if you're not used to it. So that's why this type of thing happens. And it is usually teenage, not usually, but I I have seen cases of teenagers getting in major accidents, some unfortunately resulting in death, over the years that I've read about that have happened on Hawthorne Boulevard. Also on that street, in the 1970s, there was a truck that lost its brakes and went down and slammed into cars that were in cross traffic at the next intersection. The truck just couldn't stop. I think. Did you post about that on PFA? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and and yeah, and it killed people. And uh, as a result, they actually put an escape lane there. And I remember seeing it built as a little kid. And I asked, and my mom was telling me what this was, why they're putting sand there on the side, or like gravel and sand, like that's a, an escape lane, and there's actually a sign that said escape lane, and that's the only time I've seen an escape lane that is on a surface street. I've seen them on the freeway. In fact, there's even one driving between LA and Vegas on the 15, toward getting close to the state line. <clears throat> but I have not uh, seen one on a surface street aside from there, and that's why, because of that fatal accident in the 70s. Now, that was from a truck losing its brakes, but there just have been a lot of deaths on that street. And it was also closed until like 5 p.m. that day. And they wow. never closed it that long from a, an accident, fatal or not. But it was because of who it was that they wanted to really make sure they got everything right and complete. Because there's so many eyeballs on it. They don't want to screw this up. Sure. So that, uh, yeah, it was pretty surprising. I got, uh, you know, the first way I heard about it was that someone texted me and said, uh, how familiar are you with this road that with, with Tiger? And I'm thinking, what? 
did Tiger Woods get in some kind of accident? And I opened up the news, and yep, there, there it was. As soon as I saw something about Tiger and how how well you do know, do you know that road, I thought, uh oh, yeah. Before and I, when they wrote that, I, I had a feeling I knew which road it was too. Hmm. So anyway. Um, Let's see here. I I don't have anything else. That's that's about it. Okay. We're, we're going to well, be done. Well, you said you're tired anyhow. Are you going to sleep now, or just voice? It's more your voice. Yeah, it's 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 both. Uh, I I just got up earlier than usual. I meant to take a nap during the day, so I have more energy to do the show. Because I talk a long time, and I'm up late, and requires a lot of energy going in. And yeah, I kind of felt like. I don't know if I'm going to have it this time, but I, I, I got through it. Got through it. And next week, uh, I'm not sure if we'll be on Saturday or Friday. I'd like to bring it back to Friday, but uh, sometimes it doesn't happen. So it'll either be on Friday, March 5th, or Saturday, March 6th. And as I mentioned a little earlier in the show, but Brandon, I don't think you know about this, the ninth anniversary of Poker Fraud Alert is on Tuesday. Wow. It'll be yeah. nine years old on Tuesday, March 2nd. It's amazing. And I actually bought the domain and put it up on the same day. Because I, I was I got it already on a different site, and then at the last minute changed it. It was going to be on dandruffpoker.com. And then I decided that I didn't want a poker site to be themed around me. So that's why I changed it to Poker Fraud Alert. I still have dandruffpoker.com. But it's not something that was going to be this site anymore. I, I wanted I actually wanted to get away from having the site being themed as something that's just about me. I wanted it to be something about poker in general. Well, it worked out for the best. Good decision. Um I know I probably know the answer already, but you're not planning on watching uh, any of this hybrid main event coverage, are you? No, I'm not interested in it. Could you even tell me right now, without looking, without cheating, who the second, the real, I don't know if you want to call it the real, but the hybrid main event champion is the name of the person? No, I forgot it. I reported it before on the show, but I've... Yeah, I couldn't either. I forgot it. Can you imagine that, that that's where it's come from, like, you know, where we were, where, you know, Moneymaker, I mean, everyone knew it was Raymer, then everyone knew it was... Uh, Who's after Reamer? Joe Hashem. But the thing is, yeah, the, and- the thing is, I I knew these people uh, up till last year, and then last year was this weird thing no, where they had to do main that, events. But what I'm so- saying is, you used to be able to just re- recite it, you know, in, in your sleep, basically. Like, you know what I mean? If someone said to you, "Who won the you know, main event last year?" You, you know, you always you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. And now it's like you, we don't even know the name of the person. It's become that irrelevant and that just badly, badly handled that. Uh, Although I'm hearing from a lot of people that claim everyone has a fucking insider. I'm hearing from a lot of people that are claiming they're going to run a live WSOP this year. I don't know how accurate it is, but oh yeah, I, 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 I that, oh yeah, I think they will. I think they will. And uh, I was just discussing it on Twitter in response to somebody else asking this, and I said the bigger question, and I think the answer is yes to the question I'm about to ask is, are they going to require masks the entire time you play? And I think the answer is yes, which 
I wish was not the case. I, I think what would be best to do would be if you can prove you've been vaccinated and the proper amount of time has passed since you were vaccinated, that you can not wear a mask. Maybe they'll give you a little uh, uh, rubber bracelet or something, you know, something to wear around your, your wrist to show that you don't have to wear a mask and that uh, you can have that instead of a mask if you want. And if you have not been vaccinated, then you have to wear a mask. And I think that would be a good middle ground to where you're not forcing people who've been vaccinated to needlessly wear a mask the entire time, which is uncomfortable. But they're not going to do that, I know. They're just going to probably say everybody has to wear one, which I don't want to do. So I, if that's the case, I'm not going to play. Yeah. And I think that's almost surely going to be the case by that point. Whenever they have it, there's still going to be a good number of people who haven't been vaccinated yet. So that, sure. I, that's what, that's Especially what I... Especially with this, the international travel. Yeah, yeah, that's that's going to be the kink in the whole system there, I think. Yeah, so it's going to be a mess, and I think the numbers are going to be way down because of that. I think a lot of people are going to have no desire to come and play under those circumstances. I think some people don't want to admit it, but I think a lot of it's going to seem unappealing to sit there in a mask the entire time on these long days. So I'm I'm not going to do it. You were mentioning before when we had Jeannie on about maybe I can come and just play some of the online events from the hotel room. So I'm not ruling that out if there's some online events. Well, that that would be the safest way or the most comfortable way for you to do it if, you know, because regardless of, of, of a live term or not, there's still going to be a heavy, uh, you know, amount of online tournaments that, you know what I mean? Just because they're pursuing it and they want, you know, that presence there. And for other reasons now with, you know, with COVID. So, you know, that would at least be something. The only thing would be, you know, more likely, you know, you would miss playing tournaments that you enjoy, you know, the majority of them, because there's not going to be, you know, I would be shocked if there was a limit hold'em tournament on there, uh, you know, things like that. You, you know, you're more likely to just be able to play no limit on there. But well, it's still better than nothing, I guess. Right, and that's what I was thinking, that that could be a problem. If, if it is a hybrid thing where they're doing mostly – mostly live and, and that's a little bit online it probably will just be no limit hold'em and yeah uh, I, I mean in theory you could just drive to like you know prim wouldn't you even have to come to vegas <laughs> you know well i mean i'm just saying you could i, I could stay at that border uh, i could stay at that mall there which i could have bought could have bought it could have owned a uh outlet mall added that to your repertoire of <laughs> yeah how, how cool would that be i just like just be at the world series of poker you know once they don't need a mask again. I'll sit at the table and say, "Hey, you know that outlet mall you pass on the way here? That's mine. I own it." So you you own a store there? No, no, no. I own the whole thing. That's funny. And I was like, how, "How much did it cost?" I said, "It was it was a hundred million dollars. No big deal." But you know, I bought it. <laughs> they ne- they never guess it's a one point five million. No, I don't think they would. <laughs> it's funny. Still, it's kind of shocking. It is shocking. It's, it's, it's kind of sad that it went for that much. I, I feel like I feel like I missed out. Yeah, I feel, I feel like uh, I could have bought something big there for not very much money. Yeah. Oh well, there will be there will be other outlet malls. I'll have my chance again. <laughs> it's amazing. It just went down from that price. Like, I, I still don't understand how it could have been appraised. So high, and then it went down to I think it was. Oh, what was? Do you remember what it was appraised at? 
No, but it was, yeah, way, way, way higher. But you know what? I did think of something since then that perhaps this was some sort of sham sale, that there was more to it than it appears to be, that it was sold to some kind of associated party, and that this isn't quite just an open sale, that it wasn't something that anyone could have gotten. Oh, that it was just... Well, how what would that be? Give me an example of something. What do you mean? Like it was a private sale? Like, like they, they sold it to someone they, that they have some association with, and they. they I had thought it to, was an auction. It was, but it could have been something where there was it was an auction that nobody was informed about, and they they, they quickly uh, they quickly held it, and the whole thing could have been a sham. I've seen this sort of thing before. Okay, I, I've seen this. You know, there's a version of this where people. Uh, sell houses to uh, friends or relatives at a huge discount and dodge any kind of uh, federal gift tax. And they do this by, uh, they will do things like this, that they'll, they'll create some kind of fake, uh, f- fake listing for it and do this whole thing with, with pretending to try to sell it and then, and then force a bunch of deals to, to fall through and then finally sell it at a discount to who they really wanted to sell it to in the first place. And then they'll have the justification that they had a bunch of buyers that just didn't work out and they finally had to drop the price. Like the old, I've seen, I've seen tricks like this before. I don't know if this was one of them. This may have just been an auction that just someone snagged a really good deal. It could have been that too, but I don't know when weird things like happen, like this happen, I always have to be suspicious. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess that's it. And I, I don't have the energy to put this in the archives with the editing right now, so I won't, but I will do it a little bit later. Thank you for coming on, Brandon. And did you hear what I said? I said thank you for coming yeah, on. Of course. I didn't, I didn't know if you heard over the music. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I heard Thank you. I always think you can't hear me over the music. Well, not much more to say here. This didn't feel like it would be a long show, but it ended up kind of a long show. They started uh, a little earlier than I have in recent times, so we still ended up uh, six and a half hours or so. Maybe a little bit less. We'll have to do something for the 10-year anniversary next year. The 9-year doesn't matter that much. This is another year, but... 10-year anniversary will be March 2nd, 2022. Uh, losing Brandon. So that's a little more than a year from now. Maybe the world will be back to normal by that point. By the way, if you have been vaccinated, this is a good time to travel because you'll get a lot of good deals because most people can't or won't travel right now. And if you can travel because you've been vaccinated, then I would do it. I wish I could. I guess I could, but I wish I was vaccinated so I could do it without concern. That'd be nice. 
Well, that is all for tonight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Trader Ruski, for your part on the show. Thank you, Brandon, for joining us. And we'll be back Friday or Saturday, March 5th or 6th. Shalom.